that's a telephone booth. I know, because that word up there is telephone. Number, please. I said, hey, operator, please give us a hand. You gotta help us out, because we're the telephone band. Calling all people that are sitting at home. Put some rockin' and rollin' on the telephone. Yeah, yeah. Telephone Rock from 1974. This aired on Sesame Street, and this is one of my earliest memories of liking telephones. If you've listened to the show a lot, you know I really like telephones, and I pretty much have my own my whole life. And I hadn't remembered this song, which was written custom for Sesame Street and had a little uh, Muppet skit along with it. You can find it on YouTube. Um, Watching this as an adult, something I noticed is this was surprisingly technically accurate. The beginning of it, 
the sound effects they're playing as the Muppet is picking up the phone and dropping a dime in there are really accurate, like exactly as it sounded in those days. So whoever made this must have been a fan of telephones, too, and wanted it to sound exactly as it sounded. So anyway, I saw this posted somewhere else on Facebook, and I was like, oh, I remember this from when I was like a really, really little kid. And I remember thinking the whole thing was so cool. In fact, I kind of felt bad for the characters in this who uh, you can't hear it on the radio. Well, you can't see it on the radio, but if you watch the skit, they get uh, the whole phone booth gets picked up and taken away by a police officer who the operator called for harassing her. And I remember feeling bad for the, <laughs> the characters in the show that were uh, getting dragged away by the police. I was a real little child at that point, probably four years old when I first saw this. Um, there's no way I remember this from when it first aired in 1974 because I was only two. But this is, I probably saw it like two years later in 76, something like that. And, and I, I just remember my entire life I had a love of telephones. And I still do. That's why we have things like the call to listen line here, because I love telephones that much. Uh, some of you may have seen me around the World Series of Poker wearing a Bell System hat, and that's paying homage to my love of phones. It's an old school Bell System hat that I bought that someone was custom making on the Internet, and I wore that a lot at the World Series. I, I kind of wore that sometimes in the Poker Fraud Alert hat sometimes. I think I wore that mainly in cash games, and I wore Poker Fraud Alert in the tournaments in case pictures were taken of me. I wanted the Poker Fraud Alert hat in the pictures. So, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being broadcast live and recorded on April, August 30th. August 30th, 2019. The time right now is 9.07 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We were supposed to be on yesterday. I remember saying last week, oh, it'll be on Thursday again. Well, it's not. We're, we're here on Friday. But I have a good reason for missing it yesterday and changing the show day to today. And I'll get to that after I tell you about the free roll, which is starting in 13 minutes. We have a $98.25 free roll this week. Why is it not 100 even? Because I, I'm too cheap to throw in the other $1.75. That, that's a fact. I, mean, I thought about it. I thought, you know what? Maybe I should just throw in $1.75 of my own Jew money. And then I said, no, I, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I, I'm just feeling cheap today. Have you ever just woken up and just felt cheap on a certain day? Maybe this only happens to Jews. But, but for me, I wake up on some days and feel cheaper than others. Today, I'm feeling cheap. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Forget the $1.75. I'm going to keep it in my pocket. I will make better use of that dollar seventy-five than you guys will, so I'm I'm keeping it. And the ninety-eight twenty-five that was donated, I'm going to use instead. So ninety-eight twenty-five this week. This was donated by two people. Tiger Piper. This is the remainder of his donation that he did last week. We split it up between two weeks. Seventy-three dollars and twenty-five cents, and twenty-five dollars came from Tasha of Vegas VegasCasinoTalk.com which is one of my other forums, VegasCasinoTalk.com. You can check it out. More of a uh, casino-related forum than poker. But Tasha, who's a user there, who donated this on behalf of her lottery picks. Uh, this user on Vegas Casino Talk makes lottery picks. It's supposed to be positive expectation lottery picks, if you can understand that. So to show how much money she's making from her lottery picks. She She's just handing out $25 to this show, and I thank Tasha for that. So $98.25 is the prize pool this week. 
We have a cool $50 for first, which is nice. Second place will get $23. Third place will get $15.25. And fourth place will get 10 So it's 50 23 15 25 and 10 Those are the four prizes this week. On the No Fraud Online Poker Room, you can find it near the top of the screen. You need a separate account on the Poker Room in order to play. It also needs to be validated one time, but needs to be validated by either Belly Buster, who is the administrator of the Poker Fraud Alert No Fraud Online Poker Room, or by me. I prefer you contact him. You do that. Go on the forum and PM him Belly Space Buster, and he'll do that. We do that to make sure that nobody multi-accounts. But if he doesn't respond to you for whatever reason, you can message me. I'm Dan Space Druff on the forum, or you can text me at 775-372-8355. But don't do it during radio. I hate when people during radio want me to get them set up on the free roll. Think of it beforehand. We have one just about every week, so it's pretty easy to predict we're going to have it. The amount varies, but uh, by the way, Eric Benzamokin gave me some money. I met with him this week, but I decided I'm going to hold it over because we already had almost 100 bucks this week and... In fact, we had more than that. We had some previous donations we still haven't used yet. So I decided I don't want to do too much this week since I don't expect the participation to be very large because of the abrupt change in the show date. People were expecting Thursday. It didn't appear Thursday. And a lot of people don't even know that we're going tonight. So if you're in there, it's probably going to be a small field and you have a decent shot at winning the free money, which I will send you in one of many ways. You can ask for it by Bitcoin, by Zelle, by uh, bank transfer, if I have one of your banks. I used to be able to transfer to any bank in the U.S., but uh, that's been done away with. So all I can do is either transfer to a bank, which I also have, or send it to you by Zelle. And if you don't have one of those two methods to receive it by bank, I can't send it to you by bank. But I can send it to you on the Cash App. I can even send it to you on another service that people use to pay for things online and have been using for about 20 years now. If you can think of the name of that service, you can ask for it by that, and I can pay you that way. A lot of ways to get paid the free money, but make sure you go to pokerfraudalert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase, pokerfraudalert.com slash freeroll, to read the rules about qualifying for the free money. Otherwise, you may win and not get paid, and you don't want that. It starts at 9.20 Pacific time. You've still got eight minutes to get in, and then you have another 25 minutes after that to start with a full stack with late registration. So plenty of time tonight, 21 minutes left to get into that free roll. If you want to call the show, the phone numbers are the same as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number of this show. Please try to call in between segments or when I tell you that I'm looking for phone calls. Don't call in the middle of a rant or I'm not going to answer. And by all means, if I don't answer, don't hammer me over and over and over thinking you're going to wear me down and I'm going to answer at that point. What I'll do is I'll just block your number and then the next time you want to call in, I won't even see it. So you you don't want to do that. Also, make sure to show your caller ID. If you call unknown, it won't get through. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. works the exact same way as what I just described, except it's an old 70s rotary phone located on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. It's an old 70s rotary phone. Forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. If you want to listen to the show, 
you can listen on the call to listen line, among other options. The call to listen line is a phone number that simply can be called that you listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, a computer, the internet, none of that stuff. And if you have data, it's not going to eat up your data. It's, it's very simple. You just call up a regular phone number and listen. So the phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. It's one of our two call-to-listen lines. The other one is 641-741-1095. They both work the same way. And you just listen, and it never buffers, never freezes. I was listening to somebody else's stream. Not actually a poker show, but I was listening to a show that was streaming live the other day. And guess what happened? It buffered. I went through a, an area of poor reception, and it buffered. I didn't have no reception. It just wasn't great reception, and it wasn't enough to download a streaming show. So it just stopped there. And it was the, the worst thing was, like, the guy was saying something I really wanted to hear the conclusion of, and then it just stops, and I'm like, come on, come on, start again, start again, start again. And I, I was just really afraid that I was not going to get to hear it. Sometimes it starts buffering, and then it, it, it doesn't finish buffering, and you have to start it over, and then you missed what people said. It's terrible. I hate buffering streams. And so I made sure the call to listen line never buffers. It's a great thing. You just call up and listen. And if we're, we're not live on the air, then you just call up and you listen to previous shows it's playing. It just picks random previous shows. We have over 300. And it plays one in its entirety, and then when that's over, it picks another and another and another until we come back live on the air. You can chat in the chat room. Go to the chat button near the top of the screen. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones and iPads, and you need a forum account in good standing to chat, which you can only really do during the live show because nobody else is in there if you're not listening live. If you want to text me during the show, before the show, after the show, whenever, you may wake up in the middle of the night and feel you have to tell me something. You can. Anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Text me at 775-372-8355, the same as our main phone number, 775-372-8355, and make sure you say, don't read on air at the beginning of your text. If you're worried, I may read it on the air if it's something really private. Let's see if we can find uh, Trader Ruski tonight. I, I texted him, and I didn't bother to see if he texted me back, asking him if he wants to appear on the show tonight. Let me see here. Yeah, he's around, so he says. Let's try to call up Trader Ruski, bring him on. By the way, for those of you that miss Calwatt, he's he's expressed interest in coming back. He still listens to the show, and we still talk. And Calwatt told me that uh, he would like to come back. It's just uh, we've got to have a more stable schedule. So I said, oh, no, we're going to have a stable schedule. Uh, we're going to be on this Thursday. Don't you worry. And then we weren't. <laughs> so I decided that out of embarrassment, I wouldn't even ask him about coming on tonight. But uh, we'll see next week. I think he kind of got inspired because we talked about uh, software development and, and managing of software projects. And this, this is what he's been doing for the last 30 years. And, and he's like, oh, I want to say something. Like he was listening last week after we were already done, listening to the archives. And he's thinking, oh, if only I was there to say things. And I said, well, you can be. <laughs> you can come back and, and we can uh, have you on the show again. And so he's just got to get back into the habit of staying up late enough for the show. And maybe we have to start a little bit earlier, but I, I want to get him back. And a lot of people miss Calawat, but 
Here's someone I don't have to miss because he's been on every week. Trader Whiskey, hello. What's happening, Druff? Glad to have Cal- you here. Thank you. Cal Wap probably would have liked tonight on a Friday. You know, he yeah, have to work tomorrow probably. I, I was thinking of that, but here's two things. First, he may have to work because he doesn't work for somebody else. He works for himself, so it's possible he has things to do anyway tomorrow. And second, he probably got up very early today. So it, it's probably just a matter of like he can't even keep his eyes open at this time. Uh, it's, it's possible he'll wake up and go to the bathroom. It is after midnight where he is now. Uh, it's possible he'll wake up to go to the bathroom and just notice the show's on and can't sleep and then call in. We've had that occasionally. You never know. You never know what will happen with this show. And let me get to the agenda. And then I will tell you why the show's delayed a day. I haven't told you guys yet, but it's an interesting story. The agenda for tonight after I tell you why I missed a day, which is a story in itself. Ken Strauss, the World Series of Poker penis exposure, uh, exposer, has been indicted on a number of charges, including terrorism. I'll tell you all about that. Caesars has released the final 10% of final tableist Nick Marchington's money. He got 90% paid, but uh, 10% was held back because of a lawsuit we previously talked about. I'll give you that update. We're going to do a segment which is not about anything that's happened in the past week, but something that's been ongoing for almost 20 years, or actually about 20 years, and that is online poker's legalization battles. I've had some requests for me to go back to the beginning, and obviously I can't tell you the full story all the way through 20 years, or we'd probably be doing a 30-hour show, but to give an overview of the history of online poker from a legalization standpoint. So I'm not going to talk about, oh, I played on this side, and this was great, and then I did this, and then I won money here, and it's not going to be that type of segment. It's going to be about, from the legalization standpoint basically the timeline from the beginning till today and where online poker is likely to go and where it currently stands right now. Whether you should play online poker right now in the U.S., I'll talk about the state of the current online sites, both legal and otherwise, that you can reach from the U.S. So we'll talk about all of that, and I'll tell you that there is a lot of confusion about it. There's so much that people are confused about. Some people think online poker was completely legal and completely legal to run all the way up until Black Friday, or at least all the way up until 2006, the UIGEA. Not true. A lot of people think that uh, Black Friday is what ruined online poker. If it were not for that, we'd have a very bustling industry in online poker. Also not true. There's a lot of things people don't understand properly about this subject, and I'm not an expert in everything. There's many things I don't know much about, but this is a subject I know a whole lot about more than the very vast majority of not only people, but even people in the poker industry. I've followed this ever since the beginning. I've been part of it since the beginning. So I'll tell you guys the truth about all this stuff from somebody who knows. Poker Tracker, which is a tool people use while they're playing at the tables, the site got hacked. And if you have recently paid for Poker Tracker, you may have had your payment info stolen. So I'll tell you about that story. The high speed train 
that was to go from Victorville, California to Las Vegas, and that was basically shelved and never to happen. That's back on track, no pun intended. I'll tell you about why that project is going again and if it's going to be useful at all. Hooters Las Vegas is being rebranded. Now, don't get this confused with the Hard Rock topic. That's also getting rebranded. That's another hotel in Vegas that's off-strip that's getting rebranded. Hooters is getting rebranded as well, and that's the story of this week. I will also tell you about a personal experience I had at Hooters that was not very pleasant. But don't get too excited. It had nothing to do with big breasts or any breasts. I wish it did. Then it wouldn't be that unpleasant. But this, this had nothing to do with breasts, my unpleasant experience at Hooters. The SLS, the former Sahara, is going to be the Sahara again. In fact, it is the Sahara again. It's already happened. We'll talk about that and whether it has a chance to succeed by returning to its old brand. Resorts World New York, not the one that's being built in Vegas, but Resorts World New York has been in a world of hurt for quite some time, losing tons of money. But it has been saved, at least from now, for now, from bankruptcy. What is the true definition of rakeback? And when is changing that term for marketing purposes unethical? After all, I don't think you'll find rakeback in Webster's Dictionary. I'd be very surprised if it were there. So does it have a real definition? Or are we just assuming a definition? And is it fair for online poker operators to change that definition a bit? as long as the money's going back to the players in some way? Or is there a pretty well-known definition where if people deviate from it for marketing purposes, are they trying to trick players? We're going to talk about that because that subject has come up on 2 Plus 2 recently. Finally, Phil Galfond is offering to play anyone high-stakes PLO on his own site, Run It Once. Is this ethical? We will discuss that as our final topic of the night. So that's our agenda on this lovely Friday night. Hopefully, if you're listening live, then you can stay up late because you don't have to go to work tomorrow. Most of you are probably listening to the archives, and maybe some of you will find a pleasant surprise that the show did exist this week when you may have checked iTunes or one of the other methods to listen, which I forgot to mention, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the TuneIn app, Bullhorn. These are all ways you can listen. You can Download the MP3 directly from PokerFraudAlert.com. Maybe you checked that this morning and said, where's the Thursday show? Crap, there's no Thursday show. Oh, no, is Druff going to miss a week again? No, no, here we are tonight. So, okay, let's just start with what most people assume will be the main topic of the week. And it is, though it's not going to be long. It's uh, There's not that much to say about it. But Ken Strauss, who's had quite a summer... First, towards the end of June, he cashed something fairly small, small meaning compared to the buy-in. He, he, I think he played like a $1,500 World Series event and finished somewhere past the min-cash and cashed like for 2000 something And very ordinary, didn't get in any trouble, didn't do anything unusual to my knowledge, just played and cashed. And then he went on to play the main event. And then he acted really, really strange. And we've talked about this on previous shows, so we're not going to do a whole segment on Ken Strauss and the penis exposure. But, but, but that's what he did. He, for some reason, very early on in day one, went all in blind 
where in the main event you never do that because it's such a slow-moving event that's probably the worst event to go all-in blind. Except the fact you're probably not going to get called if they don't know you're going all-in blind. <laughs> but he went all-in blind with a trash hand, and it turned out to be like a trash hand, queen something offsuit. And while he was waiting for people to decide whether they call him, he took off his shoes, threw one of his shoes at the table, which actually bounced and hits the guy in seat one and kind of glazed the dealer too. And then if that wasn't enough, he pulled down his pants to moon the table. But he pulled his pants down fully to where if you were standing or sitting on the other side of him, you actually saw his penis. So not surprisingly, he got ejected. He actually ended up winning the hand when everybody folded, including, uh, Someone who, uh, I, I think he exposed his hand, whatever. The, the person who had to call had an obvious call given his hand was exposed and they knew it was going to be what they were up against and they chose to fold. So he actually won a small pot on that one, but he got disqualified. Somehow wasn't arrested. I don't know if he was banned from Caesar's properties, but he went down to the Luxor that same day, stood on an empty craps table and shouted for a while and then eventually... Pulled down his pants again, and this time very clearly showed his penis to everybody standing around. And there's a video of both incidents, which you can find in various places on the net, including PokerFraudAlert.com. He was arrested there, and I think he was—he may not have been arrested. He was taken away by security. I can't find record of that arrest. It's possible he wasn't arrested. I know he was in a mental ward for a few weeks after that. This was in early July. But he wasn't done. And in late July, he got himself into all kinds of trouble. Now, I don't have the specifics of some of the things he did. But I know he was going to various casinos causing trouble again in the same way, exposing himself, acting crazy. His tweets were getting weirder and weirder. His Twitter is twitter.com slash kpit, P-I-T-T, boy, kpit, boy. That's his Twitter. You can see some of these tweets. Some have been deleted for some reason, but you can see some of these tweets. And you will notice that uh, he seems very unstable. It's possible that this was being done on purpose for attention, but whatever it was, uh, you can see... He seemed to be getting less and less coherent in his tweets as time was passing and losing grip on reality, unless it was intentional. He was going back to casinos where he was banned and getting in trouble there. So on July 27th, he got uh, arrested for a trespass violation. I'm not sure which casino it was. I think it was the Venetian. He got arrested for a trespass violation. In fact, it was the Venetian. So he got busted for a trespass violation on the 27th of July. And then he gets out of jail. And he goes on Twitter. And he tweeted something that was later going to be a big problem for him. Which was taken as a terrorist threat. And I I knew as as soon as I saw this tweet that he was going to get arrested. It was obvious. It's something you definitely don't write these days unless you have a wish to get arrested. 
especially in Las Vegas, where they had that terrible mass shooting by Stephen Paddock in 2017. But uh, he tweeted out, let's get to this tweet here. This is on July 27th. Shootings are taking place all over Las Vegas. Please leave me alone, Venetian. I have no place to go currently. This is shortly after he got uh, trespassed from there. And all the casinos that have me banned will be destroyed effective immediately. And Rio, get my belongings together immediately when President of the United States declares safe, I'm going. Now, that last part makes no sense. He just kept tweeting, like, at POTUS. I'm not sure. It wasn't even clear from his tweets whether he supported or didn't support Donald Trump, but he just kept mentioning the president in that way. And he kept talking about something that was going to happen and it wasn't going to be safe, whatever. But the thing that got everyone concerned was all casinos that have me banned will be destroyed effective immediately. Now, I just learned today that there was a little more to the story. I already knew he had gotten banned somewhere that day. And I knew that tweet got him in trouble. But what I didn't know was that when he was arrested on the 27th, he also mumbled to himself, kill them all. And this was assumed from the tweet that he was referring to that he's going to destroy the Venetian for banning him earlier that day. Somehow, despite this, he got out of jail and was back on the street on July 31st, which is pretty amazing. I, if somebody asked me, could somebody tweet something like that, that they're going to destroy casinos after they had already behaved really erratically earlier that month and pulled their pants down in casinos and uh, at least twice, been in a mental hospital, and then later that month tweet something like that and get arrested, I would never believe it would be possible to be back on the street in four days. But he was. I don't even know when he was released. I just know four days later he was arrested again. He could have been out that same night. I I looked at the court website. It's kind of hard to understand whether he was released on the 27th or, or what. But he was out because he did two more things. He again went to a casino where he wasn't allowed to be on the 31st of July. And then he exposed himself again. And he got arrested for those as well. Now, those were the last arrests he's had. And it's unclear to me whether he was released after that. Or if uh, if he's been in jail ever since. Uh, from the court website, it makes it appear that every time he posted $50,000 bail and was out, but other things I'm seeing make it appear that he's not, so I don't know what to say. Uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal article that just came out yesterday does say that he was ordered held on $150,000 bail, and that would be the, on the court website I see there's like three different $50,000 bails that he was ordered to pay, so that's probably what that is, but I thought he was out. He was even given conditions that, that he can't go to the strip, he can't go downtown, he can't go to the casinos. Like, why even put that if he's not out of jail? But I guess, provided the Las Vegas Review Journal is correct, he is being held at the moment. And I, 
he's going to have to be he's going to be facing the charges of all these in September, early September. So on September 5th, he's going to be at a preliminary hearing for the most serious of the charges, which is uh, making terrorist threats and extortion. I think the extortion is not quite what you think. He wasn't demanding money. I think the extortion was that uh, he was extorting them. Any casino that's banned him, that he's basically saying, you unban me, you're going to get destroyed. And they're taking this as extortion. That he's making a threat of violence and demanding something be done in order to prevent that violence. I think that's why they're calling it extortion. So making terrorist threats and extortion, and that's the most serious of all the charges by far that he's going to be facing a preliminary hearing for on September 5th. The other two more minor ones, the misdemeanors of trespassing and engaging in lewd conduct in a public place, both from the incident on the 31st. Not the stuff at the World Series, not the Luxor, but whatever happened on the 31st, wherever that was. I don't even know which one it was. Uh, He'll be facing those charges on September 9th and 10th. I wonder what type of sentence he's going to ultimately receive and if he's going to be able to convince them that he's insane and simply be sent to a mental hospital to be released as soon as he proves himself sane. If you were to ask me is this guy sane or not? I wouldn't know. It's, it's kind of hard to tell. Part of me thinks that this is an act. I mean, he's obviously not completely sane, but is he insane to the point that he doesn't know what he's doing, to where insanity is a defense? Or is he just wanting to do this for attention? Because he was trying to get the media to interview him. He was trying to pretend like he's holding out for the the biggest place to interview him. I've had 300 requests to interview me, but I I want to do it with you, he told this one girl he's obsessed with who's in the media. It it seemed like he's trying to get attention and maybe somewhat faking insanity in order to get that attention and to excuse the behavior later when he ultimately gets in trouble for it, which has happened. So it's possible that's what's going on, and it's possible that his brain just really is not working correctly at all, and he has no idea which way is up. I know in Nevada they're very sensitive about threats like this because of what happened in that shooting at the concert outside the Mandalay Bay by Stephen Paddock, and that's the last place you should be making a threat like this. So you'd think that they're going to come down hard on him, but then again, he got out of jail in four days, which is amazing. Like, definitely he was out of jail within four days because he committed more crimes four days later. So maybe they're not taking it as seriously as I thought. If there ever was a case of not giving somebody bail, I would say this is it, where the guy's been acting super crazy, and he's saying casinos are going to be destroyed for banning him, and then you kick him loose? Why? So he can carry it out? Even if you want to say this is insanity, then you still don't kick him loose. You, you, you make sure that he's in a mental institution and that he's very thoroughly tested to make sure that he is no longer a danger to society. 
So the whole thing's been very strange. I don't quite understand it. So far, they've been far too lenient on him from what I can see. I would have thought from the very first time he showed his penis at the World Series, he was going to go to jail for it. I would have thought he would have been arrested. I can't even find any record of arrest from that day, either there or the Luxor. Yet people get arrested for much less at casinos. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Maybe they took pity on him at the time that he was just a mentally ill person. And they sent him to the mental hospital. But even if that's true, even if he is mentally ill, why why send him back on the street? Really odd. So we'll see. I'll let you guys know when there's further developments in this case. This has gotten a lot of attention recently because now it's getting reported in the mainstream media. In Vegas, in L.A., other places that have been reporting that he was indicted for this. But truthfully, uh, they kind of just found it after a long time. This has been ongoing ever since the 31st of July. And this September 5th court date was set, I think, on the 22nd of August. They just took a little while to find it. To me, this is not that much of news because it was pretty clear he was going to be indicted. It was pretty clear he was going to have to face charges for this. It was just a matter of when. But now it's hitting the mainstream news. and Everybody's saying, oh, you got to cover this. So, yeah, okay. I'm giving you the update. We will see what happens. I do have his phone number. He won't answer his phone. I presume he's in jail. But he posted his phone number in one of his tweets so uh, I before before he got arrested, I'm like, well, maybe we can get him on the show. Maybe we can just call him up. But let's see what happens if we call the number right now. The number which I'll give right now because it's still posted on Twitter by him seven zero two five two one eight one eight three. If you want to try it yourself, again, he posted it himself on Twitter and it's still there right now. So I feel very comfortable giving that out seven zero two. Five two one eight one eight three. So let's see what happens when we call that number. I'm sure he won't answer, but let's see what we get. Because why not? So it's calling. Skype forced me to update it, by the way. Sorry, but the person you called has a voicemail box that has not been set up yet. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) All right. As I said, I didn't expect it to be too exciting. We will monitor this, see what happens, and go from there. I forgot to tell you guys what happened to me of why this show is a day late. So let's get to that. I went to lunch on Wednesday with attorney Eric Benzamokin. We do that every so often, and that's actually where he gave me some money for the free roll that we're going to use next week. I always enjoy going to lunch with Eric, and it's a very uh, pleasant time there with him. I, I, I enjoy talking with him. We talk, we talk about a lot of subjects, and uh, it, everything was nice with the lunch, as it always is. I always enjoy meeting up with him. And then I left to go back home. seemed uh, very ordinary. I don't want to say that Eric himself is ordinary, but... The, Everything was as expected. And I felt fine 
and I ate my whole lunch. I, I had a, a salmon for lunch with two sides and drank a Coke with it. It's all pretty ordinary. Eric paid for it, by the way. Thank you to that. Uh, it's, it's always nice when I get a free lunch. Always nice. That's that's not what I, why I went. I would have gone to the lunch even if I had to pay my share, but Eric was very generous and uh, bought lunch for me. So we both get in our cars and drive our separate ways, and I didn't have very far. He, he met at about uh, a place about 10 minutes away from where I live, so it was going to be a short drive home. And right when I got on the freeway, which, again, I, I have a very short drive, Right when I got on the freeway, I started feeling like I needed to go to the bathroom real badly. Like, real badly. And, uh, by the way, a warning here. If you're eating right now, uh, turn off the show or fast-forward the segment. I, I, I don't like toilet humor. I'm, I'm not going to make this gross for the sake of being gross. But you're not going to want to listen to this segment if you're eating. I'm going to give you that warning here. But I, I'm not going to make it really gross or graphic because I, I hate when people just get gross with toilet-related stuff thinking that just because you're talking about stuff related to the toilet, it's funny. It isn't. I mean, like, if, if you're in second grade, then it's funny. If you're an adult, it shouldn't be funny unless there's actually something funny that occurs with it. So I'm driving home, and I, I know that I'm going to have to go to the bathroom real soon and that I have diarrhea. I can feel it. I can feel the pain and the pressure in my stomach. So I said, okay, well, I know what I'm going to be doing as soon as I get home. Thankfully, it's a short drive. Well, things escalated very quickly. Pain, very, very sharp pain started occurring in my abdomen. Worse than I'd ever felt. I've never felt pain that bad in my abdomen. I I felt worse pain in my life, but that was the worst abdominal pain I've ever felt in my life. Like shooting pains. And very, very heavy pressure. And I knew I had very little time to get to a toilet. No way I could drive home. There's no way. It's probably about eight minutes to get home at that point. No way I had eight minutes. So... Unless I wanted shit all over my car, I needed to get off the freeway and get to a bathroom super fast. And I'm just feeling terrible pain. I'm like doubled over in pain while I'm driving on the freeway to where I'm like even feeling unsafe. And I'm also thinking, oh, this will be so terrible if this just forces itself out. And what am I going to do? Like, you know, pull over on the side of the freeway and, and, and crap my pants? Like, I. I'm still trying at this point to avoid crapping my pants. And the pain was awful. The pressure was awful. This doesn't happen to me often. There were only two other times in my life where I felt such urgency. I've had it before where I have diarrhea and I, I feel the urgency to get to the bathroom. But it's only two times where it was super urgent, where it was going to force itself out if I didn't do something within a few minutes. The first time it happened to me was in 1989 in Israel. And I had eaten shawarma there in Israel for the first time. And it was very good. There were all these little stands on the street in Israel, mostly run by Arabs. And they'll sell falafel and and shawarma and 
my dad, who's actually from Israel originally, told me that this is very common there and that it's good. And so I tried one of these and I tried shawarma and I really liked it. So I, I was eating at these shawarma stands like a whole lot there. And everything was fine. And I was very happy with it. I was 17 at the time, in 1989. This is a family trip to Israel. This is my only time in Israel ever, still to date. I was going to go last year for the second time in my life, and then I developed those problems I had last year and could not take that trip. That whole thing had to be canceled. So, one of the days that I had eaten one of the shawarma stands, uh, it must have been bad meat which is not hard to believe because it's just a stand. I'm sure it doesn't have to be inspected by the health department or anything like that, so they probably will serve meat that hasn't been kept very well rather than throw it away. So I I must have eaten some bad shawarma. And we were out in like an open-air market-type place, and I just like what happened to me the other day, I felt this tremendous pain, tremendous pain. And pressure that I needed to go. And so I, I mentioned this to my dad. And he's like, well, there's no bathroom around here. Look, these are just little stands in an open-air market. There's nowhere that, no bathroom. I said, well, we have to get to one. I've got a few minutes here before the, at most before this is going to come out. Now, keep in mind, I had not crapped my pants since I was a very little kid. I mean, it's so long ago, I don't remember ever crapping my pants. Like, at least since age five, I had not crapped my pants. So we were here we are, we're at age 17, and I did not want to be in the middle of an open-air market in Israel and crap my pants. But I really only had a few minutes. And there, there was no time to get in a car and drive anywhere or anything like that. It was a, We had to find something there. But there was nothing. There, there weren't even – forget whether I could use the bathroom. There just were no bathrooms. So I'm looking, 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 looking. Well, way out in the distance, I see a very familiar sign, the Golden Arches. There's a McDonald's. So I said, look, a McDonald's. And I ran over there. I ran as fast as I could to get into McDonald's knowing there had to be a bathroom there. But I'm feeling the pressure. It it was really, really, really going to be a photo finish, whether I would make it in that bathroom in time. And running probably wasn't helping the matter either. So I get into the McDonald's, and I'm looking. I don't see a bathroom. Looking, 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 I don't see a bathroom. And so I I force my way up to the front. There's a big line of people to order food, and I say, where's the bathroom? And they go, oh, that's upstairs. Crap. So I, I turned around, and I darted up the stairs, And I saw the bathroom, and I ran in and went into the stall, and this could not have been closer. As I was pulling my pants down and sitting down on the seat, the second my ass hit the seat, it forced itself out. So I I kept my streak intact of not crapping my pants. It was, like, if the whole thing was, like, ten seconds slower, I would not have gotten in in time. That's how close it was. So that was the first time. The second time, you guys probably... Some of you know about this because I posted about it on Donk Down. And that was the Babies Are Us incident. Babies Are Us, which no longer exists, it was a, a babies store that was a branch of Toys R Us. We were in there shopping for baby stuff in uh, 2011. And I had just gone to El Pollo Loco. And something must have been wrong there. I had the same situation where I immediately had to use the bathroom. Well, good news, we were in a Babies R Us which actually has clearly marked bathrooms for people who uh, are shopping there. So I went in one, no problem. I go sit down 
And fortunately, this time, even though I had very little time to find a bathroom, since there was one there, I got to it very quickly, and there, was, there wasn't there was a situation where I was going to crap my pants. I, I couldn't have waited around there, but since there was a bathroom, I got into it in time, no problem. Except, right when I had sat down and done my business, I looked over, and there was very, very little toilet paper. I said, oh, no, this is exactly what I was afraid of. So what I did was said, okay, well, what do I do here? Like, there's barely anything here. If there was, if there's really no toilet paper, just about no toilet paper. There, there wasn't enough to, like, wipe my ass and even go asking for more and finish. Like, uh, there was just about nothing there. Either nothing or just about nothing. So I thought, oh, I know what I can do. I'll call the store. I have my cell phone on me. I'll call the store and tell them, hey, I'm in the bathroom. Can you bring some more toilet paper? Some people would have been embarrassed to make this call, but I'm not embarrassed to talk about bathroom stuff, and it wasn't that embarrassing. They just didn't stock it with toilet paper. So I called them. They answered. I said, can you please bring me toilet paper? And they said, okay. I said, okay, good. I was happy I made that decision to call them and ask for it. So... I'm waiting, 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 waiting. Nobody's coming. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Nobody's coming. So I called them again. And I said, uh, did you guys forget about me? They said, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're finding some. We're, we're having a little trouble finding some. We're going to bring it to you. But, you know, someone's coming right there. I go, okay. Waiting, waiting, waiting. I, I'm sitting here. By, by this point, it's been like 20 minutes I've been sitting waiting for the toilet paper. Just as I'm about to make another phone call, I hear the door open. And the guy walks up the stall and goes, hey, can you help me what stall you're in? I go, over here. So he comes over and and I said, well, can you throw it over? He says, okay. So he throws it over. He throws over this tiny roll that looked like, it was like a, like probably an eighth of a roll he throws me. A- another roll that's almost done. And I think, well, this isn't going to be enough either. Why? How come I waited 20 minutes for them to bring me like an eighth of a roll? Like, are they really that much out of toilet paper? And don't they sell toilet paper here? <laughs> I had seen that they sold toilet paper there. I don't know why, but they sold toilet paper at Baby's R Us. I had seen it. So I mentioned that to him. I said, hey, um, why did you give me something so small? And he says, oh, well, that's all we have. We're running out. I go, well, I, I just saw a display of toilet paper in the front. He says, oh, yeah, sorry. Okay, I'll go get you more. So you, you think if they're out of toilet paper for their bathrooms that they would open up one of those things that's for sale and just use it. So he disappears, doesn't come back, doesn't come back, doesn't come back. I had to make another phone call. And I asked them to, like, what the hell's going on? They bring me this tiny, like, eighth of a roll. Where's the bigger roll? So um, finally... They brought me another roll, which again wasn't a complete roll, but between everything I had there, I was able to uh, finish and get out. But by this point, I've been, I think I waited like over 30 minutes in there for all this, for them to bring me a freaking roll of toilet paper. So I go, what the hell happened here? And by the way, Benjamin's mom was there the whole time. She didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I don't think she had her cell phone with her. That's why I think I couldn't call her about it. But I found her and told her what happened. She was thinking this is outrageous. So I said, well, now I want to find out what happened. Now I'm pissed. And we were there to make a big order, order like hundreds of dollars worth of, worth of stuff, like a, a crib mattress and other stuff. We were 
getting there. So I, I found the manager. It was this uh, short lesbian who looked like she was once in a gang. Like the short Mexican lesbian looked like like a former gang member. Anyway, so I told her the story. And she says, well, I don't know what happened here. Uh, I told, you know, the guy who brought you the toilet paper, I told him to bring it to you. I don't know why he would have, uh, he would have only brought you a, that, that type of role. And I said, well, what about all my calls? Like, you were answering the phone, right? She said, yeah, but I thought he was taking care of it. But, like, she wasn't making a lot of sense about what had really happened there. And I said, well, how come you guys didn't open this role in the front? I'd like, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. You have this giant display of toilet paper. Why didn't you open up one of these and bring it to me? Because eventually her story was that they were searching, searching, searching to find a role to bring me. I go, you didn't see this right here? <laughs> and she says, oh, no, we know about this, but we couldn't open that because that would be stealing. And I said, what are you talking about? It's your own store. You, you're the manager. You don't have authorization to have them open up like a, a $2 package of, of, of a four-pack of toilet paper and bring one to me when you're out of what you usually use in the bathrooms? And she's starting to justify to me why it would be stealing. And I started getting really pissed, and I started getting suspicious that this whole thing was her fault and that maybe she was the one who was refusing to let them do it. Well, it turned out I was exactly right. It turned out that she was the one telling the guy, you know, the guy who was bringing me the toilet paper, he wanted to open up the, the, those rolls and, uh, from the very beginning, and she wouldn't let him and was demanding he go on a, like, an expedition through in their storerooms and into the ladies' room and try to figure out uh, if they can take something out of there. And uh, she was just demanding he do anything but take those rolls in the front. And when they couldn't find any, and finally I think that the one they gave me was something from the ladies' room, the second one they gave me. But uh, she was the reason for the whole delay. And she just kept telling him, no, 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 keep searching, keep searching. And, and he was apparently telling her, look, I'm getting really embarrassed. I've, I've been gone for so long. The guy's sitting here on the toilet with no toilet paper. Uh, please let me just bring him a roll from the front. And she just said, no, 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 keep searching, keep searching. And he was getting really embarrassed. And in fact, it, was, it turned out it was two different people who brought me the two rolls. Because w- when it came time to bring the second roll, the first guy said he was so embarrassed that he was not going to go bring me that second roll that uh, he refused to do it. He said that it's uh, it's embar- the whole thing is embarrassing. He doesn't want to come back in and do it, the, the way that you know leaving me so long there and, and and again bringing me something so small. But I didn't know all this. I suspected it, so I said, you know, this isn't making a lot of sense to me. I want to speak to the general manager. She says, well, she's not in right now. I said, well, can you call her? She says, oh, okay, sure. So she brings me to the back, and she makes a call. Now here, yeah. Hello? Yeah, yeah. And she explains the story. And I still call it, can I talk to her? She's like, and she holds her hand up. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, can I please talk to her? She's, she's like, yeah, in a second, in a second. Yeah, I know. He's just not very happy about it. Yeah, um, yeah, I know. I, know, I told him that. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I told him we couldn't open up those rolls. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, can I please talk to her? She's still holding her hand up. One second, please. It's like a, a one-up, like with her finger, like one second. Yeah, okay. Okay, bye. I go, what? Why did you hang up on her? I, I wanted to talk to her. She says, well, it's her day off. She doesn't really want to talk to customers today. Uh, she said not to put her on. I'm really sorry. I wanted to put you on, but she kept saying, no, don't put him on. And, and she told me that I did the right thing, that I wasn't supposed to open up the, the, the rolls there, and we, we, were, we were just supposed to search for what we're, we could find for you. And I go, so so. I, that's crazy. This is insane. Why, why? I can't talk to her about this. He's, 
no, she she didn't want to talk to you about this. She said I'm supposed to handle this, and you know, I'm the manager here right now, and and sorry, but but I can give you a discount on something. So she, she gave she ended up giving me some weak discount. I forgot what it was. Some crappy discount on what I was buying. And at first she was trying to give me like crappy free merchandise I didn't need. Or here, let me give you four diapers. Or like I'm like, no, I don't want four diapers. Like, it was like stupid stuff like that. She's trying to hand me like sample packs of diapers. I'm like, no, I don't need that. And like then she's like, well, let me find if I, about, what was that? How about a case of toilet paper? Right. <laughs> yes. And she's trying to like hand me like samples. And she's like, well, let me find this coupon. Oh, look, I found this twenty percent off coupon. I'm like. You're giving me coupons that are available to the public? I'm like, this is what you're giving me for this? So anyway, she, I finally browbeat her into giving me somewhat of a discount. But uh, it still wasn't anything. Uh, it was still something pretty weak. And it was, uh, I, I left feeling something was just really weird. Now, what's also weird is the fact that uh, preparing for the show, I, I made a, a mistake that I often make. I don't know why. But I, I always, putting this equipment together here, I, I forget something. And today, I, I forgot the charger to the computer. <laughs> so the computer's been ticking down in... Uh, it's been ticking down in power, and it's almost down to the bottom. So before I tell you the conclusion to this exciting story, I'm going to play you the Eric Benzamokin ad, and I'm going to go get the charger, and then I'll tell you the conclusion there. And then I'll tell you the conclusion of what happened to me this time. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. 
That's Eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. All right, we got our power. Everything's good. I'll give you the exciting conclusion to this story now. So I left thinking something was wrong. I left believing this manager was covering something up. I left believing this manager was the reason that I sat on my ass, literally, in a public toilet, waiting, waiting, waiting for toilet paper, because for whatever reason, she had a bug up her ass about opening up the for sale toilet papers in the store and decided to leave me sitting there till they could locate whatever rolls they had around. And then she didn't want to answer to it. What I couldn't figure out, though, was why the general manager was refusing to talk to me about it and why she was seemingly okay with the whole thing. And I sat there wondering what the hell just happened. Well, a few days later, I called up during the day. This occurred at night, by the way. But I, I called up during the day on a weekday and asked for the general manager. And she was not there. But the assistant general manager, someone else who wasn't present when this all happened, but someone above that uh, acting manager who, who did all this, I told her the story. And she said, this is crazy. This is outrageous. I, I never heard about this. And I said, well, are you sure you just didn't hear about it because you weren't working at the time? She says, no, no, no. Believe me, I would have heard about something like this. I don't believe that the general manager was ever told about this. And I go, well, no, she was. I was there on the phone call. I was there when she was called. She says, well, that's weird because I'm the one who's the supervisor of the girl you dealt with. And for sure... There would have been a talk about this. Whether you were right or wrong, and I think you're right, she told me, but whether you were right or wrong, we definitely would have talked about this and the proper thing to have done. And definitely the proper thing to have done would have been to open up something in the store. It's obvious that was the right thing to do, she told me. And I have not been told about this, which is weird because I would have been the one told to meet with this other employee who you dealt with. So the fact that I don't know makes me think that the general manager was never spoken to. Like, well, that's so weird because she called her right in front of me. She says, well, I'm going to let her know about this, and then we're going to look into this and call you back. I said, okay, thank you. So I got a call back from the general manager. Troy Daruski, what do you think the general manager said? Do you know this story already? I, I don't know the story, but I'm assuming they were never called. So who, who were they calling there when I was watching it? Well, she probably just called nine or 411 or something. Yeah, she, what she did was she, you're right, very close. She called up a friend, and uh, I don't know if she texted them before. Something where she called up a friend and just talked, and the friend just sat there, and was she was faking what the other side was saying. Like, no, 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 I told them that. Like, you know, the friend's really just saying nothing. So she really had not called the general manager because she realized she screwed up. She realized that this would make her look really bad that a customer who was there to spend a lot of money that this happened to. And she decided to fake a call to the general manager and end the call with the general manager supposedly telling her to handle this and that she was refusing to talk to me. It was her only hope of covering up the situation. The only thing I never figured out was why was she the protector of the toilet paper for sale? Why was it so important to protect the toilet paper for this for sale? 
But I, the only thing I could come to, the only conclusion I could come to is that sometimes acting managers, you know, ones who aren't really the managers of the place but are in charge at the moment because it's an off hour, sometimes they just get kind of a power trip going on and they just decide something's going to be done a certain way and nobody's going to overrule them and no one's going to change their mind nor do they want to rethink their decision. And then they just run with it, sometimes to the peril of their own job. So, like... If she opened up one of the toilet papers, I, I don't think she was afraid she's going to get fired for doing that. I think she just decided, no, screw this guy. He can wait till we find toilet paper. And then when it became a very long wait where they couldn't find toilet paper, she just didn't want to back down. And she just got really stubborn. And then once I came out livid about it, then she knew there was going to be a problem. And first she tried to blame the other employees. And then when she knew I wanted to talk to the general manager and the truth would come out, that she invented that whole thing. So... Even though she didn't have to do this and probably shouldn't have done this, the general manager was so furious about this when she called me, furious at that employee, that she basically went off on the whole thing. She said, I'm going to tell you the whole truth. The whole truth is that that call to me was faked. She really just called up a friend and, and, and just talked as if she was talking to me. I knew nothing about this. It was covered up on purpose. I brought her in, and I asked her about it. At first, she tried to lie, but then when I told her that I know, she finally confessed that, yes, she had held back opening up those toilet papers in the front, that she couldn't explain why, that uh, the guy who brought you the toilet paper wanted to open it up at the very beginning, and she wouldn't let him, that she threatened to fire him if he did, and uh, she threatened every employee that no one is to open that up, and the, the second someone opens that up, they get fired. And that's why she let you sit, left, the, left you sitting there for so long. And then when you got mad about it, was afraid you'd report her. And then that's why she made the phony phone call. And she says, I am furious. I cannot tell you. Not only does it look terrible for the store that this happened, but that uh, for her to have the nerve to fake a phone call with me and pretend that I'm refusing to speak to you is, is, is uh, making – she can't, I, say, I can't tell you how mad I am about this. And let me tell you there's going to be consequences here. So I never got to find out if that girl was fired or not. It sounded like that she was going to get fired over this, which she should have, by the way. If you're, if you're going to fake the general manager, if you're going to fake a call with the general manager to avoid getting in trouble, you deserve to get fired. Everything else aside, forget, forget leaving me on the toilet for 35 minutes. If you're going to fake a call to the general manager because you don't want to get in trouble, where you're actually picking up a phone and calling someone and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, no, I'm to- I told them that, no, I told them that. Yeah, okay, you don't want to talk to him? Okay, bye. Like, if you're going to do that and you get caught, you should be fired. No question. On the spot fired. But she was furious about it. So I said, okay, well, I appreciate you looking into it. I appreciate that you told me the whole truth about what happened. Um, I'm just curious, though, at this point, uh, is there something you can do for me that I, I went through this whole mess here? And I got lied to and manipulated like this. Just to save... $2 package of toilet paper in the front. So she said, well, let me let me take a look at your order. And so she, she looked at the whole thing, and then she said, okay, um, I see your order was uh, like $310. Uh, how about I just credit back 200 to your card? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting $200. Wow, I was going to say, 100 you'd have been thrilled. Right, right. She said 100 I would have been thinking this is sweet. But uh, she said 200 Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Okay, thank you very much. So I got 200 back. I posted this story to the Donk Down forum, which I was part of at the time. This is kind of my ending days on Donk Down. 
and the trolls there just really gave it to me. It, it, like everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people were trying to tell me I was wrong in this situation, and I said, "What? How was I wrong?" And they said, "Well, you should have made do." I said, "Made do with what? There wasn't toilet paper." Well, you sh- you should have you should have managed to do something. You should have gotten up and gotten paper towels. I go first of all. You've had diarrhea before, haven't you? Like, if you stand up, it's going to drip. You don't want to stand, even stand up with that toilet paper. Well, you've just got to suck it up and do it. I go, no, I'll just call the front. No, calling the front is embarrassing. I go, why? We're adults here. We don't have to giggle. It's about, ha, 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 toilet paper, ha, ha, ha. Like, no, it's, hey, you guys, hey, hey, you guys uh, this bathroom doesn't have toilet paper. I'm here in the toilet. Can you please bring me some? Like, yeah, if you're in second grade, you're going to laugh about it. <laughs> this guy has no toilet paper and he's sitting there t- taking a crap. Yeah, adults shouldn't be laughing about this. Adults should say, oh, I'm sorry that there was no toilet paper back. Let me, let me go bring you some. It's not, it's not a laughing matter. It's not a thing you should be embarrassed to do. If you are embarrassed to make that call, that's fine. But I wasn't embarrassed to make the call, and nor should I have been. It's not like I, I went in the store and screamed, hey, everybody, uh, can someone find toilet paper for me? My, you know, my ass needs to be wiped. It's not like I went out and yelled that in the store. I, I'm making a phone call, a discreet phone call. There's no one else in the bathroom, just me. And uh, there's nothing embarrassing. So the people, I have idiots there trying to tell me I should have just made do. Then when they brought me that tiny roll that you could barely wipe with, they're, they're telling me that's enough. And I'm like, no, it's not. There is no way. It's, it's a mess. Like, I didn't want to get into specifics, but you guys know. Come on. You, I couldn't have wiped with that. So the point is they should have brought me enough. And, and it became like... It's not like uh, they say, hey, you know, you can either wait 35 minutes or, or you know, find something else. Like, I kept thinking they're coming back. I kept going, come on, come on, when's it going to happen, when's it going to happen? It's just like time kept ticking away, and I kept thinking, okay, at some point they've got to come back, right? And I kept calling to the front. Like, it didn't – this was not my fault at all. I, I did what I could. Well, and it should have been in there in the first place. Right, and it should That's have been – That's another in the... thing the manager's not fucking taking care of. Right, right. So – uh like, this wasn't my fault. I, I had to make some decisions at the time, and I didn't decide anything outrageous. I was trying to call the front saying, hey, bring me toilet paper, and then it doesn't come. Then it's this tiny thing that I can barely use, and I go, okay, well, hey, can you bring more? Because I don't know why you brought me, like, an eighth of a roll. Um, okay, uh, we'll bring another one. Then they don't show up again. Like, what am I supposed to do? How's this my fault? I even had idiots telling me that uh, when I that, that I should have just uh, pulled my pants up, let, let, let it soil my pants and underwear, and, and just left the store and gone home. I said, why? Well, because so you don't have to make that embarrassing call up front. What embarrassing call? Like, I, I sat there for probably 20 pages arguing with people. Some were trolling me. Some were just trying to say it to get my goat and get me upset. Uh, but, but some really were believing. I could tell. Some of them were really believing that I handled this wrong. Then I had some of them saying, $200, you know, how dare you take that for, for this little thing? Come on, $200 because you were left on a toilet? I go... I didn't say I deserve $200. I wasn't saying $200 or, or I'm not satisfied. I asked them, oh, can you give me something, which I, I think something was warranted given that I spent over 300 bucks there and this, they treated me this way, and I was lied to. It was a fake phone call to the general manager, and, and they offered me 200 well, I was going to say, no, that's too much. Give me 100 Give me 50 No, I, this is a, it's not like i got to worry about a mom-and-pop store going out of business. It's Toys R Us. They're not going to go. Okay, they did go out of business, but not because of me. So that was that was one where, yes, when I posted it, I knew I was going to get trolls and I knew I was opening myself up to a lot of people making jokes and stuff. And I was doing this for the entertainment of the forum. That's why I posted it there. I wasn't trying to post it and make some kind of statement against Baby's RS. But 
I was surprised of the, of the number of people that seriously believed I did something wrong and the people who still had hangups about the bathroom in their 40s. People who still think you, you can't mention anything bathroom because everyone's going to giggle. You should be embarrassed. Um, I admit I'd be embarrassed if I crapped my pants and I'm walking around with, with, with crap in my pants and people could see it or smell it. That would be embarrassing. Because pe- people don't know what happened there. People may think, oh, look at this guy. He's, you know, what's this adult doing crapping his pants? Like, they're, that's embarrassing. But, but calling up and saying, hey, I'm on the toilet. You're out of toilet paper. That's not embarrassing. So that, uh, that's uh, what happened there. Let's get back to this one here. That was my second time of the urgency. Th- this one here, I did make it into the... Uh, so, so, well, actually, I skipped ahead here. So I'm looking, I'm going, crap, I- I've got to get off this freeway and I've got to find somewhere to go. And I knew I couldn't stop in like a mom and pop business and say, hey, let me use your toilet. I, I-, I had to stop somewhere where I could just go in and use the toilet without being a customer there. So I thought of where you can do that. The gas station... But then you've got some nice hassle with getting a key, and sometimes it's locked, and there's one person in it already. So a gas station is not ideal. Fast food, that's a good one. But I was thinking where fast food was, and I just wasn't too close to anything at the moment. And hotels, which like chain hotels with a lobby you can go into. But again, I wasn't that close to one of those. And then I thought of something. The library. There was a library that was fairly close by. So I got off the exit where the library is. And fortunately, I made the two green lights to get to the library on time. And I pulled into the library, got out of my car, ran in, still like in severe pain. And fortunately, I made it. So I did my business there in the library. There was enough toilet paper. But I noticed something. And that was unlike other times when this has happened or other times when I've had some kind of stomach issue and had to make diarrhea. After I had gone, I did not have that much of a sense of relief. I didn't have the sharp pains anymore, but I did not have relief like, oh, I feel better now. It was like still painful. And I still had kind of a sick feeling. I'm like, oh, crap, this is not over. So I figured I got food poisoning from the salmon. I think much like uh, in the movie Airplane... It was the fish. I texted Eric and asked him if he got any kind of uh, sickness here, and he said no, but he did not order the salmon. So, I I don't know. I think it probably was the fish, the salmon that I ordered. And because we ate at about uh, 2 o'clock, I think that's what happened. I think maybe... Some of the salmon was sitting out for a while during the lunch hour. It tasted fine. I ate all of it. It tasted fine. There's nothing wrong with how it tasted. But I have a feeling the fact that we were eating like shortly after the traditional lunch hour, uh, maybe something sat out too long. Maybe they left a bunch of salmon out to prepare and it went bad. Something happened here. I, I'm pretty sure it was the salmon because I felt completely fine prior to this meal. And then it became just this horrible pain in my stomach. And the intense urgency to get to the bathroom. And I, I remained sick, so I, I knew that it was a good chance I was going to miss radio yesterday. And so I never threw up, but uh, I, I didn't feel good. I felt like drained of energy. I had a lot of still like kind of medium level pain in my stomach. And uh, when I woke up on Thursday morning, I, I knew I was not going to 
be quite good enough to do radio, but I, I, I noticed it, was, it improved a little bit. I had no appetite the night before either. My, my appetite was like gone. But I woke up with some appetite, and I woke up not as bad as the day before. Not that much improved yet, but I could tell what's going in the right direction. So I figured, give it another day, it'll be a lot better. And it was. So I'm not 100% better yet, but I'm close. And I do not get food poisoning very often. I can't prove it's food poisoning. I didn't even bother calling the place because they won't admit it, so why bother? And I can't prove it. But I, I haven't gotten food poisoning very often in my life. Very few times. Probably, at most, this is the third time. In fact, I've had it before where I've gone somewhere and everyone else who ate with me got food poisoning and I didn't. Because I ordered something different and I, and I got lucky and didn't get it. So this time it was me who got the food poisoning and the person I was eating with did not. And the co-pilot had fish. What did the navigator have? He had fish. All right. Now we know what we're up against. Every passenger in this plane will have fish for dinner. We'll become violently ill in the next half hour. Just how serious is it, Doctor? Extremely serious. Starts with a slight fever, dryness of the throat. As the virus penetrates red blood cells, the victim becomes dizzy. Because we experience an itching, a rash. From there, the poison goes to work on the central nervous system, causing severe muscle spasms, followed by the inevitable grueling. At this point, the entire digestive system collapses, accompanied by uncontrollable flatulence, until finally the poor bastard is reduced to a quivering, wasted piece of jelly. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, let's get on to our next topic. Wouldn't you say that's a good excuse for missing the show? I think it is. Absolutely. And Truff, you cut off for me for the last, I don't know, 60 seconds oh, on the yeah, blue I, 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 I was, was trying to turn a, the radio. I was but... playing a sound effect. Oh, playing... you were. Okay, yeah, okay. Let, let, me, let me reset it. it. It's, Skype, Skype claims you can hear it, but I guess uh, that died. So, Yeah, no worries. As long as everybody else heard. Okay. Uh, I was hoping you'd hear that. I, I played the, the clip from Airplane about the fish. All righty, so... Now that we're done with that topic... Let's flesh that one and move on. Did you hear that? You forgot to mute, Truff. You told me you were going to do the show from the bathroom tonight. <laughs> okay, so let's go to the chat room. Disposition said, what happened to the no graphic content? I didn't say no graphic content. I said I tried to keep it to a minimum. Uh... Disposition says 20 people entered the bathroom and left while Druff was on the phone arguing. That's not true. Nobody Actually, nobody entered during that whole thing. He said, funny how you don't complain when you get more than you, sh- you think you should. Well, who am I going to complain to? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to turn it down. And that's the way it goes. It's not like I stole it. The general manager offered it to me. Why not use napkins in the bathroom as a quick quick fix? There were none. He's referring to the paper towels. Yeah, someone asked that in the thread. First of all, I didn't want to stand up again with things dripping. But uh, even if I could, this is one of those bathrooms with one of those annoying air dryers, which I hate. They never get them completely dry. I hate those things. But that that's what was there. All right. I knew there would be comments in the chat room about this. That's why I took a look here. 
let's move on to the topic of an update of the Nick Marchington lawsuit story. If you remember last week, we talked about Seabiscuit Stables, which I have dealt with. It's a staking company, also offers rakeback. They've offered me rakeback, and I've dealt with them. They've always been reputable with me. But they sued final tableist Nick Marchington for 10% of his World Series of Poker winnings, which were well over a million dollars, because he had sold 10% to them, then canceled the stake before he started playing because he decided that he could sell it to someone else for higher markup and did. And they were very angry about this. They agreed to the refund in protest, but I guess they were afraid they wouldn't get the money at all. So they uh, they agreed reluctantly, but in protest and sent him an angry message about how non-standard this was, which was correct, and he was a scumbag to do that. But then when he went on to finish in seventh place, they felt they still had a piece of him and sued him. Attorney Eric Benzamokin heard that segment on, in the archives and told me that this was a nuisance lawsuit where they were not expecting to win the 10%, but figured that uh, not wanting to defend the lawsuit, that Marchington would probably settle with them for something like 20 or 30K, and that that was their goal. And it was basically a lawsuit saying F you to the guy for what he did to them, which, which I agree with, and I, I, I didn't say it was a nuisance lawsuit, I was saying that it's, uh, they're doing it out of spite. But he brings up a good point, too, that uh, they were probably doing this with the intention to settle. They weren't expecting to win. They knew they really had no legal standing, because they don't, because they agreed that it was canceled. But as I said when I did the segment last week, you can't feel sorry for Nick Marchington because he was a scumbag. He may have done something that was legal, but it was an asshole thing to do. So when they hit him with a nuisance lawsuit, which is frivolous, I don't feel bad for him. It's like when bad things happen to bad people. So I felt he should win the lawsuit, Marchington, but I wasn't feeling sorry for him that he was having to deal with this. This is what you get when you don't act ethically with people who are staking you. You you don't uh, agree to a stake and then... Cancel it the second you find someone else who's willing to pay more. That was really crappy to do. Anyway, the small update to this whole thing is that they actually got the World Series of Poker to hold up that 10% to where Marchington could only get 90% of what he had cashed. And someone had asked in uh, the forum... How could this have been done? Like, can you just go up and get this done to anyone? Can you just see someone who's about to cash and say, "Hey, uh, Rio, hold up that guy's cash because he owes you money. He owes me money." Well, it's not that simple. You can't just force the World Series of Poker to hold up someone else's cash. And I don't think that they canceled his check. I don't think they stopped his check. I think what probably happened was they saw how far Marchington was getting. Remember, the World Series of Poker main event takes a very long time. When the whole thing was over, it was about two weeks after it started. So once they saw Marchington was getting deep, they probably quickly filed this lawsuit and quickly demanded that whatever he cashes, that 10% gets held up. So it's not like they filed this the second he uh, finished seventh. And 
I, I think they did it beforehand and uh, and got this got this done. And this is something that you have to get done through the court system. If we had Eric on, he could tell us the exact mechanism through the court system to do it. But you do have to go through the court system to get the Rio to hold this up. You can't just go to the Rio and say, hey, such and such person owes me money. Hold up, hold up this payment until we get this uh, rectified. It's, this has to be done through legal means, and this was done. But this was reviewed again, and it has been released. So Marshington got the final 10%. Now, does this mean that Seabiscuit Stables has lost the lawsuit? No. The lawsuit has not been heard yet. Just a, a change has been made in whether that 10% had to be held up by the Rio. So if he has all the money now, then does that really affect the case? No, but it may affect the ability to collect. If uh, Marchington, for example, pretends he lost all the money he won, or just simply makes it very difficult to collect and hides it somewhere, then they may have a difficult time collecting from him, even if they do win. Especially given that uh, I don't believe that uh, Marchington is an American citizen. Let me see. Where is he from? Yeah, he's from the UK. That's what I thought. So this may be difficult to get the money out of him since he's not an American citizen. And he may just refuse to pay and they may have a hard time getting it from him. So he's got to be happy that he collected the remaining the remainder of the winnings because now he can make it a headache for them to collect whatever they win. But I don't think they're going to win anything. If I were Marchington, I would see this through to the end just because I would know how right I am and there's like zero chance I'll lose this. Like all the evidence basically supports him legally. So I would see this through the end and if I have to pay some money for to a lawyer to make it happen then fine. You know, fortunately for him he just won over 1.5 million. So he can afford to pay a little to a lawyer just to give them the middle finger. Uh, as is common, Mac Verstandig is involved in this. He's an attorney who frequently gets involved in poker-related lawsuits. He is one of the attorneys representing Marchington. He would not give comment, though, when Poker News tried to ask Verstandig for a comment on the matter, only that a local judge cleared the final 152500 to be released to Marchington. So now any money won by Seabiscuit would have to be collected through standard uh, collection procedures, which may be difficult given that he's not a U.S. citizen. So we will see what happens from there. They may end up dropping the lawsuit. I don't know. They may just decide, hey, we're going to push this as far as we can. Eric pointed out that it's very unlikely that they found an attorney to take this on contingency because the, the case is so poor. I agree. This is a very bad case. And I can't see any attorney wanting to waste his time with this because attorneys only take things on contingency when they think the chance to win is fairly good. Attorneys who take cases on contingency only get paid if they win. So if an attorney thinks there's a 2% chance they're going to win, they're not going to waste their time with it, unless it's a tremendously large case. If it's like 2% chance of, of winning millions of dollars, then yeah, it may be worth their time. If, if it's a 2% chance of winning 
150000 that's not worth his time. So they're probably paying an attorney to file this lawsuit. And that's another reason for Washington just to say, well, I'm going to defend it. Because you have to think of the other side. It's a, the whole legal system can be a mess and it can be very frustrating to be involved with. And a lot of times you're playing chicken with the other side. And one of the decisions you have to make when deciding whether you're going to defend a lawsuit if you're being sued is how much is the other side suffering in their attempt to bring on the suit? Are they paying an expensive lawyer hourly, which really adds up very fast? Or do they have someone working on contingency where basically uh, that person can put in a ton of legal work and it won't cost them anymore? And in fact, it's not costing them anything. And you've got to pay to defend it hourly. And at that point, you may say, okay, well, I think I better settle here. But if the other side you know is probably paying an attorney per hour, you know there's only so much money they're willing to put into it. However, if you are up against someone who has so much money that they will just sink whatever that they need to sink into it to see the lawsuit to the end, even a bad lawsuit, then again, you may want to think about settling. But of course, there's the moral decision you have to make of, do I want to settle with someone who I feel is hitting me with a frivolous lawsuit? Maybe it is worth it for you to spend a lot of money to not have to pay someone to try to do that to you. A lot of decisions that have to be made, and it's, it's very unpleasant. Did Eric say he'd be able to sue uh, for, for um, attorney's fees if he, lo- if he won? No, I didn't ask him that. We should have had him on for this. I don't know. We, we always try to say, well, what would Eric say here? But uh, no, he didn't, we didn't discuss that. But he did, he did bring up how it was unlikely that a contingency attorney is taking this. And yeah, that makes sense to me, too. <laughs> this is not a good case. And what about morally? I know we discussed this last week, but morally. Who do I think should get paid? I still think that Marchington shouldn't have to pay morally. Just like I don't think that Seabiscuit should have been on the hook for 10% of the buy-in had Marchington not cashed. But at the same time, I I think that it should be known in poker that Marchington was a scumbag about this. And he should be looked down upon for this and shamed for this. And that was a crappy thing to do. That's very non-standard. You just don't do this. If you're getting staked, then and you have a staking agreement in place, especially with a reputable staking company as Seabiscuit was, they've been around forever, I've never heard any complaints about them, then even if you get a better deal later, tough luck. You stick with what you agreed to. Even if you can legally back out of it. You st- you st- and the truth is, they could have refused to cancel it. Then they would have been having a right to the 10%. But they agreed to cancel it probably out of fear that he was not going to pay them otherwise. Because he was only 21. And what was it? An extra 300 bucks he got or something? Um, he claimed he sold it at... Let me think of this. They bought it at 1.2. It was an extra 500. They they bought it for 1,200, and then he was able to resell it for 1,700. So he got someone to pay the 1.7 markup on uh, that 10%. So he gave them back the 1,200, and he got back 1,700. So he only got 500 bucks extra out of the whole thing. 
but he told them he was having to right. Pay. So for five hundred bucks to ruin your whole reputation, I mean, just to not you know in the backing community, right? And, and I think that's, that's just so dumb. And, and they even told them they they told them that you can see in the text messages back and forth. They told them they're going to expose this, and I th- I think what they were worried about is if he's willing to do this and ruin his reputation for five hundred bucks, that uh, maybe he's just going to screw them if they say no. So I think they just kind of wanted out at that point, but were, were really pissed. They wanted their money back because they didn't trust them anymore, but they were pissed. That's that's what I think happened. But still, if they've agreed to cancel it, then it's been canceled. I, I think that they just – it was canceled, and then they should just expose the hell out of them. That's, that's, and I, I see why they're mad now that he finished seventh, but on the other hand, if he didn't cash, they would have been happy. They would have said, okay, well, we saved 1200 bucks." So once you're not backing him, you're not backing him. But at the same time, as I said, he's – he was a piece of crap to do this, and he he deserves no sympathy, no sympathy at all. And I, I I've watched all these people on Twitter bash Seabiscuit and say, um, "Oh, they're pieces of shit. They shouldn't be doing this." But I'm like, you know, really, I don't think they should win the lawsuit. Well, but- I agree. I kind of, I don't know, Jeff, because it is kind of look the guy. If the if the five hundred bucks at that point was so important to him, he must have had a horrible trip. You know, and they agreed to it before, they're upset, but whatever. I mean, unless they're saying, oh, we put hours of research into this kid, this is costing us a fortune. You know, whether he won or, not, or went deep or not shouldn't even be consequential. It's just, you, you know? can say that, but, but once, once you see it, once you see it happen, or this guy that you were supposed to have 10% of gets to the final table, and you're like, oh, my God. This is so unfair. This is such bullshit. We should have had this, and we did have this, and we were basically forced to drop it. I, I, I can see why they're so mad, and uh, I, I would be really mad too. I would be – when you do something crappy and then really piss someone off, then when they come back and do something crappy to you, you really don't have a right to cry foul. That's, that's what I'm saying here. It's, that's, that's why I, I don't feel sorry for him at all, and I don't feel he should lose the lawsuit. The law is the law. But I don't feel sorry for him one bit. And and this tweet he put out there about how this has ruined a, a moment that's supposed to be special for him. I'm like, come on. You you ruined the moment by being a jerk. <laughs> that's, what, that's what happened. He, that's the reason the, the moment got ruined. So uh, that's, that's my opinion. There's a lot of different opinions on this one. It's kind of an interesting story. Uh, and uh, apparently, along the lines of... Uh, Good things happening to bad people. He just got fifth place at the EPT Barcelona. So I wonder if he had any stake. What did that pay? I'm not sure. Someone posted it in the thread. I didn't bother to look. But, yeah. It's going well for him. It's, it's, It's funny when people don't act ethically and then they just start doing super well in tournaments. It's like, so much for karma. It's like reverse karma. All right, uh, that, that's the update. With that, I'll let you know what happens further with this lawsuit. It will have some conclusion, probably not soon. These things can t- tend to drag out unless there is some settlement, but I have a feeling Martin is not going to settle. I think he's probably for Standix telling him this is a crap case, it's never going to win. So I have a feeling he's just going to stubbornly defend it until they give up and stop spending money, wasting money on an attorney. That's That's probably what I would do in his shoes, too. I just wouldn't want to pay them off. I, like, I understand why he's pissed at them, too. It's his fault this whole thing happened, but I understand why he's pissed at them for hitting him, hitting him with a frivolous lawsuit to get back at him, which is what they're doing. 
Okay, so I, I'm going to go to a totally different topic now. And this is by request, if you're wondering why now. This is about the history of online poker from a legalization standpoint. And before you grab a pillow and say, okay, perfect segment to put me to sleep. This is something that is very misunderstood by people. And I think you should understand it if you have any interest at all in either playing online poker or just the history of online poker or you're curious about the future of online poker. This will probably be interesting to you. And I think this is a a needed segment because this is so poorly understood. And I know this because I have conversations with people and they just aren't seeing it correctly. I talk to people I know. I go to the World Series and sit at the table and people talk about it with me. And there really is just such a poor understanding of the whole thing. And I really would hope that after people listen to the segment that they will understand it better. So let's go back to the very, very beginning. I believe Planet Poker was the very first online poker site. And I think it launched in 98, possibly 99. I wasn't playing online poker then. In fact, I I wasn't even playing poker then. 98 or 99, Planet Poker launched as the first online card room for money. At the point it launched, it was considered a gray market site, meaning that it was not illegal explicitly, and it was not legal explicitly. It was kind of up in the air. It was something that there there was no regulation for, there was no law permitting it, but it was kind of hard to find a specific law against it. This is because the internet was still kind of uh, new at this point to most people. The internet, as used by the general public, had only been around for uh, about four or five years by that point, even though the internet itself goes all the way back to 1969, known as ARPANET. Uh, The mass public got on it around 94, 95. So law involving the internet was very immature at that point. So in 98, 99, as far as online gambling was concerned... It just, it was one of these things that if you asked me at the time, is this legal or illegal, I would have said illegal. But the truth was that it was kind of hard to nail down a law that was making it illegal at the time. There were some laws like the 1961 Wire Act, which could have possibly been stretched to include online poker, but it wasn't explicitly illegal yet. And while those who were running online poker sites were taking a chance by doing so, They weren't taking as big of a chance then as I assumed they were. And in fact, had I known this, I probably would have started one myself. I never considered doing this because I assumed it was illegal enough to where I was risking significant prison time. The truth is that I could have run something prior to 2006 and not gone to prison and made a lot of money. But... You know what they say about hindsight. So I can't regret that too much. At the time, at the very beginning of online poker, it was using a model that would continue to be the model for a long time in some form. And that would be that you would deposit with some payment method, usually a credit card, but sometimes other things. 
And then when you would get paid, they would send you a check or at the very beginning until this got stopped by the credit card companies, they would actually credit back your credit card. Believe it or not, I actually cashed out a few times from Planet Poker in 01 with a credit back to my credit card. But the credit card companies clamped down on that pretty fast. The biggest challenge in those days, payment-wise, was the fact that credit cards started to clamp down on online gambling and saying, we just don't want a part of it. Because what would happen was that people would lose money online gambling and try to charge it back. Oh, I was being cheated. Oh, I didn't authorize this purchase. Oh, it was actually my my 13-year-old son who did it, and he can't authorize it, so charge it back. So they, they were so tired of the chargebacks that a lot of credit cards just every time an online poker transaction would come through or any kind of online gambling, they would reject it. So it was getting harder and harder to find credit cards that would work on these sites. For a little time, PayPal was usable to deposit to online poker sites. But PayPal got out of the online poker site partnership or uh, allowance of those being uh, that being used as a payment method for that same reason. That also happened around like 01, 02. Online poker was making money and growing, but the poker boom had not occurred yet because there was no poker on TV yet. You couldn't see whole cards. I mean, I think occasionally they'd show the World Series of Poker or something, but there was no poker every night on TV. There was not a player known as Chris Moneymaker who was a main event champion. Chris Moneymaker existed, but he was just an accountant who, I don't even know if he played poker yet at that point. And Poker was not something that was a fad or something very popular in the country and the world yet. It was something that was done as a kind of niche hobby. Even online poker wasn't changing that so much. It was in 2003 from the combination of poker appearing on TV all over the place and the whole cards you could see, which really got people excited and wanting to play themselves, and Chris Moneymaker and Everyman the opposite of a pro, just an average accountant who won his way into the main event with a $40 satellite on PokerStars who went on to win the main event for $2.5 million. And everybody looked at Chris Moneymaker and said, this could be me. This guy is nothing special. This guy doesn't seem like a, a poker prodigy or, or, or a grizzled pro. This is just a regular guy who gave a shot, got lucky, and got $2.5 million. Hey, I could do that just like him. And poker exploded. But what about the legalization? It was still the same. But poker got much bigger. Got bigger and bigger. And pretty soon there were some mega sites with massive traffic. Party poker, which had existed since 01, exploded and became huge. Poker stars, which started in 02, introduced tournaments online, which hadn't existed before, and tournaments were wildly popular online, and then they would drive cash traffic, because people would win in the tournaments and then go play cash, and PokerStars exploded. They also had great software and great customer support. And other sites sprung up, like UltimateBet, like Absolute Poker, like many others. Some even sprung up in other countries that didn't take U.S. customers. A few of them like Ladbrokes, 
There were some that sprung up in other countries that did take U.S. customers, like the Cryptologic Network, the Boss Media Network, and, and many others. The question still remained at that point, was it legal or was it illegal? And in the meantime, there were a lot of attempts by certain lawmakers to explicitly make it illegal, because by this point, poker had everyone's attention. Poker was on TV every night. There were movies about poker, movies that weren't even about poker that made sure to include a poker scene because poker was so popular. Everyone was talking about poker. People who were good poker players became celebrities. I can tell you, when I won my bracelet in 05, all these people came out of the woodwork who weren't even poker players that knew me from the past and contacted me like, oh, wow, I know this celebrity. Like, I became a celebrity to some of these people that knew me in the past just because I won a World Series of Poker bracelet. I'm not kidding. I got all these people contacting me when they saw this on the Card Player website. Uh, event number 36, uh, 3,000 Limit Hold'em winner Todd Wittellos. Oh, I remember Todd Wittellos from such and such, and they'd, they'd contact me in some way. And they were, they were very excited to be talking to me again. Where Had I not won that bracelet, they wouldn't have been. <laughs> they wouldn't have contacted me. But people, people came out of the woodwork and contacted me because I won a World Series bracelet and because poker was such a big deal at the time that made you something special in many people's eyes. It was a weird time. But the question remained, was online poker legal? Well, the legal status was good enough to where even the World Series of Poker, which was owned by Caesars by this point, it was bought in 04, so Caesars owned it, and moved it to the Rio in 05, they were actually allowing sites like PokerStars to buy people directly in. So poker stars would run satellites to the World Series of Poker. And then poker stars would actually hand you your tournament ticket. They'd have representatives at the World Series. You'd go to the desk and the poker stars employee would hand you your World Series ticket. Can you imagine? That was really happening. They had kind of a partnership with these sites to where they would actually issue your ticket to these sites to give to you. Nowadays, nobody can buy you in except for you. It's been that way for a long time. I got one of those, and they gave you a whole bag of stuff. Right. <laughs> right. They'd have like the a room and everything else. Right. And, and they, they have packages where you, they, get, they, they have a room for you there. And as, as Trader Risky said, they give you a bag of all this uh, stuff that you can wear and other little uh, trinkets. Yeah, it was, it was. I got a Poker Stars baseball around here somewhere still. Really? It's in the bag. It's funny. So and they they even had they they had parties they'd have a party every year that uh, they go to, and uh, it they they had a, a real partnership going and not just poker stars a lot of sites did every site that wanted to had the right to buy people in and then give them the ticket. Well, this all changed in two thousand seven because in two thousand six in October two thousand six I remember getting a phone call. From one of my friends who used to play online known as Good Eats. He's not part of poker anymore. Hasn't been in a long time. But he was a personal friend of mine from the 90s who got me into poker. And Good Eats called me and told me that something terrible had just happened. That something known as the UIGEA was passed that has made online poker illegal in the U.S. 
I was actually driving between Vegas and L.A. when he called me and told me this. His first words were, we're fucked. That was actually what he said when I answered the phone. Good Eats had told me many times over the prior few years about the various attempts to make online poker illegal, and I laughed them all off. I said, this is never going to pass. Nobody cares enough about this. And to my credit, I was right about that. Nobody cared enough about online poker's legality. And I'm talking about from a legislative standpoint. Legislators didn't care enough about it to actually pass a full law outlawing online poker, nor did they care enough to pass a full law legalizing online poker. They just didn't care enough either way. The president did not care as much. Did not care much. That was uh, George W. Bush at the time. The typical lawmakers did not care. There were a few who cared, but the, but there was never enough excitement about this on either side for any kind of real law to be passed through uh, through Congress and through the Senate. It just wasn't going to happen. And every time there was an attempt, it would die. And that's what I kept telling Good Eats: this is not going to be something that will happen because nobody cares enough. And every time I was right. So I asked him, how did this happen? And how come we didn't hear? How come all those times you warned me about it, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, nothing came of it, and this time you didn't call to warn me about anything and and something's really happened? He said, I don't know, but it's happened. I don't have the details yet, but it has happened. So I got home. Or I got back to, actually I drove to L.A. So I got to L.A. I was living in Vegas at the time. Uh, I got to L.A., and where I was staying there, I went and uh, looked up what had happened. And I found out that the UIGEA, which which stood for the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act, was attached to something called the Safe Ports Act, and it passed that way. And I'll tell you how they managed to do that. First of all, let's think of the date. October 2006. Hmm. October 2006. What was going to happen shortly after November 2000, or October 2006? I gave it away. What was going to happen in November 2006? The midterm election. The very important midterm election. And what would happen to a congressman or a senator who voted against the Safe Ports Act to make our ports safer, especially only five years after 9-11. And there's, there had been a lot of concern that our ports weren't safe enough after that. And they finally passed an act that was supposed to make our ports a lot safer. Who would go vote against that? Well, just about nobody. It, it passed almost unanimously, the Safe Ports Act, and it was expected to pass almost unanimously, partially because in October 2006, one month before the midterm election, it would have been political suicide for any candidate or even for any party to oppose it. Even if you weren't up for re-election then, the last thing you wanted to do is hurt others in your party by being the party that is against safe ports. So nobody a month before the election wanted to be seen as being against this. So someone clever figured out that a way to get an anti-online poker bill on the books, it wasn't just online poker, an anti-online gambling book uh, bill on the books, which would outlaw all financial transactions related to 
online gambling, not the online gambling itself, but the financial transactions that enable it, which essentially is online gambling. They attached it to the Safe Ports Act at the 11th hour. And you could not vote against that portion of it. It was either you are voting for the Safe Ports Act, which has the UIGEA along with it, or you are voting against the Safe Ports Act, which has the UIGEA along with it. You could not split them up. So even though many politicians, including one from Las Vegas, who is very, very much against the UIGEA, even though many politicians hated the UIGEA, they voted yes on the Safe Ports Act anyway. Because they felt they had to. They sacrificed voting yes on something that they didn't support, but was a minor issue for the country, that is, online gambling, to support something that was a major issue for the country and was very important politically for the political future of anyone voting for it. Very clever, and this has been done before, This wasn't the first time this tactic was employed. But it was employed for online poker. And I had not thought of this. This, I had overlooked this possibility. I kept thinking that the only way online poker would be illegal is if they explicitly passed a bill about online poker. And I knew there just was not enough interest to do so. I also knew that our president, George W. Bush, did not care either way about online poker. And it was not particularly important to him. So I wasn't worried. But I didn't think about this. So just like that, without anyone having any warning, because this was done really just at the last minute, it's not like this was part of the Safe Ports Act from the beginning. They stuck it on at the end. And when I say they, it was actually a bipartisan effort by certain politicians that were against online poker. Perhaps because they were lobbied to do so. You can't blame the Republicans or the Democrats for this one. It was a, this was an issue that actually divided both parties, online poker, online gambling. There were Democrats who were for online gambling and ones against it, and the Republicans for online gambling and against it. For example, Newt Gingrich. Some people would say, oh, I bet he'd be anti-online poker. No, he was very pro-online poker. So it, there wasn't even one party you could blame. And the presidents, every president that we've had since online poker poker has existed, just hasn't cared about online poker either way, or any kind of online gambling. George W. Bush did not care. Barack Obama did not care. Donald Trump does not care. So it's not the president's fault, any of them. When Barack Obama was elected, people were saying, oh, I heard Barack Obama played poker sometimes. He's going to be a friend of online poker. Things are going to change. Well, we'll get to that part. So just like that, the UIGEA passed, and then all the online poker sites had to make a decision. Do they want to continue operating? Now, by this point, the poker boom was in full swing in October 2006. The World Series of Poker main event had a record number of entrants that still has not been broken. This year came close, but it still didn't break it. But the World Series of Poker had over 8,700 entrants in the main event in 2006. 
The cash games were plentiful everywhere, both live and online. Poker was at its peak. And a lot of these sites were making a fortune. Some of them were making a massive fortune, like Party Poker and Poker Stars. Some were making a lot, like Ultimate Bet and Absolute Poker. And there were many of them that were doing pretty well. Maybe not making a fortune, but all of them making good money. And with future prospects of continuing to make good money. But were they willing to run afoul of the U.S. government? Do they dare continue operating now that something has explicitly been passed making the financial transactions illegal? Party Poker decided no. Party Poker got out of the market right away. They made a tough decision. They were the number two site at the time, the clear number two. They were There was no one even close to them as far as challenging them for number two. Poker Stars had passed them, but Poker Stars was not that much bigger than Party. They were a, a near number one and a clear number two. And they elected to get out of by far the biggest market in the world, the United States. Despite that, they actually did pay a settlement to the U.S. government. They were still pressed into making a settlement for operating prior to the UIGEA passed, and they they actually backed down and paid it. But they were out of the market. And it was also agreed that the U.S. would not go after them further if they continued staying out of the market. So Party Poker decided that they are going to follow the law of the U.S. Some other sites dropped out. A lot of the smaller ones decided they don't want to risk it. Poker Stars stayed. Full Tilt stayed. UB stayed. Absolute Poker stayed. They At that point, they were two different sites, uh, UB and Absolute Poker. But a lot of the other ones, a lot of the smaller networks, including the CryptoLogic Network, which I was playing on all the time, decided they did not want to risk it. Some of them had, were based in countries, countries like the UK, where they were afraid the US had reached to bust them. And these companies decided, okay, we're done. The iPoker network, they were also pretty big. They uh, decided to get out of the US market. And very quickly, I noticed my options were greatly reduced to find online poker games because I was an American. I actually continued to play on CryptoLogic, pretending to be Canadian. I got a Canadian mailbox that forwarded to me and all that. and uh, I got away with that for some time, but the games kind of went to crap, so I quit anyway. A lot of players didn't notice this all that much because a lot of the players were sticking to the big ones. If you were just a PokerStars player, didn't affect you. Well, for the most part, didn't affect you. If you're a party player, didn't really affect you that much. It did affect you in that they could no longer buy you into the World Series because Caesars at that point was not going to make partnerships with companies operating illegally. So at that point, those satellites to the main, they would just put the money in your account and you were just expected that uh, if you were going to go play, you would just cash out the money and buy and buy in. And they didn't really care if you did or didn't. But uh, that's how it would work. They, they could not directly buy you in anymore. 
the most they could do is give you the money at the World Series, but again, it would be up to you to actually go buy in in the entry. They could no longer buy you in. Caesars no longer had anything to do with these companies. Caesars told all these companies, look, we'd love to, but we can't risk it. Thanks for the, all the players you brought to us, but we can't risk it anymore. Sorry. But aside from that, the typical player wasn't affected that much by the UIGEA. They were affected also by the payment processing, the payment processing, which was the riskiest part and now became really risky because the payment processors were violating the UIGEA very blatantly and directly. And any payment processor that was caught would be arrested and the money would be confiscated. So the payment processors were charging a fortune in fees to the poker sites to process both deposits and withdrawals. And also those who are willing to be payment processors tended not to be very honest people. And when you'd think of a payment processor then working with poker stars, you'd, you'd picture they're working with some large operation to process payments. Turned out, no, it was basically anyone who was willing to do it. So there was the infamous Daniel Svetkov case where a guy in his 20s was the payment processor and he was the main payment processor of poker stars and full tilt. And he decided at one point, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to start stealing from him. So he started just stealing massive amounts of money from poker stars in full tilt and eventually stole $100 million from the two combined. So that's the type of payment processor they were utilizing. They also kept having to switch payment processors when problems would happen. Like eventually they had to drop Daniel Svetkov for stealing $100 million from him, from them. The Daniel Svetkov matter is what ultimately led to the biggest incident in online poker history, which just about all of you know about, and that was Black Friday, April 15, 2011. So Daniel Svetkov had ripped off the sites for $100 million combined. He was working with Full Tilt and Poker Sarge and just was outright stealing the money and just living a crazy, lavish lifestyle with an entourage, buying expensive vehicles and, and expensive boats, and just uh, this guy was spending money wherever he could find to spend it. And he was in his 20s. He was just an irresponsible kid in his 20s who decided he's just going to rip off the poker sites. In the movies, this would have gotten him killed. In the movies, the sites would have hired some hitman who would have found him and put a bullet in his head. But in reality, this doesn't often happen. So the site said, well, no, we're not going to kill him for this or beat him up. We've got to do something, though. The guy ripped us off of $100 million. We can't go to the police. We're operating illegally. So what should we do? What should we do? And what they decided to do was get him in trouble. They were no longer using him. So they said, well, we might as well report him and at least get him busted for being a payment processor. We can't get him in trouble for stealing from us, but we can get him in trouble for processing payments for us. So uh, an anonymous report was made, giving enough details, proving that Daniel Svetkov was a payment processor for online poker. And indeed, the U.S. government found him and arrested him. At this time, by the way, Barack Obama had been president for a while. Well, what did Svetkov do? 
You think he said, okay, yeah, you guys got me. Okay, I'm ready to serve my time. No. He said, well, okay, you guys got me, but I'm not the guy you really want. I'm just a payment processor. I'm just one guy who's processing payments. But if you really want to get someone, you want to go after the two sites I was working for, PokerStars and Full Tilt. They're the big fish in this game here, and they have a lot of money that you guys can seize, a lot of assets you guys can seize, and I know all about them and their payment processing and how they've been getting around the, all the restrictions that the banks and the credit cards have been trying to put on for the online gambling. That's the reason people can keep depositing despite the fact that you're trying to stop it. I'll tell you everything you need to know if you make a deal with me. So that's what they did. So they made a deal with Daniel Svetkoff and they, then uh, on April 15, 2011... The hammer came down. And they knew about everything. And the thing that they really used to nail these two sites was a site called, uh, a bank called the Sunfirst Bank in St. George, Utah. It was a bank that was bought by PokerStars in full tilt simply to process online poker payments. That was an idea of, hey, let, let's instead of having to get banks to cooperate with us, which are sometimes afraid to do so, why don't we just buy a small bank and, and they'll be processing the payments, which at this point were being masked as other things. They weren't coded as online poker payments or online gambling payments. They were coded as, as fake purchases. So they got a bank to cooperate with this whole thing because they bought the bank, the Sun First Bank in St. George, Utah. St. George is... Uh, North of Las Vegas, it's right on the Nevada-Utah border, right off the 15. By this point, they were working with other processors. They, they weren't with uh, Svetchkov anymore because of the thefts. One of the processors, one of the few processors who served any real time over this was Chad Ellie, who listens to this show and was on this show in 2012, and he talked about some of these details. If you want to, you can hear the interesting interview with him from uh, November 2012. If you go back to our archives, you can find it. The, the episode was called Black Friday on Black Friday because we did it on the day after Thanksgiving. So then the hammer really came down hard. And what the, what the U.S. government believed they were doing was they were shutting down the three biggest online poker sites and then they were and busting the people involved. And basically, they were going to tell them, hey, pay us some tremendously huge fine from all the profits you've made. Get out of the U.S. market, and, uh, and we'll, then we'll let you guys off and not criminally charge you. That was the plan. Who made this plan? It was the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York an office that was well-known for doing things like this. The, this office, part of the Department of Justice, this office had been long known to go after well-heeled criminal organizations for the purpose of seizing their assets on behalf of the government. And it's really all about the money with this particular department. They don't go after anyone that cannot surrender large sums of money or assets to them. They care much less about the violation of the law than they do about how much they can seize when they prosecute these people. 
or threaten to prosecute them. So this seemed to be a great find for the Southern District of New York's U.S. Attorney's Office. Online poker, which had become such a huge industry, and they pictured they were going to reap billions of dollars. They were basically going to say, give us all your profits that you've made, or otherwise we are going to send you to prison for many years. Or you can give us these mass sums of money and walk away, provided you don't continue breaking the law here in the U.S. That was the plan. But something else was going on that they didn't realize. Full Tilt Poker had been incredibly mismanaged, criminally mismanaged, and they had been stealing the money on deposit. And even though Full Tilt had given all appearances that they were a huge, stable site, in reality they were a huge site that was a giant Ponzi scheme. Not intentionally a Ponzi scheme, but uh, they were very poor at managing money. And they were giving distributions to the ownership that was far too, they were far too large, and they were having problems with payment processing. And Ray Batar, who is in charge of everything there, and to a lesser degree, but definitely guilty as well, uh, Chris Ferguson, Ray First, and Howard Letter are all on the board. They decided, hey, you know, we can borrow some player money, because there's no way everyone's going to come at once for cash-outs, right? As long as we can cover the cash-outs that typically are requested, the rest of the money we can dip into because we're making so much we can always replenish it at some point. Nothing's going to ever happen to stop us from making so much money. So we might as well just uh, dip into the player funds. No one's going to know. And they kept dipping and dipping and dipping until almost nothing was left. And in April 2011, the hammer came down on Full Tilt Poker and Poker Stars and UB. And then people said, okay, well, Full Tilt, uh, time to... Give us our money, and Full Tilt says, uh-oh, we don't have it. But they didn't want to reveal they don't have it because they, they had a devious plan to continue operating in the rest of the world and make enough money that way and stall everyone until they can get enough money to pay the U.S. players. But it didn't work. They tried to lie to everybody for a while, they, but uh, it didn't work. And eventually the story came out that Full Tilt had stolen everyone's money and did not have the money to pay the players. UB had done the same thing. They had stolen all the money and did not have enough to pay the players, and they just disappeared. They didn't even attempt to continue operating. They just shut down. Poker Stars did have enough money. Poker Stars did pay the players. Poker Stars screwed the players on the FPPs, which is the their form of rakeback. I won't get into that whole story. But they, so Poker Stars wasn't perfect. They screwed people. They screwed me out of about two thousand bucks worth of FPPs, and and the value I had in them, but. That's a different story for a different time. But they did pay everybody. And then they continued operating in the rest of the world. After April 15, 2011, you could not play there anymore as an American. Nor could you play on full tilt. UB was gone. Eventually, after quite some time passed, Poker Stars bought full tilt as an agreement with the government that basically got them out of legal hot water for what they had done, for existing as an illegal online poker site between the UIGEA of October 2006 through Black Friday of April 2011, a period of four and a half years. Poker, the agreement PokerStars had is if they hand over $750 million, 
that the U.S. government would, number one, give them full tilt, which they had seized and now was their property. And number two, pay back the players from full tilt with that money. And number three, uh, Poker Stars and its executives would be off the hook legally for what they had done. So Poker Stars handed over the $750 million and people got to go through the remissions process to get paid back from full tilt, which was handled poorly by the government, but most people got their money eventually. But it was from the government. You were getting actually from the government, from the money that Poker Stars had given them, and then the government kept the remainder. Government still made uh, made out pretty well there. They, the government then also, from the remainder, decided surprisingly to pay back people who had money stuck on UB, which was unexpected. It was thought that was lost forever. In fact, someone offered to let me buy their UB balance of like 50k for like 10 percent on the dollar, and I said no. I, I thought there was like zero chance it's ever coming back. And then the government didn't about face and decided that with the excess money that was never claimed of. Uh, what was it, earmarked to pay full tilt people that they will use it to pay UB people that happened years later. So they got made whole as well. Again, not because of anything full tilt did. If it were up to the full tilt people, you wouldn't have your money because it was gone and they were not going to reach into their own pockets to give it to you. Like Howard Lederer was not going to reach into his own pocket and give you the money that he owed you. They were going to leave you twisting in the wind with nothing. It was because the government forced poker stars to buy full tilt that basically gave the government the money to pay you for full tilt and UB. However, at this point, it was clear the government meant business. It's one thing to pass a law in 2006 where up until April 2011, only a few payment processes were busted, but but, uh, there were no poker sites that were busted and everybody was operating under a false sense of security that these busts would not happen. Now everyone saw that, yes, the government will bust these sites. Granted, it was an office that was known to bust sites that had a lot of money, but this had to be a little bit uh, demoralizing for sites that were still taking U.S. players that if they get big enough, maybe the government will go after them next. Stepping back a little bit to 2008... I appeared on 60 Minutes on a special about the cheating, the super user cheating that occurred on UB and AP. And I said something at the end of the broadcast that upset a lot of people. I said that the people who did this cheating were very reckless and very blatant. And that's the reason they got caught. But had they been more careful about what they were doing it's very possible they would have never gotten caught. And there may be people who are cheating right now on websites, on these poker sites, that are not being detected and may never be caught. And maybe some entire sites are not legitimate. I also went on to say that the solution to this is to license and regulate online poker at a federal level. Unfortunately, that last part got cut off by 60 Minutes, they decided not to air that last statement. And instead, they cut me right there when I just talked about how the whole thing may not be legitimate. And that made people furious. They were afraid I was scaring away the fish. People really got on my case for saying that on national TV, something that 18 million people watched, that 60 Minutes special, 
where I was saying that you may be playing on a site that is not legitimate, the games may not be legitimate, and you may be being cheated. People were very afraid this is scaring away fish. I said, too bad. This is the truth. The regulation of these sites is a joke. We don't know. We have to trust them that they're doing things right, and we don't know for sure. Well, I was proven right to some degree after Black Friday when it turned out that three or two of the three largest sites that were still serving U.S. customers, UB and Full Tilt, had stolen all the money. And it was proof that the unregulated model did not work. Good that PokerStars kept the money. Good that they separated the player money and the operating capital and they did it right. Good for them. But there were two sites that did not. A lot more than two, but the two that, of the three that got busted, two of the three were not separating the money. And we've seen so many online poker sites go down since then. Look at Lock Poker and so many others that have gone down. And there were some before this that went down in the same fashion where they stole the player money and disappeared. This has happened over and over and over again. And that's because it's unregulated. And just because it's regulated by some tiny Caribbean nation or, or whatever that they get to rubber stamp uh, that they're being regulated, that means nothing. So without a meaningful regulator that actually has teeth to bring penalties upon those that uh, violate the regulations, then things like that will happen. You cannot trust online poker sites to police themselves. The police yourself when you're holding hundreds of millions of dollars of player money is not the appropriate way to do things. There needs to be regulation of these sites. And this proved it. I, I said this for many years. I, I said, look, okay, poker stars in full tilt, yeah, they, they seem trustworthy for the most part, but how do you really know? How do you know about anything? How do you know the games aren't rigged in some way? How do you know that uh, they have all the money on deposit? How do you know that they're not going to accuse you of cheating when you didn't cheat and take your money? What can you do if this happens? Doesn't it scare you that they are the judge, jury, and executioner with your money? Well, but they haven't done such and such before. Well, they've been very reputable. So you think. But there's nobody watching them. There's nobody they have to answer to. There's no consequence for screwing people. And that's why the unregulated model was destined to fail. And that's why sites like Full Tilt and UB and so many others acted dishonestly and stole your money. Because they were unregulated and because they knew the consequences of doing so were minor to nothing. So let's get back to Black Friday and what it really meant. In 2012, I wrote a little uh, comedy piece on dandruffpoker.com, which is still there. There is a dandruffpoker.com. Really? Go, go take a look right now. Dandruffpoker.com. Hasn't been updated in many years. There is a dandruffpoker.com run by me. Scroll down a bit, you'll see there are 12 blogs that I wrote between November 17th, 2011 and, and February 26th, 2012. Why was I writing blogs, and why don't, why don't I write blogs anymore? Because I did not have a forum I was posting on then. I was banned from 2 Plus 2, and I had uh, 
parted ways from Doc Down and there was no poker fraud alert yet. A week after the final blog on February 26, 2012, a week after that I started poker fraud alert on March 2, 2012. Actually, I guess a few days later, it wasn't even a week. So that was the end of the blogs. But if you take a look at the final blog I wrote, blog number 12, uh, dated February 26, 2012, you'll see a blog called It's Druff's Wonderful Life, a look at what the poker world would be like if Black Friday never occurred. And it's, it's written as a parody of the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which starred uh, Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. Except the theme of this one was that I, I was a character in this uh, story and that I'm uh, about to jump off of Hoover Dam and kill myself because I'm barely making any money more money anymore playing online poker because the games suck and they're pretty low. And uh, then I'm blaming Black Friday and I'm about to jump off uh, Hoover Dam. And then the Clarence character appears and convinces me to let him show me what uh, life would have been like if Black Friday never occurred. And then you get to see a number of things that are surprising in that things were not necessarily going to be better if Black Friday never occurred. And while the whole thing is kind of a comedy, it's also meant to make a point that... Black Friday was inevitable at some point. Full Tilt was stealing the money before Black Friday, before they knew Black Friday would happen. UB was stealing the money before they knew this would happen. Black Friday simply hastened the inevitable, and that was that the sites that were stealing your money were going to be busted and exposed that they had stolen your money, which the government didn't even know when they busted them. And that these unregulated sites just simply don't work for this very reason. And that had longer gone without something like Black Friday, all they would have done is stolen even more of our money and the problem would have been compounded. So you may say, oh, if it wasn't for Black Friday, can you imagine how big poker would be now? No. It's more like, can you imagine how much bigger the full tilt scandal would have been? And how much bigger the UB second scandal of them stealing all the money would have been. They already had the first scandal of looking at your whole cards and cheating you. This would have been delayed. But eventually, these sites would have been out of money and unable to pay people, and the truth would have come out that they had stolen the money. And Black Friday, therefore, did not cause the collapse of online poker. It just hastened it. The collapse of online poker was inevitable because unregulated sites holding all this money with so much incentive to cheat you, cheating you meaning even just stealing the money, not cheating you at the table necessarily. There was just so much incentive to do that, especially when things were not going as well as they hoped. Or if they were irresponsible with their spending. Like Full Tilt, they were just overspending on marketing, over-distributing funds to owners. So even when sites are not intending to steal or intending to cheat you, then they make some mistakes and they go, well, we have all this player money right here just sitting doing nothing. 
And it's not all going to be cashed out. There's going to be people who never come for it or just leave it in their account for a long time. It's only a small percentage of people are asking for their money on any given day. So we can take it, and no one's going to really know as long as we can process the cash outs that do come in. And that's what they did. So this model didn't work, and I, I'm telling you this because one of the most misunderstood things about online poker is the belief that Black Friday caused the huge decline in online poker and in poker in general. Not true. It was just an event that exposed everything and caused abrupt changes to where Americans were allowed to play. But it was coming. This, this was coming at some point. The, nor was the government going to just sit by and let people get ripped off on a mass scale like this. So this is going to come in some way or another. This was inevitable. Who can you blame then for what happened? You can blame the U.S. government for not legalizing and regulating this in the first place. Way back. Instead of passing the UIGEA, it should have been the reverse. Something should have been passed to license and regulate online poker in the U.S., perhaps with some sort of opt-out for states that didn't want it. States like Utah, Hawaii, Wyoming, ones that were not going to want this, then they could opt out and all the other states could remain. And opting out, there would have been a lot less of opting out than what we're seeing right now where opting in is a very slow process. It's not even opting in. It's like passing your own regulations, your own laws. Here here they should have just made it legally, federally, and then allowed states to opt out of it. That would have been the best solution, but one that didn't happen now is unlikely to happen. So that was the reason all this occurred. Black Friday was just the an inevitable thing that was going to occur at some point. It's It's kind of like you're a lifelong smoker and you get diagnosed with lung cancer and you blame your doctor for telling you you have lung cancer. <laughs> the doctor would say, no, I, I didn't give you lung cancer. You gave yourself lung cancer. I just, I'm the one who discovered it. It's kind of like that. Not exactly like that, but it's, it's, it's that ridiculous to blame Black Friday for the end of online poker in the U.S. Now, what about since then? That was eight years ago. Eight and a half years ago now. We have some legalized and regulated online poker sites in the U.S. now. We have WSOP.com, which is now in three states with a combined player pool. Delaware, Nevada, and New Jersey. We have Pennsylvania that has recently passed an online poker bill. And it's technically legal there now, I believe. It's slowly starting to get legalized around the country, though right now sports betting seems to be more of the priority. Since that's become legalized as well. So, where are we right now? Well, right now, we have a number of these illegal sites that are still operating. The two biggest ones being Ignition Bovada, which may claim they're different companies, but they're the same. And America's Card Room. And the skins feeding into that. Those are the two big ones remaining right now. Both of them have their flaws. Both of them are not anywhere as juicy or good or profitable for the average player as they were back uh, in the days of the poker boom. The game selection is not as much. The players are tougher. The fish are fewer. 
The software is worse. We've actually taken a step back in software. The PokerStar software of 10 years ago is far better than the software of either ACR or Bovada today. In fact, these the software seems to get worse and worse over time. But that's what we've got. On the bright side, for the most part, people who win get paid on these two sites, which is the most important thing. The one with the fewest issues as far as the large sites is Ignition Bovada, but they've got a lot of issues too, as I've talked about on recent shows. America's Card Room is plagued with a lot of botting and a lot of other crap going on that you guys have heard about. Joey Ingram has done many exposés on them. But they're not like outright scammers. If you play America's Card Room and win, you can cash out and get your money in a reasonable amount of time, which is the most important thing. And I don't believe there's super using or anything like that going on on the site. And Bovada Ignition, same thing. You win on Bovada Ignition, you can get your money pretty fast in Bitcoin. And I don't believe there's super using going on there. So you never know. There could be. I'm not saying there isn't for sure. Especially on Bovada, it's anonymous, so you can't see. I did have an experience with one player on there that just seemed to always hit. Not so much super using, but the the guy was like, he just always seemed to uh, hit hands over and over and over again. He just crushed every game. I was kind of wondering about that guy, but maybe he just was running amazing. But uh, that's that's what you have right now. You have those two, and then you have some smaller sites, which I wouldn't recommend. What about the poker clubs? The PP poker sites... I know there's this one that uh, Raymond Davis promotes called Fox Poker that uses the same software that the Poker Fraud Alert No Fraud Online Poker Room runs. The R Room is a free money room. We don't. Uh, there's no way to lose in our room. That's why it's legal. What about those sites? The problem with those sites is that uh, there is uh, you're having to trust a lot there that you can't necessarily trust. You have to trust the the, oper- the operators of these sites are going to pay you, and they're not going to just up and leave one day. You have to trust that there's not uh, collusion, card sharing, multi-accounting, stuff that the operators of these sites may not even know about. The operators of these sites don't have an advanced security department to check into accusations of cheating, and honestly, if you get cheated there, it's probably unlikely going to be caught uh, unless it's super blatant. So there's a lot of reasons not to play on those sites. We've already had some scandals with those sites, like the Adnan Mohammed scandal we've talked about. I don't play on those sites for that reason. I just don't trust them. I'm not saying you can't find a fair game on them, but there's too many risks as to where you may not find a fair game. There's just too many ways you're going to get screwed there. To me, it's just not worth it. I'd rather stick with the ACRs and the, and the Bovadas, ones like that, which are quite flawed themselves, but I th- think are less of a risk than these, uh, than these type of sites. But is it just a matter of time? Do we just have to wait until online poker comes to the other states like California, like New York? Do we have to just wait until they all cooperate and have the same player pool? The problem is with every day, the interest in online poker is dying. Poker itself is starting to slip. The only thing that's really growing in poker is the World Series, and that's because it's a very well-known brand, and they're very, very good at marketing it. For all of Caesar's problems, they're excellent at marketing the World Series of Poker. And they're actually also very good at introducing events that appeal to more and more people and get more and more people down there. 
I, it doesn't thrill me that they're introducing $300 events for bracelets. I think that's kind of crap and diminishes the value of a bracelet. But uh, as, as far as making money for the company, it's a great idea. And that's the goal there. But, but putting that aside, poker is shrinking. That's why card rooms are closing. Card rooms are shrinking. They're no, no longer as active as they once were. The game of poker is slowly dying. It's getting older. It's literally dying, too. People are getting older. <laughs> and uh, as the pool of anything gets old, that's never a good thing for whatever the activity is. And it's uh, online poker specifically, which is a young man's thing. You may not think that because I play it and Troy Daruski play it and we're not uh, youngsters, but the truth is most people online have always been young. It's always been something that appeals to younger people, and younger people just aren't playing poker because it's not uh, found on TV much anymore. Poker doesn't have the same cool factor. It's not the same fad it once was, and the young people are not getting into it, nor can the young people run up big bankrolls online as they once did. So you're not having these college students who are suddenly rich with online poker money that can play the bigger events. That's why at things like the main event, there's very few people playing who are between ages 21 and 25. And even not that many people between 25 and 30. Most people in the main event were over 30. And it's just getting older and older. So online poker, which appeals more to younger people, if there are not younger people playing poker, then... It's going to die. It's going to slowly die. And it has been. I go to live card rooms and look around. I go, crap, everybody's old. (laughs) Where's the young people? Like, everyone is around there getting old. I see people, I go to commerce, I sit there, the games, I see people I've seen there for almost 20 years, and, like, we're both looking at each other, like, both saying, I remember when you used to be a young guy. (laughs) And neither of us are anymore. And we're going, shit, this is this is what poker is right now. So that's one of the reasons that the biggest growing event at the World Series of Poker, by far, is the seniors event. That's the event that's every year just expanding. Because so many poker players are aging over 50. It'll be me soon. It's already been Trader Ruski. This isn't good for online poker. And this is one of those cases where when something disappears for a while, it declines for a long time, the momentum is broken. And the momentum has been broken for online poker for eight and a half years. So you can't just come back and pick up where it left off. Even if the games return to as good as they were before the poker room ended, or before Black Friday at least. They'd already been declining some when Black Friday came. But even if it returns to pre-Black Friday levels of game quality, there still will not be the interest there was back then because the momentum has been lost. Think about all the ways you can lose interest in things when you just haven't done it in a while. Think of a TV show you once loved and then it goes on a hiatus. It, uh, sometimes, if it's something you're really, really, really into, yeah, you're, you're excited when this, the next season comes, but often you will disappear from watching something from season to season because there's that hiatus in between. You just don't have the motivation to watch it again, whereas if you've been actively watching it, you badly want to watch the next episode. Once there's a big distance of time in between, uh, sometimes you don't feel like coming back and watching again. I, I've quit very few shows, very few TV shows mid-season, but I've, I've quit a lot of them between seasons. I think that's very common. 
Uh, it, this can even happen in uh, in dating, where you could be dating someone, and then for whatever reason, uh, you don't see each other for a few months, and then you're just not that motivated to see the person again. You start thinking, oh, they're, they're really not that great. Nah, I'm not that excited about them anymore. I've had that happen before. There's a reason a lot of times uh, long-distance relationships don't work. So anything that breaks momentum is bad. And we've broken online poker's momentum for eight and a half years. So I don't know what it'll come back to, even if it does become legalized mostly on a federal level. And we're still quite some ways from that happening. California, which is by far the biggest state population-wise in the U.S., it's been stuck in neutral because of this matter of whether poker stars can uh, be part of the market or not and the big legal battle involving that. So who knows when that's coming? New York, it hasn't happened yet. Pennsylvania, it finally did, but there's a lot of weird taxes and restrictions that may stifle that from ever becoming successful. And we've even seen that a market that is combined with New Jersey, Nevada, Delaware still isn't enough. WSOP.com is a ghost town, as are the other sites that uh, are currently in the legalized market. The only thing that's doing okay for these sites are the ones that are offering casino games as well that are in New Jersey. Those are making some decent money, but on the poker side, none of them are doing well, and they're pretty dead. Not completely dead, but pretty dead. So the future for online poker is not that good. We might have a little bit of a resurgence, like if California brings it, and if if they start combining with other states, we might have a kind of a second wind to online poker, but it's never going to be what it was. We'll never see that again. Our only hope for online poker comes from the sports betting world. Sports betting has been expanding rapidly because of that decision that allowed states other than Nevada to have full sports betting. And this includes online sports betting within that state. And now it's up to each individual state to legalize it or not legalize it and pass their own laws and regulations. And as I've mentioned uh, throughout the recent history of this show, I'll tell you about such and such state that's added sports betting. Well, sports betting is very, very popular. Sports betting is something that is a tremendous industry that is way bigger than online poker. And sports betting has often driven online poker when they are combined on the same site. Some of the best games I've played in poker have been sites that also have sports books where people win in sports and then sit down at poker and are terrible, and I crush them. That's what brings a lot of fish to the game, is where sports betting money exists, and people sit down with it, either to chase losses or take money they've won and try to win even more at the poker tables, and you know how that ends up going. So if, in the future, legalized sports betting exists online in a lot of states, including big states, and they have a poker room riding along with it, then we can see some very nice games that will be basically funded by the sports bettors who take their money and lose it at the poker tables. And I think it will remain a constant that the average sports better will be a crappy poker player. That's going to be true for a very long time. They're just different skill sets, and a lot of sports bettors are not even good sports bettors. They just uh, may be on a lucky streak, or, uh, or they may not be on a lucky streak. They may be losing and try to chase the losses in poker. 
the bottom line is that if somebody's a sports bidder, you usually want to play poker against them. That's that's true. If if there are sports bidders sitting at your poker table, is a very high likelihood it's a good game. So that could be the possible savior for online poker in the future, but we've got to wait until the whole sports betting market online on the legalized side gets more mature and expands more. That's the only hope. That is the only hope. What about the issues that online poker is having in the legalized markets? Uh, John Mahaffey, a poker journalist, a watchdog of the industry, someone who is very knowledgeable and has uh, done a lot of good articles about poker and gambling, especially from the Las Vegas standpoint. He lives in Las Vegas. He has been really frustrated by WSOB.com and their follies that we've covered on this show. And what has frustrated him the most is the fact that it seems like the Nevada Gaming Commission does not understand online poker and makes stupid decisions when complaints are brought to them. And I have to agree. The Nevada Gaming Commission does not understand online poker. They do not understand the issues surrounding online poker. They are not very good at protecting online poker and poker players because they don't understand the underlying issues that online poker faces. So some who have longed for the old days have said, look, let's go back to the old days when everything was just working. Poker Stars was great. Full Tilt was great. Look, look at the recent legalized sites and all the fails we're seeing on WSOP.com and, and how Ultimate Poker was a disaster and all these legalized sites are awful. And these bodies regulating them don't know what they're doing. What did you expect when you get the government involved, people say? Here's my response. You're right that currently regulated and licensed online poker is not being run very well. It's not being regulated well. But it's still preferable to a model where operators can exist that can steal all our money with no recourse. It's still preferable to an environment where sites can play judge, jury, and executioner with your money and you have no recourse. That is the absolute worst thing possible is when a site can either just outright cheat you at the tables or outright cheat you by stealing your money and get away with it. If that exists, then online poker is not working then online poker is just primed to screw a ton of people, and did. So yes, the regulated market currently sucks, and it's a ghost town, and it's not being regulated well, and the regulators don't understand it well. But that can be improved. It needs to be improved. Will it improve? I don't know. Hopefully it does. Maybe if the industry gets big enough, there will be more attention upon it, and then they'll learn online poker better. The whole thing's still kind of immature even though it's existed for over six years in Nevada, it's still kind of immature because not many people play it, so there hasn't been much reason to shine much of a spotlight on the regulation by anyone except for poker media. So maybe if sports betting brings kind of a second poker boom eventually, that there will be more focus upon these sites and how they're regulating online poker. But it's still the preferable model because at least there are consequences, at least there are rules, at least you know you will get paid. What about the people saying, well, what about WSOB.com? There's been payout problems. Well, yes, they, they, that's because of incompetence. There's just about no chance that your money on WSOP, WSOP.com won't get to you eventually. 
I agree there have been ridiculous delays and other fails and issues with the cash out that shouldn't be. I agree that it's amazing how quickly they will take your money for a deposit, and then when you want to withdraw, you have to go through a million hoops, and it doesn't make any sense. Either you got you should verify it up front, not when you're getting your money. I agree. It doesn't make any sense. Mahaffey brought that point up. He's right. A lot of things can be improved and need to be improved, but it's still preferable to what we had before, and if you need proof, look at what was happening when Black Friday hit, that two of the three biggest sites had stolen all the money. Not because of Black Friday, before Black Friday. So, that's where we stand right now. Just have to wait and see, and play mediocre games online, or maybe stay off online sites entirely. Or maybe take a chance on the PP poker type sites, the Fox poker type things, and hope they don't cheat you. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Hope ACR doesn't screw you, hope Bovada doesn't screw you. That's your option right now. Just have to sit and wait and hope things get better. But the sports betting thing is really the only chance that we'll see any kind of second poker boom. Hopefully you understand everything better now. If there's anything that you want to know about or you feel I haven't covered, you can text me at 775-372-8355. You can even call in right now, and I'll take a call about this if you have any questions. I know there's a lot we covered here. And I hope you found this segment to be interesting. There's so much more I could be talking about. Saw 24 is mentioning uh, Iovation, uh, which is Scott Pearson's company that uh, basically was funded by stolen UB money. And now they're doing security for online sites, including online gambling sites. Uh, there's so much that I could talk about that would probably take as I said, 30 hours <laughs> and blow out my voice. But... Uh, Online uh, regulation is what needs to be done. It just needs to be improved. And we know before it wasn't working. It wasn't. We have proof it wasn't working. So you can't say just don't regulate it. This is something that has to be regulated. It has to be regulated right, but it has to be regulated. Saad doesn't agree with me. He's saying mind-boggling his take on this stuff after the Iovation disaster. See, Saad's saying it worked fine on poker stars. First of all, it didn't. They, they screwed me out of thousands of dollars on my FPPs. But putting that aside, you don't know which sites are doing it right because they're not regulated. We, we found out when the whole thing was over that, that poker stars had the money and the others didn't. But uh, prior to Black Friday, we didn't know that Full Till had stolen our money. Nobody knew. If, if somebody asked me on April 14, 2011, hey, think Full Till has everyone's money? I'd say, yeah, I think so. Like, <laughs> that, you don't know. And, and, in fact, Stars is under different ownership now than before, and, and the ownership now is kind of shady, to be honest. It's not the same ownership as before when Black Friday came down. You just don't know. This is the type of thing that has to be regulated. And he, he thinks, uh, Saw says in chat that I'm butthurt about Stars because of the FPPs. No, I, I'm being honest here. I'm giving Stars credit where it was due. And I'm, I'm putting an asterisk on it that they weren't perfect, that they did steal money via the FPPs. But that other than that, they did have the money to pay us and they were separating the money. They are separating the player funds from the other funds and not spending them. And I'll give them credit for doing that correctly. And I'll give them credit for uh, not uh, 
forgetting the stuff that happened later with like the supernova elites and all that scandal. Prior to that, they had not engaged in any kind of uh, major cheating scandal or anything like that. But you just don't know. We only found out who the dishonest players were when Black Friday came down. We knew UB was shady, but full tilt, that was a surprise to everybody. You just don't know. So, so Poker Stars has different owners. Who knows what they'd be doing if they weren't regulated? I could easily see the current Amaya screwing people if they weren't regulated. Easily. So that's the problem. You, you just need regulation in this. It just, it, it's kind of like, you know, let, let's say you have a drug dealer who's very honest. Well, that doesn't mean all drug dealers are honest, that you have to trust them all. And sometimes you don't know who's honest until something happens to prove whether they're honest or dishonest. This is just something that really needs regulation. And we saw what happens if it doesn't. And we saw how hard it is to figure out who's honest and who's not. Disposition said, this is his summary of the whole thing. He said, we really just need more Jews running things. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I can't argue with that. Isai Scheinberg, who was running Poker Stars at the time, he, he is a Jew. Maybe that is the answer. All right. That's it for that topic. Spent uh, an hour and 15 minutes or so on it. Trader Risk, anything to add there? I haven't checked if he's awake. It's possible he's sleeping already. I'm here. You have anything to add to what I said or reaction? What, what, anything uh, on this topic before we move on? I think you covered it all, whether it was on this show or the many shows before. Okay. And as I said, we had this segment because it was requested, and I thought, uh, given the misinformation that's everywhere, I, th- I thought it was worth putting out there. And we again, we didn't have like major topics this week that were going to take a long time. Okay, moving on to the next topic, which is not going to take a long time. Poker Tracker, which is a piece of software that many people use to help them play online poker. It gives you information about your opponents regarding their stats, how often they raise before the flop, how they behave after the flop, how they behave on the river. It gives you a bunch of numbers. You can use it to assist your reads on other players. There's been many that feel that uh, poker tracker is unethical, but basically if it's allowed, it's allowed. If it's not, it's not. I don't blame those who want to use it. If it's allowed on the site, you can use it, then so be it. Uh, if it were up to me, I would not allow things like Poker Tracker if I were running a site. But uh, it's a different discussion for a different time. And we've had that discussion on the show before anyway. The discussion we're going to have today has to do with Poker Tracker getting hacked. And not Poker Tracker itself, but actually the Poker Tracker website, which had a lot of the payment information. <laughs> So apparently PokerTracker.com was hacked, and rather than tell you myself in my own words what occurred, I will read to you a statement that was just released a few days ago by Derek Charles, and this statement came after a report was released about the hacking of PokerTracker on a site called BleepingComputer.com. Bleeping Computer is a site that uh, covers computer security and uh, mainly specializes in matters like uh, virus removal and stuff like that. So they 
they wrote an article on August 21st, 2019, called PokerTracker.com Hacked to Inject Payment Card Stealing Script. And once that came out, then uh, a statement came about a week later from... Uh, from Poker Tracker itself, who, by the way, was made aware of this on uh, August 8th. So here's their statement. On August 8th, we were contacted by a potential customer and by Malwarebytes stating that a PokerTracker.com website had been infected by a cross-site scripting attack. Now, by the way, Malwarebytes is another one of those antivirus sites. So the, the article I was talking about was on Bleeping Computer, but uh, Malwarebytes uh, and... This customer, they call a potential customer, uh, contacted them and said that PokerTracker.com got hacked through what was known as a XSS attack, which is a cross-site scripting attack. Within an hour of receiving the email from Malwarebytes, we had determined that an old Drupal module, which is no longer maintained, contained a security vulnerability, which allowed an attacker to inject an XSS attack into the footer of the PokerTracker.com website. The footer is the, is the bottom of, of the page. We immediately disabled the module, and the rogue script was no longer being injected. Now, this may confuse some of you what all that means. Uh, Drupal is an open-source uh, framework that's like the back-end framework for websites... And there was some kind of vulnerability that was found in an older version of Drupal that was being run on PokerTracker.com. And this allowed the attackers to basically break into the site. They said that the attack was being done through the footer of the site and that once they disabled that Drupal module that the uh, attackers were no longer able to get in. This, by the way, is the way a lot of hackers get into sites is through third-party tools or uh, pieces of framework, pieces of software that are put together to run a website. Because it's very hard to build everything from scratch that you need for a website. You're, you're often having to put together a lot of different parts. For those of you that aren't very technical, think of like a car. How, how often would a car manufacturer make every part that's in your car? They don't. They, they will get parts from third-party companies and put them together to make your car. So similarly here, you're a lot of times putting together a lot of parts that others have made to make your website. And if one of these parts has a vulnerability, then you don't find out about it until it's too late or until they find out about it and contact you. But there's there's no way for you to figure out in many cases, or in most cases, that the third-party software that you're running is uh, has good security. This has happened to Poker Fraud Alert where various third-party modules we're running here and third-party software we're running here have been attacked and hackers get in, not really to steal anyone's information, but usually to uh, utilize the server for nefarious purposes, such as usually spamming, but sometimes for other purposes too. That's how DDoSs happen usually. 
uh, DDoS, which is called the, which is a distributed denial of service attack. That's when a whole lot of different computers try to visit the website that you want to attack at once and visit it in a way that puts the most stress on it, like loading it over and over and over and over again. And then you multiply this by like tens of thousands of computers all doing it at once, and the thing goes down because it's being overwhelmed. The way they get these tens of thousands of computers, they don't buy 10,000 computers, they hack other computers or inject scripts into malware running on other computers that can be turned on to make these computers... Uh, all attack at once without the computer owner's knowledge of it even happening. They'll sometimes notice their computer's super slow all of a sudden, but they don't know why. But what's really happening is their computer is being used in one of these attacks without their knowledge. So that's what a distributed denial of service attack is. Usually that's uh, – they're referred to as, as zombie computers that are the ones that have been taken over to do that. Uh, now, that, there wasn't a DDoS involved here, but uh, what I'm saying is like that's the type of thing – that will happen where some kind of third-party software can be hacked. This is on websites. For DDoS, it's different. It usually happens where individual computers run a program, which is malware in the first place. Here on, on, on like this, this Drupal module, uh, it was just an older version of Drupal that, was, that had a vulnerability that they were still running on PokerTracker.com, and then this older version was able to, because that vulnerability existed, then they could... Uh, uh, get into Poker Tracker and get information. So the, the, going on to read you the rest of the statement now that you understand what was happening. Within 24 hours of the email from Malwarebytes, we took several further security steps, which included patching the Drupal module that was vulnerable. That meant basically getting the uh, newer version of it. And, and tightening up our content security policy to only allow whitelist, whitelisted scripts to be executed so that the same type of XSS attack would no longer be possible. So what they're saying here is that uh, they they can have different security policies on their site as far as how much they allow the third-party software to access. And so they decided that they're going to block any scripts from being executed other than ones that they have specifically approved as being safe, where before they were just letting anything execute a script that they were running, and then this is what happened. In the days since the attack, we have been conducting a post-mortem to determine the scope and severity of the attack so that we could contact those customers potentially affected. Here's what we have learned so far. Number one, this was a highly customized and targeted attack of PokerTracker.com and its customers. The script was being loaded from AjaxClick.com, which has not previously been seen in the wild. What they mean by that... You may think, what do they mean in the wild? Do they really mean like wild animals are executing this? No. Uh, a lot of times these attacks are done in mass to a lot of different sites, and they're not really looking to nail a specific site, but they just know that your site is one with this vulnerability. So they hit you and thousands of other sites. That's, that's usually the most common thing that happens. They're saying here that they've figured out that this really was aimed just at them. And in fact, the script that was executing, the, the foreign script that was, that was doing this attack was actually being loaded from a site called AjaxClick.com, and they can't find any record of AjaxClick being involved in this in the past. So it really looks like a, a specific attack that was written just for their site. Which, as I said, is kind of unusual. Number two, it appears that the attack took place between December 23, 2018 and January 2, 2019. 
Three, we believe that the attackers were attempting to intercept credit card information while it was being sent from the user's browser to the credit card processor. We do not have any information to confirm or deny whether the hackers were able to successfully intercept credit card and or billing data. I would say they did. I mean, if, the, if that was the point, and they put all this effort into this uh, custom attack, then of course they got it. Now, I don't understand why this would have stopped on January 2nd if it was successful, but maybe they got as much as they needed and they quit. It's possible they quit because they didn't want it to be detected. Number four, Poker Tracker does not save or store any credit card or billing information on our servers. Only those customers who attempted to purchase via credit card while the rogue script was on the site are affected. We estimate that the number of affected computers is in the low thousands and we are in the process of notifying them. I'm a little confused by this because they're saying that it only took place between December 23rd and, and, and January 2nd, but then they're saying that they only learned about it on August 8th and they disabled it at that point. So what about between January 2nd and August 8th? Now, it's possible that they determined that it wasn't actively running or something after that, but and, and did they really have thousands of customers in that small period of time from December 23rd to January 2nd? I didn't think Poker Tracker is that large, so I... I think, I, I don't know, maybe the, the, when they say the attack, maybe they mean that uh, the active loading of this onto their site and then it was still running until August 8th. That may be what they mean. That this was established between those dates but that it's been running until August 8th. I, I wish they were clearer about this, but uh, if there's thousands of people affected, I have to imagine that people who've been doing it between December 23rd and August 8th. The Poker Tracker 4 application and your data within Poker Tracker 4 has never been compromised. Poker Tracker 4 does load an internal browser for the community page, which would have loaded the rogue script, but it is not technically possible for the script to gain access or view your data within the Poker Tracker application. So basically, they're saying any poker hands you've saved or saved of your own play, that the hackers have not uh, gotten access to that nor would it have been possible given the nature of this attack. I believe that. I also believe the hackers didn't care to get that stuff. They were looking for credit card information. Number six, we have no reason to believe that your PokerTracker.com username or password have been intercepted. However, to be abundantly cautious, we recommend changing your password. I agree with that. Looks like this was not aimed at breaking into PokerTracker accounts for anything having to do with poker play. If you entered your credit card information on the PokerTracker.com website between the dates of December 23rd, 2018 and August 8th, 2019, we will be contacting you to urge you to closely monitor your credit card activity for fraudulent purchases. If you notice a fraudulent charge, please immediately contact the telephone number on the back of your credit card to notify them of the fraudulent activity. Okay, so it is through August 8th. I mean, that's a, I, I think that saying the attack occurred between these dates is kind of not very accurate if it was still executing on their site all the way through August 8th. I think the right way they should have put it was that the attack was established during these dates and continued running until August 8th. Um, We regret that that this incident has occurred and sincerely apologize. It's taken us three weeks to properly assess the scope and severity of damage to notify the potentially affected customers. This is not. This is the first time we've had a major security incident. We've learned a lot during this process we can prove upon. Best regards, Derek Charles. Okay, so is Poker Tracker at fault here? Were they negligent? 
Should they have told you sooner than three weeks? Did they screw up? Are they only coming forward with this because of the bleeping computer report? Well, we'll never know for sure if Poker Tracker would have said anything if articles hadn't come out about this. But since the articles did come out, and since we're only talking about three weeks, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Three weeks is not a very long time, and it does make sense. It takes some time to analyze what happened here. You can't just snap your fingers and know everything. I know this from the attacks on Poker Fraud Alert, which I don't think were targeted attacks. The ones on Poker Fraud Alert were like Chinese and Russian spammers. And in some cases, it took me a long time to track down exactly what was going on and how it was done and how to stop it from happening again and which module was responsible and things like that. So uh, this is not something that is easy to do. And if it took them three weeks, that's reasonable. Had this been discovered six months ago and then never told, that would make them look bad. But uh, three weeks, it's very possible they were going to let people know. The one thing that would say that they weren't going to tell people was that they did know what happened. And they knew it had to do with credit cards. And you'd think that they put out a warning like, hey... If you use credit cards between these dates, watch your statements. And the fact that they only came out with this warning after it was publicized by Bleeping Computer is a little bit suspect. But whatever. As I said, it was only three weeks. There's not so many bad things you can say. Were they negligent? No. For the reasons I said. It's very easy for this to happen. You may ask, well, what about what they're doing now? Why didn't they do this in the first place by whitelisting these scripts so this couldn't happen? Well, this is the type of thing you do after you've been victimized. And keep in mind that Poker Tracker, the dot-com part of their operation is not really their main operation. Their main operation is their software. And Poker Tracker runs on your local computer for the most part. So they're not really focusing on their website, which really just exists for you to buy the software. So they, they didn't put tremendous resources into the security of that purchasing process. And you can say, well, they should have, but it, it, you can understand they built a base, basically a standard e-commerce site and it had a fault in a third-party module and it got taken advantage of. And that happens. It happens to much bigger companies that really should put more effort into their security. So I don't blame them for just running a pretty simple store on PokerTracker.com, which I, I haven't really looked at, but sounds like that's what they had going there and and just slapping some modules together and assuming it was good and then it turned out that uh an advanced attack could be put together through a vulnerability in in drupal and they happened to be running an older version that allowed this and it happened so i don't blame them i don't think they were negligent i don't blame them and it does seem like they did a thorough investigation it does seem like they closed the loophole and I saw there's some criticism of them on 2 plus 2 for their statement about if you notice a fraudulent car- charge, uh, contact the telephone number on the back of your credit card to notify them of the fraudulent activity. Someone's going, oh, so it's on us now. Well, yes, it's, it's your credit card. There's nothing more they can do. So, yes, if you did use your credit card on Poker Tracker between December 23rd, 2018 and August 8th, 2019, look at your statement. And if there's anything on your statement, either now or in the last few months... Call your credit card company and say, hey, I didn't make this charge, and they will take it off. They will always take it off. Just about every credit card issued in the U.S. has zero liability 
for fraudulent charges. They will take it off. Nothing will happen to you. You won't be responsible for anything. If you're nervous, this will occur. If you're nervous, your credit card is going to be used to make fraudulent purchases. Very simple. Call up your credit card company on the the phone number on the back of the card and say, I just lost my card. They will send you a new one, be no charge to you, and the information that the hackers got will be useless. They will have a dead card. For some of you, that's a pain in the ass because maybe you have auto pay things going on on the card and you have to switch all that. I've had my credit card number stolen a number of times in the last two years and uh, shady merchants or whatever are uh, allowing this to happen. And it's a pain in the ass, but you have to make the decision. Do you want the peace of mind that you won't have any fraudulent charges based on this and maybe overlook one? Or, or do you want to just say, hey, I'll wait to see if anything happens. I'll just look at my statement carefully and make sure I, make sure I made every single charge on there. So, it's up to you. If you didn't use your credit card on Poker Tracker between those dates, then you're fine. And if you use poker, your credit card on Poker Tracker prior to these dates or after these dates, you're probably fine too. Because, as they said, and I believe them, they're not storing the credit card information. The hackers were actually intercepting the information between when you enter it on their site and when it's sent to their credit card processor. So even if they got, even if the hacker got full access to the PokerTracker.com website, they still could not have gotten your credit card information from before that. I believe their statement. The only thing that is questionable is whether they were going to notify everybody uh, prior to this being made public. Why may they not have done so? Well, because it makes them look bad. And maybe they just figured they, people will just find things on their statements if anything happens and then they will uh, not know where it came from and they will just get a new card and get the charges taken off and that'll be that. You'd like to think Poker Tracker would have notified everybody but they may not have. It's possible the three weeks was just them saying I hope nobody finds out. I hope nobody finds out. I hope nobody finds out. Oh, they found out. Okay, we, we, we gotta say something. <laughs> Could have been that. And if that's true, that's crappy. But we don't know. So I can't accuse them of it. Think it's possible, but I can't accuse them of it. I'm not talking in code here either. I don't know. It's it's really possible that they were just doing a thorough investigation and then we're going to post the statement. And it's possible they were going to keep their mouth shut. Seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. A text from the four four three area code saying, "What a fantastic summary." of the history and current state of online poker in 2019. Thanks, Todd. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Someone texted me it's down right now. Um, I was saying about it. There's a text right before that about ACR. Hopefully it means about ACR, not this show. <laughs> um, Jeff, can we get your educated opinion on what's going to happen with a hurricane? It's from the 813. This could be a slam against me, by the way, because back in 2005, I said that Hurricane Katrina was not going to be a huge deal, that it's being overblown. It's not going to flood New Orleans. (laughs) But I was more right than it appears, because what I said was it was not going to hit New Orleans as a Category 5 and flood the city. And... 
with that, I was correct. Where I was incorrect, and the, something that nobody thought of, is that the levees were going to break. And the, the levees is what flooded the city, not the hurricane itself. It was a result of the hurricane that the levees broke, but it was not that the hurricane itself came and flooded the city with water. It was that the levees broke. If the levees had held up, then I would have been right, and I would have looked like a genius while everybody else predicting doom and gloom from Katrina would have looked stupid. I was, ah, look at me. Look at look how smart I was here. Instead, I looked like a dummy because I said it's not going to flood the city, and then it was one of the worst floods in the U.S. of all time. So this, this may be a slam from this person about uh, the coming hurricane. That is approaching Florida. Eight one three, I think that's Tampa, isn't it? Uh, is it? I see. I don't know. See, I, wow, Trader Ruski. I, I don't know eight one three. Is one of the few I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Okay. Uh, you know, by the way, they have a seven four seven for Agura now. Have you heard that? Yeah, I know about seven four seven. Seven four seven sucks. Uh, that's an area code he's talking about, not not the airplane. Seven four seven is an overlay. And I hate overlays. Overlays where they do not split an area code and change people, force people to change their area codes. They just add a second area code on top of that. And I, I think it sucks because uh, I grew up knowing area codes to basically give each area an identity. So you hear 818, you think of the San Fernando and San Gabriel Valleys. Uh, well, now it's just San Fernando, not San Gabriel anymore. Uh, you're 213, you think downtown Los Angeles. You think 212, you think uh, like Manhattan. You're here uh, 312, downtown Chicago. You're 909, you think of uh, part of the Inland Empire of California. 702, Las Vegas. 775, uh, the rest of Nevada that's not Las Vegas. So even when area could split, then it just splits what was once a different area code. So so. At least the new area code still has its own identity. It's just a smaller area. An overlay just confuses the matter because it's adding another area code into an existing area. And people usually don't like overlay numbers. Like, I remember 424 got added to the area code 310, which is southern L.A. County. And nobody wants a 424 number. Like, like people still don't want it. People are offered a 424 number. They go, no, 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 do you have anything in 310? Like, like all these years later... People still don't want 424 because it seems weird to people. People know the area is 310. They've known 310 since 1990, and they don't want 424. 424 kind of sucks. So uh, 747 is that version of uh, of 818, and and people don't like it, and I don't like it. I'd rather they just split it. But but a lot of times people don't like the splits because then they have to change their their stationery and their business cards, and and they they don't like having to change their change their area code they can be reached under. That, that used to be a fact of life in the in the uh, 80s and 90s. Your, your area code would just change sometimes. That's the way it was. But I still think that's better than an overlay. I hate overlays. Anyway, regarding the hurricane, Hurricane Dorian, uh, where it stands right now, and it'd probably be different by the time you hear this in the archives, it, right now it's a Category 4. The sustained winds are 140 miles per hour. And it's currently headed towards the east coast of Florida. It is still right now over the ocean. The concern is that it's going to get stronger and stronger. It's got a ways to go until it gets to Florida. And as these things run on the ocean, they get stronger and stronger. And then they hit land and they start to die. But there's a concern that by the time it gets all the way to eastern Florida, it's going to really pack a punch. There's some people comparing it to the terrible Hurricane Andrew that hit Florida in 1992. 
there's uh, reports that some people were unable to get gas. Gas stations have run out of fuel because everyone's fueling up their cars to leave town. And that some people who drove their cars to gas stations with very little fuel and found that there was no fuel at that gas station or anywhere else would just abandon their cars at the gas stations and find another way out of town. So we will see what happens to Hurricane Dorian and hopefully people get out because uh, there's always those that say, no, I, I've survived hurricanes before. No, it's fine. No, I don't want to leave. No, it's a pain in the ass. No, I don't want people looting my house. And then they die. So it's a better safe than sorry here. It's like when the fires were threatening my house last year. I left. I knew some people who stayed. I left. I did what I thought was sensible. Was I got all the important stuff together, including my bracelet, by the way, and uh, stuffed it all in my car as much as I could. And I picked up Benjamin from school. That was the first thing I did was get Benjamin out of school first. The second I heard about this fire, I went directly to Ben's school, even before any evacuations were announced. And I had Benjamin with me. And I was going through the house, and Benjamin was getting nervous that I was collecting things in the house while this fire is burning, and that uh, he was really afraid that the fire was going to come and burn up the house while I was in there getting stuff, and we were both going to die. He said, I, I don't want to die at eight years old, which is kind of sad to hear. But I told him, I said, Ben, we're, I, I keep looking outside to see how close the fire is. I can't just come here instantly. It's, it's, uh, I, I, it, when it, as it gets closer, I'll be able to tell. And once I see it gets dangerously close, we'll just drop everything and leave. So it, it never got to the house. It ended up that I could have stayed here and nothing would have happened. But I got everything. I was constantly looking out the window to, on all sides to make sure it wasn't coming. Then when I got enough, then got in the car, got the dog in the car, and uh, drove away. And you should do the same thing when a hurricane's coming. And people still have time. It's not going to be there just yet. I'm not sure when it's forecasted to be there, but I, I, I'm looking at this right now, and it, it does look pretty bad. It's, it's, it's got a ways to travel to get over to Florida, and it's just going to strengthen. So I think this is going to be a pretty bad one. It just kind of has that look to it. That it's it's going to come over there and be pretty bad. So I would get out if, if you're in the path of it. That's my suggestion. If you're that worried about looting or whatever and take their important things, you don't want looted. Uh, someone wrote in the chat, uh, JSTAT wrote, in case of a hurricane in Florida, go to the slot machine area in Indian Casino. Nothing ever hits over there. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the high-speed train that is going to happen after it seemed like it was not going to happen. The one between Victorville, California and Las Vegas. There has been a lot of clamoring for a high-speed train between Los Angeles and Vegas. A lot of people don't like the drive between L.A. and Vegas, especially during heavy traffic times such as Friday night and Saturday night. 
if you drive to Vegas on Friday or from Vegas on Sunday, you will hit traffic and people don't like it. Plus, even without traffic, it's about a four and a half to five hour drive. So people have thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was just a high speed train like they have in many other countries where you can just get on a train, have it travel 150 miles per hour, relax, be there in two hours, no traffic. Great. But there's some problems here. It's expensive to build. It's got to cover 300 miles. And there's really no place to build it in a lot of Southern California. Out in the middle of the desert, yeah, you have plenty of room. But in Southern California, especially as you get closer and closer to L.A., there just isn't space. And you can't just make space that easily. So... The plan for a while, and this plan goes a while back, has been to start the train in Victorville, which is northeast of Los Angeles, a good deal northeast, and have it run between Victorville and Las Vegas. Why? Because it's much easier, because Victorville is already the desert, there's a lot of open space around there, and... There, it wouldn't be that hard to build a high-speed train between those two areas. This high-speed train, which would travel at 150 miles per hour, could get from Victorville to Las Vegas in about 75 minutes. This was talked about years ago. But it never came to be. At the time it was brought up, I thought it was stupid. Now, why would I think it was stupid? Why would I think that people wouldn't want a train that goes 150 miles per hour between Victorville and Vegas? Well, it's because it's between Victorville and Vegas. Victorville is not a high population area. Nor are there any high population areas near Victorville. Victorville is already far enough away from most things in Southern California to where if you've driven there already, you're going to want to just keep driving to Vegas. That's not the place you're going to want to pick up a train. And there's not a really easy way to get to Victorville if you're in Los Angeles or in the LA area. The population in Victorville is about 120,000 people. Not a small city, but it's not really large. The population in the greater L.A. area, well, L.A. County is 8 million. Then you have, uh, I think, like another 6 million in Orange County, something like that. All these people in those areas are going to have a hard time getting to Victorville unless they drive there. And once you've driven to Victorville, which is already about 100 miles away, why would you stop at that point and get on a train? It doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you? Well, because, number one, you have to pay for the tickets. So that gets expensive. Number two, you'll get to Vegas and have no car. Number three, you only have 185 miles to go to Las Vegas from Victorville. So do you really want to stop, get out, get your stuff out, buy a ticket? Do you want to do all that uh, just to get on a train it doesn't make sense why anyone would want to do that 
if they don't already live in Victorville. Number four, the meth heads will break into your car if you leave it there. You're right. Yeah, there's a lot of meth heads in Victorville. It is 187 miles, according to Google, to drive from Victorville to Las Vegas. Google says it will take two hours, 43 minutes. And that's like an average driver. I'm not talking about someone who speeds. So are you really going to drive to Victorville and then get on a train that takes 75 minutes when driving there would take you 163 minutes? So what, you're saving an hour and a half on the road, but then losing a lot of that time having to switch from your car to the train? And the train's not going to be ready to leave the second you're going to get on it. You've got to, the train has schedules. So in fact, driving there could be almost as fast as driving to Victorville and getting on the train, even though the train moves faster. It's the same reason that even though it only takes an hour to fly between L.A. and Vegas, if you don't live that close to the airport, or even if you do, it may not be worth flying to Vegas ever because there's all that hassle and delay at the airport where driving could just drive right there. I have found that it actually is about the same amount of time involved driving to Vegas and flying to Vegas from here. Except with one, I have a car there, and the other one, I don't. So I never fly to Vegas. Except that one time to just test if I could fly after my my anxiety and problems that I had last year. So, who's going to really take this thing? People in Victorville, I guess. It's good for them. But everybody else, who's going to take it? And I don't believe it's going to stop anywhere. I think it's going to be a direct train that goes from Victorville to Vegas. So not that there's many big cities in between there. There's really very little in between Victorville and Vegas. But it just seems like a pointless project. Now, if they could somehow give some kind of transportation between L.A. and Vegas, or L.A. LA and Victorville that is uh, fast and convenient and would drop you right off at the train station, then we'd start to have some improvement, but you still have the whole hassle of, of getting your stuff off that train and moving it to the Victorville train. I say they either have to find a way to get this thing to L.A. or don't bother. And that's what everyone said the whole time. It, it doesn't require a genius to analyze this and come to this conclusion. That's why I'm shocked that it's happening again. And this time it appears that Virgin is behind it, which also has taken ownership of the Hard Rock, by the way, which is unrelated. But Victorville, the, the, the Victorville to Las Vegas train is going to be run by Virgin Trains USA. The claim by Virgin is that it will connect more than 22 million people between the two markets, L.A. and Vegas. But that's ignoring the fact that most of those 22 million people are not going to want the hassle of this to get to Victorville first. So I'm just not understanding this train. It's going to be a failed train. But construction is set to begin sometime in 2020, and they claim in 2023 it will be ready. I guess it is possible it could be canceled between now and 2020 if they come to their senses. (laughs) But uh, if not, it's going to be built, and if Virgin's behind it, they're going to have the money to do it. 
and then no one's going to be writing it. They're going to go, huh, why did this not work? How do these things get off the ground? Like, how, how does anyone not realize this is a horrible idea? Has anyone not realized that the average person is not going to find this appealing? Getting to Victorville is not trivial. In fact, when I've gotten to Victorville, when I'm driving to Vegas, I, I kind of feel like, okay, I'm a good deal of the way. I don't feel like, I'm not halfway, but I, I feel like I, I'm, I've made good progress in the trip already. How do you feel, Trader Ruski, when you get to Victorville? Kind of, how's your feeling, LA to Victorville uh, on that drive? What are you feeling at that point when you get to Victorville? Sorry. Um, you know, I'm feeling I'm almost at Barstow, about a half hour from Barstow. Then I'm about halfway. It's a good chunk of the trip for sure. Right. That's exactly what I think. I think I'm not halfway, but in half an hour, I'll be halfway. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well into this thing now. It doesn't seem as far anymore. It's not it's not some close by. Place. Right. So unless it was like a holiday weekend and the freeway was packed and then you're going to time it perfectly so maybe you have a 10 minute wait for the train probably not even that yeah I, I guess on certain very specific days where you know like going back is gonna be horrible it's like uh, some of the holiday weekends where you just know on sunday it's going to be a tremendous backup going back home and if you think that taking the train could avoid that that could make it worth justifying doing but on the typical trip to Vegas, even a typical weekend trip to Vegas, it's just not going to be worth it, even if it's a cheap train. Even if someone said, here, here's a free ticket to the train both ways, I wouldn't do it. I want to get there with my own car. I don't want the hassle of parking it and getting out and and uh, moving all my stuff. And as you said, yeah, who wants to trust your car there that some meth head doesn't break in? And they do have that problem over there in Victorville. I actually have some experience with Victorville itself. Uh, it goes a number of years back. But uh, at the beginning of 2001, in fact, on New Year's, I think I've told the story before, but uh, I ended up talking to a girl on the phone from Victorville for 13 and a half hours. And it wasn't even someone I intended to originally talk to. It was a, I met someone online who was a liar and was at that person's house and and had called me long distance, so I figured out, once I realized the person was screwing with me and was a liar, I was going to call the owner of that phone and tell them, hey, that person who was over there, whoever just called me, was ran up your phone bill and uh, just letting you know. I just wanted to get that person in trouble for lying to me. And the girl I called to tell this, the one whose phone it was, after I told her the whole story, uh, we just kind of stayed on the phone and kept talking. We talked for 13 and a half hours got along really well, as you might guess, and then we talked for a ton of hours the next four days, and by this point, obviously, we're like, okay, we're going to meet each other, so we, uh, so I drove to Victorville, which at the time was about, uh, I worked a little bit in that direction, but still not, I still had to drive like 80 miles from work to get there, and it was about 100 miles from where I lived, and the weirdest thing, this was in January, I get to, I get to go to her I, I go over to her apartment and there's freaking snow all over the ground. I go, What the fuck? I can't believe I'm dating someone who's like in a place that it snows. It felt so weird being a an LA person who just like never sees snow unless I unless I specifically travel to it, like to the mountains, that I'm actually like going to meet a girl that I I'm hoping to be dating. Uh and there's snow on the ground. Which I later 
realized was not all that common, but it does happen like a few times a year there, like measurable snow on the ground. But it was weird, like going up to our apartment, and there's snow on the ground. It actually did work out for about a month. It was actually uh, it was uh, that that meeting went well. But I I spent uh, a lot of time in Victorville that month until she moved away. What happened is it, it kind of died because she moved away to a different state, and we tried to continue it, but it fell apart. But uh, during the month of January of 2001, I spent a lot of time in Victorville. And uh, let me tell you, it's not trivial to travel there, and it's not a place I want to leave my car, <laughs> as Trader Risky said. So I don't understand why this idea has been revived, but it has been. I will let you know next year if it actually starts construction. Let's see here. Um, JSTAT says in the chat, get TSA pre-check, no hassles at the airport. That's not true. I, I have TSA pre-check, and it is an improvement. I don't have to take down, take off my shoes and my belt and stuff, but uh, there's, there's a lot of different delays at the airport. A lot of different delays. And then I also get to Vegas with no car, which sucks. Um, let's, let's move on here to our next topic. Hooters is going to rebrand to OYO. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that, but in all capitals, OYO is is going to be the new brand of Hooters Las Vegas. This was announced uh, just as we were talking about the Hard Rock and its plans to close while it rebrands to Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. This is totally independent of that, but this is yet another rebranding of another off-strip property and one which I don't think is going to be very useful. I never understood Hooters in the first place at this particular location. I understood the appeal of Hooters originally, the Hooters restaurants, uh, where the whole point was to go there and be served by young pretty girls with big breasts who were wearing tight white shirts. That was that was the point of Hooters. And it was pretty successful. But in Las Vegas, that's the one place that it didn't make sense to have a Hooters. When you go to Las Vegas, is there ever a shortage of pretty girls that work for a hotel casino that are in tight or skimpy outfits? No, you, you find this at every single Las Vegas casino, in the cocktail waitresses. Some casinos even have, like, go-go dancers that are uh, dancing near, the, like, on, on platforms near slot machines and, and stuff like that. They even still have that at the Rio occasionally, which seems pointless at this point. But uh, you're, you're really just not excited in Vegas to go, oh, wow, I'm, I'm at a hotel where girls wear tight clothes and, and they have big breasts, like, and I'm going to get to look at them. You go, no, you, you, you can see this type of thing all over Vegas. This is not exciting in Vegas. This is the one place where that's not a novelty. So I don't understand why they thought that was going to be a draw to people. It's also off-strip. Not really far off-strip, but it's off-strip. I know Las Vegas is Hooters, and plus, like where it is, it's like, yeah. I mean, who would go there? That place is a shithole. Yeah, it is, and it's and it's not a, it's not something you're going to walk to or, or see right off the strip, and it's it's just a, an ordinary hotel that was built a while ago, 
and there, there's really nothing special or interesting about it. And the fact that it's Hooters itself, like Trader Ruski said, Las Vegas pretty much is Hooters itself. So uh, I, I never understood why they brought that here. And uh, I have a bad memory from Hooters. Not a horrible memory, but like an annoyance that occurred there. Not just to me, it happened to a lot of people. In the late 2000s, it was very common to find good new player card promotions at casinos. For example, Arizona Charlie's had a very good one where uh, you play and they give you an immediate $100 rebate in cash. Or maybe in, maybe in, may not be cash, may have just been uh, slot credits, but whatever. An immediate rebate if you lose. So you get $100 and you just play it and... Uh, you, if you lose 100, then you go to them, they immediately give you 100 free slot play. I think that's the way it was. No waiting period, no nothing, just get the whole thing. Uh, it was a great promotion. And I remember, in fact, MyCon's wife came along for it. Like, we, we brought like a big group of people to go do it from uh, Donk Downer and Everyone Poker at the time. And MyCon's wife got particularly lucky with it and won like 600 bucks. But there's you know, very little risk in that. As I said, I think they give you free slot play after you lose the first hundred, but then you just have to run it once through there. So, and you can run it in things like video poker, so you're not going to lose that much money. The variance isn't that high. You know, maybe you lose a few dollars, but the upside can be big if you get lucky on it. So anyway, there's a lot of things like that around Vegas in the late 2000s. This is getting more rare these days. And all you needed was a warm body that was over 21 with ID, and you can get it. And you had to be a new card holder there. If you already had a card, you couldn't get it. So even if you know people that don't gamble, you just bring them over there and get them a card, and you can run it on their card. Or let's say your wife doesn't gamble. You just go there with your wife, and you both get cards. And you both can run one of them each. So um, that's why like large groups of people <laughs> would come over there and do this. That was Arizona Charlie's. So Hooters had one that looked pretty similar around the same time. And it was a big banner on the building itself. I was living in Vegas at the time. I saw this all the time, this banner, that claimed that new signups to their players' club would get a $100 free play. And it actually it didn't even say lost free base. It says $100 free play for new signups. I said, oh, wow, this looks sweet. So I'm just going to – I just got to go sign up and – I get $100 free play? I even called them. I said, hey, is, is this true? If I just sign a new sign-up, you give me $100 free play? Yeah, yeah, you do. Okay, thank you. So I came down there with my then-girlfriend, Miri. We'd never had a Hooters card before, so we signed up for one. We stood in line for a while, about 25 minutes or so in line. But I said, hey, this is worth it. We're going to get $100 free, 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 uh, free play. And then I said, okay, well, how do I do it? Can you give me instructions? They said, well, no, no, you go over there now. And they pointed me to a girl standing there with $200 bills in her hand. I go, oh, sweet, okay. So she's going to bring, I go, so what is she doing? I go, can I go to video poker? No, no, she's got to bring you to specific machines. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is kind of disappointing already that they're going to make me play on certain machines that probably suck, but okay, whatever, it's free play. So, And I'm, she's, she's holding $100 for each of us, so I guess she'll sit us at two slot machines and... Uh, and, and, and we'll get to play $100 each, and whatever we win, we keep. That's what I thought. So she sits us at two slot machines in a 
roped-off area that's only for the free play, which already was a bad sign. I'm thinking these got to be awful slot machines. And she puts in $100 for me, $100 for Miri. We don't get to touch the bill. She, she puts in the bill for each of us. She gives us 100 credit in the machine. And then she says, okay, so this is how it works. You have $100 credit in the machine. If you can run it up to $1,700 in credit, then you can cash out for $50. (laughs) I said, come again? Did I really hear you say that if I win $1,600 in this slot machine, you will give me $50? And she said, yes. I said, okay, well, what if I don't want to go up to 1700 What if I want to quit at like 1000 Then you don't get anything. You, you have to get all the way up to 1700 or otherwise you get... Zero point zero. I couldn't believe it. So this $100 free slot play, at most, in the very best case scenario, you would win $50. And the biggest chance, overwhelmingly, would be you would walk away with... Zero point zero. So I was pissed. I'm thinking, this is not $100 free slot play. In fact, I thought about it. The $100 itself is meaningless because you can't cash it out. You can't cash out what you've won. You're having to run up this $100 in, in what's basically play money credits up to $1,700 in play money credits, and then they give you a $50 reward for it, and that's it. They could have called it a million dollars free play. Oh, you don't even get the original hundred? No, you get nothing. No, so they, 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 they could have called it a million dollar free play and put in a million fake dollars and then a million, they could have inserted a million dollars for you and said, okay, run it up to 17 million and we'll give you 50 bucks. Otherwise, you get zero. It would have been the same thing. They could have advertised a million dollars free slot play. I'm thinking, this is such a fraud. Well, I'm already there at this point. I might as well try to spin it and get my 50 bucks. Well, it takes a while. I, I, I get it, mine up to like 400 at some point and then it, loses and then i'm down again and i'm up again i could never get past 400 i play the damn thing for about 35 minutes and finally it busts and the miri busts a little bit before i did i went on the internet to see if others were bitching about this and there were then <laughs> some people complained that they had actually just improved it by the time i got there that originally when this promotion had started the machines were allowing people to get further but that it was very hard to run it up to 1700 and the machines were much slower, too, in, in, in earning or losing credits. So some people were running it up to, like, 1100 and then just not being able to get much further, but it wasn't going down very fast. And some people played, like, three hours and got nowhere and ended up busting. Can you imagine? Now, you can leave at any time, but you're feeling like, well, okay, I've played this long. I want to try to get it. So I was furious. What a tremendous waste of time this was. And... Uh, I, I, we even pranked them on, on Neverwin Poker Radio, I think, and well, it was kind of a prank, but I, I, I think it was the Alvin Finkelstein character tried to raise the point that this wasn't really a $100 free play, and the person on the phone either didn't understand or pretended not to understand that this was not a $100 free play. This was just them giving you 100, 100 meaningless credits that you'd have to run up to 1700 which is tough, to get $50, and that it's very fraudulent. Now, why didn't I make a complaint to the Nevada Gaming Commission? Well, because I don't believe this was violating the law. Why? Because I was not risking anything other than my time. I could not lose on this promotion. It's not like I had to put 100 of my Shouldn't it be false advertising? Well, yes, but, but the problem is, and I, it's possible they could be sued for this, or could have been sued, not anymore, but it's possible they could have been sued for this. But the problem is that you have to show losses, and you can't lose. So this is more like a, 
Uh, and who is the well? Time is a loss, you know. I mean, if you lose time, and you make, you know, if yeah, you're a I know, but they can claim programmer. they can claim you can you can walk away at any time. Uh, the, the, the second you discover this sucks, you can walk away, and the most you could have wasted is a few minutes. But but uh, I I think it was really shady. This type of thing should be illegal. I, it probably wasn't, but it should be. It should always be. They should honor if they say 100 free play, it has to be 100 free play. Or at the very least, a, a lost rebate of 100 free play where you, you can run it through once. Uh, something that's reasonable. This, this was not 100 free play. There's no way you could ever claim this was 100 free play because there's no way you could even walk away with 100. Nor could you cash out any credits you win. So it, it, this was crap, and it really made me think less of Hooters. And uh, this was a horrendous promotion. And I posted about it at the time. It's been gone for many years now. Well, and just so dumb because it's like you do these promotions because you want people to come experience the place and stay there and play. Now everybody that comes there is leaving with such a bad taste in their mouth. Right. Telling all their friends. Right. It must have hurt them. Yeah, I can't imagine people would lose this and go, okay, well, now I really want to gamble here. This seems like a great place. Like uh, now they just totally got, you know, they tricked me to come in here, misled me about $100 free play. But and I, I walked away with zero. But boy, I'm feeling good. Let's gamble. Like, no one's going to say that. Like, I, I didn't even understand why they were doing this. So it was crazy. I was uh, livid about this. And uh, anyway, that was my only real experience at Hooters. I think I may have eaten there once in some forgettable meal. I got some wings or something. I don't even know. But uh, th- this was never a consequ- consequential property, even at its peak. And I don't know what this OYO is. I've never heard of it before. OYO. I don't know how you would pronounce OYO. I'm just calling it OYO. But whatever it is, who's going to want to go there? Like, why? I, I guess if you need somewhere to stay and they're the best deal, or if the city's very crowded and you need a hotel, and that's one of them, you can pick it. But is it going to be a destination place? Is anyone going to go out of their way to go to the OYO? No. This is just like this Virgin Hotels USA. It's just or Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, like, why? Why does someone want to go there? What is the reason that people will be attracted to going there other than, well, I need a place to stay and I need something a little cheaper than the Strip? I can't, I can't think of one reason people would. So That is happening, and I don't know if it's going to be closed at any point while it's doing this conversion. Uh, this, this, you may wonder how much it's sold for. It sold for some decent money. $100 billion. $135 million it sold for. The hotel is uh, 657 rooms, and it's actually going to be converted to OYO by the end of 2019. And the management of the hotel will be done by a firm called Highgate, which is uh, partnered with OYO on the purchase. And uh, OYO is some kind of Indian company. And they claim that they want to be the world's largest hotel chain by 2023. So it kind of sounds like this This is just some large Indian hotel company that wants to... Trader Risky, what's going on there? It sounds like a, like a construction. My, my bad, my bad. Thought I was muted. <laughs> So they, they, they want to be the world's largest hotel chain by 2023. Kind of a weird goal, too. Like, why 2023? Why not a more round year like 2025? So they just picked it out of their ass. Uh, we're going to be the largest hotel chain in the world by the year uh, at, at, at 2023. Yeah. 
Yes, we we will be, my friend, the very largest hotel chain in that year. We have any Indian listeners that are probably going to tune out permanently for that. But uh, it is also expanding in Japan, Europe, and other parts of the U.S. And they also invested in Airbnb earlier in the year for $200 million. They claim that right now they're the third largest hotel chain in the world as far as number of rooms offered, the only two bigger being Marriott and Hilton. But who knows if that's true. That's what they're claiming. The valuation of the company right now is $10 billion. And they claim that they're trying to expand in the U.S. And $300 million will be invested in the U.S. over the next few years. But they currently operate 112 hotels in the U.S. in more than 60 cities. I still don't see how this is going to be successful in Vegas. But it kind of just sounds like they're buying up hotels. They just want a presence. They want a lot of OYO hotels everywhere. Part of the reason they may want this is that uh, they may want to just have a presence somewhere in everywhere that people are going to want to go. So you start searching on their website for one of their hotels as a possible option. And I've already been doing this with the major U.S. hotel chains, Marriott, IHG, and Hilton. That's, That's always what I do when I'm going to a city where I don't know where I want to stay yet. I know the city I want to stay in, but I don't know what hotel I want to stay at yet. I'll say, okay, well, what options does IHG have? What options does Hilton have? And what option does Marriott have? And I'll type in the city on their website and the dates, and it'll present me with the options, and I'll pick the thing that looks best. So OYO probably wants that, and they don't want it where people are typing in cities they want to go, and sorry, no hotel here. If people start getting used to hearing, to, to running into sorry, no hotel here a lot, they're going to stop going to that website. But if people start getting used to every city they look that they want to stay in, the OYO has something to stay in, then uh, people are going to go there a lot more often to check what options they have. And that's that's what I've been doing. And that's the reason I focus on those three sites a lot is because I know usually they will have they will all have something to present to me. And then I'll pick what I like. So that may be what they're doing. They may not care so much about whether this particular investment uh, does really well. Does and it'll th- probably be okay. I mean, with the new convention center for anything at the Las Vegas convention center, you could just walk across the street and jump on the tram to go to that. A lot yeah. of events at MGM, so who knows? I mean, it, it, yeah, it is a place to stay that's, uh, as long as they price it competitively, I maybe mean, if they renovate things, then it can be an okay option. And there's a lot of factors that can go into it. It's not going to be a destination place. It's not going to be a major player there. It's not going to be something you go, well, I'm glad that's open. I I can't wait to see it in Vegas. No one's going to be like that. It's just going to be another hotel to stay at. And in fact, as unexciting as the Hooters theme currently is in Vegas, this will even be less exciting. I don't even think they're going to go for any kind of interesting theme there. Just going to be a hotel with a casino. All right. Moving along to our next topic, and miraculously, I've not lost my agenda yet. Another Vegas hotel topic that the SLS has decided they're going to be no more. The SLS has rebranded back 
to Sahara after originally changing its name from Sahara to SLS. So the SLS, which renovated and rebranded the former Sahara and was supposed to be a high-end hotel in a place you wouldn't really expect expect a high-end hotel because that area of the Strip is not high-end. It's, it's too far north. That has uh, officially changed to be Sahara again after the SLS itself has been a tremendous fail. Uh, they were uh, removing things that were uh, put in for the SLS specifically, such as the uh, Sam, the Sandby Stark statue at the SLS, and were transitioning it to basically have the old theme of uh, the Sahara it, it had for many, many years prior to the SLS becoming the new brand of that location. The SLS slash Sahara is located kind of near Circus Circus and kind of near the Las Vegas Hilton, now the West, now it's called the Westgate. Uh, it's it's a very, very north end of the Strip. It's probably the farthest north you could consider the Strip, but for the most part it's far away from anything else you really want to go to on the Strip, unless you're going to Circus Circus. So uh, you're not likely to be over there that often and the area is not particularly good anymore that's the really the last strip property you pass before you pass through a lot of crap on the way to the stratosphere and then that's a really crappy area in between Sahara and the stratosphere the SLS has existed under that name for the last five years and uh, was a tremendous failure I was wondering what was eventually going to happen to it and they decided to make this attempt to maybe bring it back to relevance. And they spent $150 million in renovations to change it from the SLS to Sahara. And the hopes are that people will have fond memories of the Sahara being a big part of Old Vegas and may return there. That maybe the whole rebranding to SLS was a mistake, and maybe that was the reason it was failing. I don't agree with that. I think that the fail the failure is because nobody wanted a high-end hotel in a crappy area of town that's far from everything else that people want to go to. That's just not what modern Vegas is about. Modern Vegas, you're going to stay in a high-end hotel in areas where high-end hotels belong, and it doesn't belong over there. Over there... There should either be no hotel or a kind of budget hotel. High-end customers are not going to want to go there. Uh, They opened the Sahara with 240 rooms, which is much smaller than it currently is now, in 1952. And it had a theme of, it was a Moroccan-themed hotel. It's called the Sahara for that reason. And uh, it was one of the earlier themed hotels. Nowadays, there's tons of themed hotels in Las Vegas, but in 1952, which is very early in modern Vegas history, that was really one of the first themed hotels. And that was 
kind of a thrill for them over there. And as Las Vegas grew, the Sahara was pretty relevant. In fact, they attracted uh, some pretty good talent to perform there. They had uh, the Rat Pack performing there, Tina Turner performed there, the Beatles performed there. And they were doing fairly well back in the days when the Las Vegas Hilton, which wasn't far from there, was the biggest hotel in the world in the 1980s. And when that area of Las Vegas was considered pretty happening. You had the Hilton, you had the Riviera, you had Circus Circus, which wasn't as much of a dump as it is today. And then you had uh, the Sahara a little further north, but all kind of in the same area. However, things fell apart in the 1990s when Las Vegas transformed. That is when the Center Strip took over. When all those big resorts popped up, Center Strip. The first one was in 89 when the Mirage popped up, but then soon followed by TI, Treasure Island, uh, the Luxor, the uh, Bellagio, the, uh, uh, what else over there, Monte Carlo, New York, New York, Excalibur. That became the area of the Strip that people wanted to go to. New York, New York. A lot of things popped up over there. And then there were existing hotels that were still relevant, such as Caesars Palace and Flamingo. So Center Strip became the place to be. And the north end of the Strip was kind of considered old news. The north end of the Strip also was considered lower end. A lot of these properties had deteriorated. They, they were kind of old and beaten up. So why stay in an old, beaten-up place that's outside of the happening area when you can stay in a new, nice hotel, one of these mega resorts, which uh, nice, new, interesting, and a lot of stuff around there to go to. So this killed the Sahara and the surrounding properties. The Riviera went away. Circus Circus has held on, but considered a lower-end hotel. The... Sahara struggled, and people just didn't want to go there anymore. In uh, 2011, there was a very strange purchase where SBE Entertainment and Stockbridge Real Estate bought Sahara, closed it for renovations, and uh, the whole thing was closed for three years, and they reopened as, as SLS Las Vegas. Killed momentum, as I already said. Not that they had a lot of momentum, but what little momentum they had, it was gone. And if people were just not used to going there anymore. And second, they reopened with a different theme and, and hoping to get different clientele. It was no longer a lower-end uh, North Strip property. Now it's supposed to be a higher-end uh, property that you're going to want to spend a lot of money at. And people didn't. And... Uh, Sahara spokesman Christopher Abraham claims that the SLS brand was the problem. It just never resonated with the Las Vegas uh, people. Uh, you know, that's just when I say people, I mean uh, both locals and tourists. He said, our guests weren't certain what it stood for or the type of experience they'd have when they got there. 
Sahara is an iconic Las Vegas brand that's already known worldwide, and the name will also allow us to significantly expand our market reach to engage multiple demographics that will appreciate the intimate, unexpected experience Sahara Las Vegas offers. Let me tell you why I disagree with that. I, I, well, I agree with all of it. The first sentence is true. SLS, what does that mean? Like, people didn't know what SLS was supposed to be. They weren't excited to go there. It didn't have a theme that really attracted people. It was just a brand that didn't seem to uh, attract anyone's attention or desire. That part's true. But Sahara is an old brand that the last thing people remember of it is it was something that was run down, that was a thing of the, a relic of the past that uh, just wasn't that interesting anymore. It was something that didn't keep up with the times. It was just an old hotel that was once cool in the 60s and 70s and maybe part of the 80s and by... By 2011, was not relevant. So people aren't going to go, oh yes, the Sahara, this is exciting. No, they're going to go, okay, well, it's now called the Sahara again, but I didn't really want to go there eight years ago when it was Sahara. People may come there just to take a look at it again, because this is news and they just switched it back. They're hoping to capitalize on nostalgia for old Vegas. The uh, someone said in the analysis of this that uh, younger demographics like the idea of old Vegas with new amenities. I don't know how much that's true. I don't know how much people from uh, younger people really care about old Vegas. So I, I think the people more likely to want to go there are people like my age who remember Sahara but didn't really get to experience much of it in its heyday because we were too young or not even born yet but are old enough to remember when it was relevant but still I, I don't I'm not excited to go there I might stop by to see it but I'm not like oh yes the Sahara's back it's, a, it's just one of these things that's kind of the time has passed for it and they may be helped by the fact that this area of the Strip is going to get Resorts World, which uh, should open next year. There's also another property in the area called Drew Las Vegas that will open in 2022. And even the Stratosphere is uh, renovating, though I don't think they'll ever be relevant again. So the Sahara, they may be hoping that this area of the Strip is going to become more relevant and interesting again for the typical tourists especially because of resorts world and they may become a decent option again for people to stay even if not a budget hotel they say we're creating an entirely new resort anyone walking into sahara las vegas will find a completely modern boutique resort experience so we'll see I, I kind of see what they're going for. They're going for, like, classic new. Something that keeps elements of classic Vegas hotels, classic Sahara, while making it modern and, and new-looking. But I, I don't know if that's enough to bring people over there, especially in that area of the Strip. The only thing I could see saving it is the opening of Resorts World and kind of shifting some of the traffic of Vegas over there. But it's not so close to Resorts World that it's like right next door. It's just, 
I could see that possibly helping, and I could see this as a fail, but I, I guess this is their final shot at it since the SLS was going nowhere. And they've been dumping money into SLS for years and just hoping things improve. And it, It's so funny watching companies do this. You should, you should know pretty quickly if your hotel's a fail and really has no way to improve. Like you, you can tell pretty quickly if something's just not catching on. And no point to throw good money after bad. What you have to do at that point is say, okay, what have we done wrong? Why is this not working? And what can we do to turn that around? We have to take some kind of drastic measure to turn this around. But they weren't. So this is the drastic measure at this point, finally, five years later. And we shall see if that has any kind of success. It may or may not. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Sean Fanning's limp dick, not Sean Fanning himself, but only his limp dick, has commented in the chat room, Sahara seemed to be targeting very old people who didn't want to hear any loud noises or bright lights the last time I was in there. (laughs) Last time I was in there, I got uh, kicked out for card counting. Not kicked out, I was... was, uh, I think I was told not to play blackjack. I wasn't kicked out. I think I was told not to play blackjack. If I remember correctly. I don't even know. I know I was card counting there and something happened. I don't remember. It wasn't like something big. Like I didn't get backroomed or 86. I may have been told not to play blackjack there anymore. It's, it's so long ago. It's kind of a blur. I only went there because Mike on went there. That's how long ago that was. Jay Stats says... I should have just waited to January. Oh, sorry, Dad. JSAT says, uh, Sahara was big at Lake Tahoe, Reno, and Las Vegas, run by Del Webb. Webb was fourth out of the casino business due to mob connections by the feds in the 1980s. So he's saying there was a Sahara in Lake Tahoe and Reno? I wasn't aware of that. That I did not know. JSTAT, uh, tell us uh, if that's true, that it was in Lake Tahoe and Reno. I don't remember that, and I went to Lake Tahoe in the 80s. Now, admittedly, in the 80s, I was underage. JSTAT's older than I am, so he would have been an adult in the 80s. Yeah, because I thought it was just Harris in in, La, in uh, Tahoe. Yeah, Because it's the Harris, right? Because it's like one big, one name that's obvious. I thought the second biggest was like, what, the Frontier or something? Well, the, yeah, always... in Tahoe, I remember for sure the, in the 80s, because I stayed at Harris a lot. And I also, I remember there's a Harvey's that at the time was not the same ownership. So Harvey's was there. Harvey's, that's and, what I was and then there was also there's also a Caesars there, which which has since changed names. So there was a Caesars. Oh, it was Caesars yeah. right? So there was one hotel like that, but there wasn't a second one. Harvey's was like this, the the other one, right? Yeah. The, the funny thing is, Caesars is not Caesars anymore, or even Caesars owned in in Lake Tahoe, and Harvey's is Caesars owned, and Harris is Caesars owned, and then so it's it's funny how the of those three properties, the two that are Caesars owned were not called Caesars back in the '80s, and then Caesars back in the '80s is not Caesars anymore. Uh, so, so, yeah, Jay Stat is saying that Sahara Tahoe was the jewel of State Line. State Line is he's referring to the uh, Lake Tahoe, Nevada portion. It's called State Line. That's the actual city name there. He says Elvis performed there. I, I know Elvis performed in, in Harris too. It must too. have closed, and it must have closed in the '80s, though. It must have. I didn't hear of it. Right, it got bought. Yeah. Me too. I want to look this up now. I'm, I'm really. This is something new. I don't think usually JSTAT is pretty is pretty good at this stuff. So I want to look this up. Sahara Lake Tahoe. 
Okay, so it, yeah, it was uh, the current Hard Rock. There was originally Sahara Tahoe closing in 1983, and then it uh, it was rebranded. It wasn't closed. It was rebranded to uh, High Sierra for seven years, which I don't remember. That's fine. I was there during those years when it was High Sierra, and I don't remember it. And then uh, then it became Horizon Lake Tahoe in 1990. I went to, to Harrah's Lake Tahoe a lot in the 80s, and then our family stopped going there. And uh, we started going to Mammoth instead. So that was the end of Tahoe for me for a while. And uh, I don't remember High Sierra. It's funny. There was a Sahara Tahoe. Yeah, Jay Stat knows this stuff. He's he's pretty good at the casino history. And it's rare he'll post something which isn't correct. Well, thank you. That's a new thing. Oh, yeah. I wasn't doubting him. I was just, you know, I just knew. I, pro- I probably went, yeah, maybe I didn't go there till 84, 85. Thought I went there once or twice, but yeah, like you said, if you don't gamble, you probably don't even notice it. I went. I went to Tahoe for the first time in uh, I think it was '84. I think it was '84, either '84 or '85 when I went there the first time. It was '84. It was '84 when I went there. I remember, in fact, at Harrah's, I was 12. So it was '84 for sure, and I remember the arcade kind of in the basement. It's kind of like a basement area of Harrah's. And I remember there was a rule there that you had to be 15 to be there without an adult. And I'm like, crap, there's no way they're going to believe I'm 15. And I was so expecting to run into some adult down there saying, uh-uh-uh, I don't believe you're 15, where's your dad? But there was no one guarding it. So they just put that. But then you could totally just go there as younger, and they didn't clamp down. And I was so proud of myself that I could go to the arcade despite not being 15. So that, was not, that was not a common rule at arcades at the time. It was just at that arcade, for some reason, they put that, but they didn't enforce it. But, right, and I'm sure it's not like you're going to have a security guard down there. I'm sure they have much bigger problems yeah, upstairs. Well, right, but I was picturing that as a 12-year-old, like they're, they're going to have someone down there and he's going to immediately see I'm not 15. I'm like, oh, why couldn't I be like 14 I can claim I'm 15? But there's no way I can get away with it now at 12. And I, I did not look older than 12. should have put a big fake mustache, Sean. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't even – That in the trench coat. <laughs> I, I wasn't even tall at 12 either. I didn't even have that going for me. So even though I'm tall now, I wasn't, when I was 12, I was not tall for a 12-year-old. So I, I just uh, I, I just got tall by just continuously growing until a late age. So that uh, at twelve I was not tall, and uh, I was probably like five foot two or something. So uh, that, I was not going to pass as a fifteen year old, and my my face looked twelve. So, okay, uh, I, I guess that's all to say about this. I guess I can move on to our next topic, which is the Genting Group. Saving Resorts World, but not Resorts World Las Vegas, but Resorts World New York. There is a Resorts World New York, not New York City. But uh, the Genting Group, which is a very large Malaysian company, has stepped in to at least temporarily save the struggling uh, Resorts World New York which is known as a, now Resorts World Catskills. It's in the Catskill Mountains in uh, New York, in upstate New York. They're saving it from Chapter 11 bankruptcy that was looking like was going to be a very likely result over there. The resort has and been... it was open and running? Yeah. It, oh, sorry. Yeah. And, 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 it, and it's been uh, hemorrhaging money. It's, uh, since its opening which uh, it wasn't even too long ago, it's lost uh, $73.5 million, according to a filing that they did. 
with uh, the SEC. And uh, it was really thought that they were headed for bankruptcy. They only opened on February 8th, 2018. So they've already lost $73.5 million in that time. And and that figure was before today. I don't know when it was reported, but uh, they... Uh, but lost, or does that include the construction and everything else? No, no, that's since it opened. Like that's how much they're into it for? No, no, that's since it opened. Or gambling. No, just okay. it, uh, like the operations, like everything since it actually opened. Since just it opened operationally. Its doors. Yeah, since no, it opened its you. doors, it's actually lost $73.5 million. So that's that's pretty bad since February 8th. So uh, Genting already and owned. Did they have a poker? Sorry, did they have a poker room there? I don't recall. I think they did. I, I think they did. I, it's, it's too bad Calwatt can't be here right now because he's not that far from there. I, I don't know upstate New York. Well, that he's well. pretty far. He's all the way up in Ryan. Yeah, he, mean, is, is it that far from Catskills? I think he's out that way. Uh, yeah, I think because I know I went there from the city a couple of times. Yeah, and I think oh, you're right. It, it, had a house it, it, there at one point. Okay, it, it is far. I, I just I, for some reason I just think it's only a couple hours out. But from New York City, I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. See, I, for some reason I pictured the Catskill Mountains further north, but they're not. Uh, it's actually I just looked it up. It's 255 miles from Rochester, so that's uh, that is pretty far. It's kind of like going to Vegas for us. So yeah, it, it is north. Right, it and is then north. how far from New York City? Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's probably less. Probably right, I think it's like a couple. Because I would think it's, yeah. uh, it's one hundred thirty-three miles from from New York City. Oh, so that, okay. Well, that's not bad. You would think they could get some big poker games going and yeah. start to move people out. But yeah, but they're they're not they're not doing well there, and. Uh, it was looking like they were headed for Chapter 11, and uh, the Genting Group already owned 86% of it, so they, they weren't uh, they were saving themselves in a way. They agreed to buy the remaining shares of the casino, which was publicly traded for 9.74 per share, that's $9.74 per share, from Empire Resorts, and uh, it's about 15% above current market value, and then they are taking it private. This was uh, a, considered a $1.2 billion casino. That's what it cost to build. And uh, the sale we finalized at the end of the year. And uh, as I said, it won't be publicly traded anymore. They also have decided to put in uh, somewhere from like 50 to $75 million in... Uh, in funding for the casino, which will help it financially and operationally. Uh, it's, it's not clear how that's going to be used, but it doesn't look like it's going to be for renovations. It looks like they're just uh, going to be using it for, uh, to just give themselves more operational room. The Genting Group currently has 40 casinos in its portfolio, but that includes the Resorts World, which has not opened yet, but will open next year most likely. It is possible they are just postponing the inevitable, much like the... It reminds me a bit of the revel in Atlantic City, which is just a, an ex- expensive fail, which uh, was poorly designed, despite being uh, beautiful by all accounts. It's uh, just poorly designed and not appealing to guests and not run very well, and the whole thing just lost money. It just The revel just was a case of something that was expensive and looked nice, but just... Uh, it was so poorly designed that it looked unlikely to run out of profit no matter what they did with it. So it's one of these things like, yeah, it's a great property, but 
you can't run it at a profit, so who wants it? And they've, they've been battling with that for a long time, with that property. So this, this kind of reminds me a little bit of it, but we'll see if that ends up the same way. It is true they don't have the competition that the Revel faces because uh, there really are not all that many casino options for people in the New York area. So we will see where that goes. I, I will admit that I'm not that knowledgeable about that area because I don't live there and I don't go there very often. In fact, I've never been to the Catskill Mountains. I, I will say, though, that uh, my parents went to the Catskill Mountains when they were dating. And my mom would sometimes go there. Which I'm not sure if they went when they were dating. I think they did, too. But I know my mom's family would go there a lot when my mom was growing up. My mom, my mom got sick of it. My mom did not like the Catskill Mountains. <laughs> she, she didn't have good memories there. And the, the Catskills Mountains also was the setting for the movie Dirty Dancing that was supposed to take place there. Other than that, I don't know much about And don't they have that famous uh, concert venue, I think? It's called uh, Fox Sound, I think so. I forgot. I think my parents told me a story about Rodney Dangerfield. This is a long time ago, so I hope I got the story right. But uh, that, that Rodney Dangerfield performed there when they went, and they thought he sucked. They're like, this guy sucks. He's never going to make it. And this is before he was known at all. That was kind of where he got his start. And then he ended up being famous. And then many years later, I hacked his answering machine. That's true, too. Okay, so let's, uh, let's move on here. Who, who said he sucked dropped your mom or dad? I, I think they both did. Both of them no, I think both of them didn't like him. Both of the, From what I remember the story, they were there at the Catskills, and then they didn't like him and thought this guy sucks and he'll never make it, and then he ended up famous. Okay, so let, let's uh, talk about the term rakeback and what that means. And I'll tell you in a second why I'm bringing up this topic. Some of you might already know. But Trader Ruski, if I were to say I have a poker site and if you sign up new to my poker site, you will get 51% rakeback. What would that mean to you? What would you picture when I say that? And I'd, I'd honestly answer that. That I would, no, I'd, I'd think I'd get 51% of all the rake, the people I referred, accumulated. Uh, but what do you mean people you referred? I mean, like, per, for all signups. I'm not saying if you're an affiliate. I'm saying if, if you personally sign up and get 51% rake back, what are you expecting as a player? Oh, then I'd get that cash back, like, once a month. Right. That, that's what um, I would... That, that would like it. a refund of the rake each month. That's right. Exactly. That's what I would expect, too. And that's the reason we would both expect this is because we've played online poker for a long time and because the term rakeback goes back to, uh, I think, around 2002, 2003, something like that. It's, it's been around for a very long time in online poker. And I'll, I'll give you the history, in fact, of the term rakeback. I've said it before on this show, but I'll quickly say it again just so people understand where it came from. That I think it was Party Poker that first did this, but... Certain online poker sites in the early days of online poker signed up affiliates to advertise the site and refer players there. And basically these affiliates got no money to advertise it. But if players clicked through on the links from the affiliate sites, then the affiliates would get some kind of payment. Sometimes they'd get a flat payment and sometimes they'd get a percentage of the rake that that player generated for life. So if you were to refer a very active player 
this would be great for you as an affiliate because you would just sit in, do not sit around, do nothing, and lots of money would roll in from all that rake that person would generate. They would actually give a pretty generous amount of rake to the affiliate, like thirty percent. So imagine you you just refer someone over to party poker in the early days, and they start grinding there all day and all night. You get thirty percent of all rake collected. Uh, at, at no risk to you, and you just sit around doing nothing. It's a sweet deal. I wish I did this. I wish I set up affiliate programs back then. It was a big mistake. I didn't do it. Well, the problem was that since this was such an easy way to make money with very little risk and very little startup expense, a lot of affiliates popped up that started competing for this. And someone eventually came up with the idea, wait a minute, I've got to set myself apart from these other affiliates. Otherwise, I'm just one in a giant sea of them trying to get new signups to party poker. So why don't I start offering to share the wealth with the player? So why don't I offer to give some of my commission back to them? So that started to be called rake back. Why? Because the affiliate's getting like 30% of the rake you generate, and then they're giving you a certain percentage of that rake back to you as the player. So you'd see these affiliates advertising click my link and get this percentage rake back. And as Trader Ruski said, it would be around the end of the month or sometime around once a month. They would give you a flat payment. They'd usually transfer it to your poker account of just basically what looks like free money to you as the player, which is a percentage of the rake you're getting back that you would not have gotten if you signed up directly with the site. And that's the way rake back worked for many, many years. And that's the way people got to know rake back. Now, there were some modifications over the years to Rakeback. Uh, first of all, Rakeback became something that you had to give as an affiliate. It became from like an innovative idea to get new people to everyone doing it to where affiliates were only keeping a small percentage of the rake at that point. The, rake, the affiliates were no longer keeping 30% of the rake of the players they'd refer. They, they would uh, be getting like maybe 30% from the site of the rake, but then giving 27% to the rake to the player so they're only keeping three percent still makes them a lot of money for active players but it's not like it originally was but so rakeback became like essential as far as affiliates were concerned and rakeback also existed in a few forms in some cases rakeback was calculated by the rake that the player actually paid themselves and in some other models, it was calculated by the amount of rake collected at the table while they were there sitting in, which are two different things, but kind of similar. And uh, The bottom line was, if you were getting rakeback deals through affiliates you signed up with, and you played actively on that site, then you could very reasonably expect a decent payment at the end of the month for rakeback. There wasn't much variance to it. If you played a lot, you would get a lot. If you played very little, you'd get very little. If you didn't play at all, you wouldn't get anything. It was it, the exact amount was, you know, would change, but it was it, it wasn't by that much. If you counted your hands, let's say you played 10,000 hands that month, you're not going to get that much of different rakeback than if you played 10,000 hands the previous month. It's going to be very close. Poker Stars introduced FPPs, frequent player points. And that was kind of a form of rakeback. They didn't usually refer to it as rakeback in their marketing, but occasionally they did to compete with sites like Full Tilt. But it really wasn't their main marketing strategy. They didn't usually talk about it as rakeback. But FPPs were a different form of rakeback where you'd earn points and you could spend the points on poker stars to get different things, either prizes or 
you could exchange it for bonuses, which then would be pretty easy to clear and then trade for cash. It wasn't quite the same as direct rakeback, but it was similar in that way, where just like the standard rakeback model, if you played a lot, you'd earn a lot of FPPs. If you played very little, you'd earn very few FPPs. And the value would be depending upon how many FPPs you earned. So it's all along the same lines. You're getting some percentage of your rake back from poker play that active play earns you more, inactive play earns you less, and it's got very little variance to it. It's pretty damn predictable what you're going to make from playing X number of hands. And that's the way rake back has always been. Even though there's various forms of it, it's, it's all along those lines. And it's something that's been accepted and has been assumed to be like that. And if you hear the term rake back, your, your mind instantly goes to where Traderuski's mind went and where my mind goes when I hear about rake back. And it's been this way since the early 2000s. So we've got a lot of years behind us at this point where the term rake back, while maybe not in the Webster's Dictionary, has a very specific meaning that immediately conjures something in your head when you hear the term mentioned. Really, the only thing that comes to mind when you hear rake back that you don't know originally is, how much am I getting? Am I getting 20% rake back, 30% rake back, 50% rake back? Maybe if you got a, some kind of special deal to uh, promote the site or play on the site or your site pro, you get 100% rake back. But what rakeback means is pretty clear to everybody who's been around online poker for some time. So this is why I feel that now changing the definition of rakeback for marketing purposes is unethical. Unless you're very clear what you mean by rakeback when you say rakeback, if it is not the model we just described. Where did this come up? Phil Galfon's Run at Once site, you might have guessed this by now. They claim that they have 51% rakeback. In fact, they're, if you go to, just go there right now, go to uh, runitonce.eu, not .com, runitonce.eu.com is their training site that's existed for years. Runitonce.eu is their poker site, which is only available for non-U.S. players. And go there, wait about, I don't know, 15 seconds or so. There's at first a little, you're, you'll see this thing that's a demonstration of the table and the avatars they have. You've got to wait for that to pass. It probably takes about 15, 20 seconds. So wait for that to pass, as I'm doing right now. And then, bang, a big coin, a big obnoxious coin flies in your face in that same screen and says, 51% rake back for all players. You can't miss it. Wait like 15, 20 seconds, that'll pop up in your face. 51% rake back for all players. Originally, when Phil was saying that there's going to be rake back for everybody, he was referring to the fact that he felt it was kind of unfair that you had to sign up with an affiliate in most cases to get rake back on other sites. And if you signed up directly and didn't know about affiliates, that you would get nothing. And he felt that was kind of unfair. I agreed with him. I, I, did, I thought that was an old antiquated model and that they should just uh, either just lower the rake all around or, or give rake back to everybody, but not base it upon whether you sign up with an affiliate, especially on large sites, which don't really even need affiliates anymore. So Phil just decided that they're going to give 51% rake back to all players. Okay, that's 
a lot of rake back. You'd think that they could just lower the rake and cut, you know, cut the rake in half and accomplish the same thing. But there is a point to giving rake back to everybody because what it does is it gives people kind of a refund at the end. So if they lost, they suddenly find money back in their account and it can make them want to play again. So there are reasons to do it that way. And I understand that. And that's fine. But it turns out that 51% rake back is not quite what it appears to be. That's because you're actually not getting rake back in the form that we just described. The rake back in the form that I just described on that site is typically going to earn you 0.0. The 51% is actually going into a pool for a promotion they run called Splash the Pot. Splash the Pot is something that every so often it drops a bunch of extra money, sometimes a lot of money compared to the size of the game you're playing. It just drops it into the pot before the, the hand even starts. And the winner of the pot will get both uh, the money they normally have won in the pot and the splash the pot money. So the splash the pot money came from that 51% rake back. That's what they mean. What they really mean is 51% of the rake is being returned to the players via the splash the pot promotion. Hmm. Now, what does that sound like to you? Have we seen anything else in poker over the years where a certain portion of the rake goes into something where one player wins a lot eventually and everybody else wins zero? Or a few players win a lot of money and everybody else wins zero? And it's funded by the rake. Ah, can you think of anything that might be like that in poker that might have existed before Run It Once came up? Oh, wait a minute. Jackpots! Jackpots. Think about jackpots. Usually they take a dollar from the rake and they fund a jackpot. And then when something occurs that's unusual, like a huge hand beating another huge hand or both whole cards are used, like say a four of a kind beating four of a kind or something like that, then people involved in that hand or sitting at the table at the moment will win the jackpot money. And it'll be split up according to who won the hand, who lost the hand, who was at the table, but the majority of the poker room and people who had been there before and already left and contributed that dollar per hand in rake, uh, they don't get to share the wealth. It's only those few people involved in that hand or the few people at the table when that hand happened. So this is a jackpot is a thing where they are funding it by the rake. It is returned to the players, but it's very disproportionately returned to the players, and there's a ton of variance to it. So Splash the Pot is much more like a jackpot than it is like Rakeback. And have you ever heard of a jackpot being referred to as Rakeback? No, even the shadiest of shady card rooms don't try to say that a jackpot drop, where they're taking a dollar from each hand, is Rakeback. Even if they are giving it back to the players, they never call it Rakeback because that's not the right term. And even dishonest card rooms, even shady card rooms, don't have the nerve to call it Rakeback because it's not. No, but Truff, that is different, though. Because that's a separate dollar you're putting towards the jackpot. This, they're saying they're taking 51% of the main rake and putting that into the jackpot. Well, I agree. It's, the, whatever they call I agree it. it's collected differently. Right? But so I just think it's a little different. It is a little, it's not exactly a jackpot. I agree with that. It's, it's a little different in the way it's collected, but I think it's much closer to a jackpot than rake back. And so, so if you don't agree still, listen to this. I, I actually... Broke this down in a post of 2 plus 2, which I reposted on Poker Fraud Alert. Uh, 
of what a jackpot promo is, what a rakeback promo is, so or, or what rakeback is. A jackpot promo comes from a pool of money funded by a portion of the rake, hits on an occasional frequency, rewards only a small percentage of total players when it hits, has huge variance regarding each individual player's return on it, and it can sometimes return huge to players who have barely played at all. Rakeback is returning rake collected at a later date to players at the table, goes to everyone who played on the site, is not tied to any infrequent random event, has very low variance, it's very easy to approximate how much you're going to get based on how many hands you played, and it'll never return huge to someone who's barely played. So, so between these two descriptions I gave, which sounds more like Splash the Pot, the jackpot or the rakeback? To me, even though it's not a jackpot, even though I agree there are some differences, it's much closer to a jackpot, it's definitely not rakeback. Basically, 51% of the, pot, of, of the rake is funding a promo called Splash the Pot. Which goes back to the players. That's still not rakeback. You can't uh, rakeback is something that's very low variance. That's directly tied to how many hands you played. Uh, th- this is not it. So it's not rakeback. Now, if they want to say fifty-one percent of the rake returned to players via splash the pot promotion, fine. That's true. If they want to say fifty-one uh, percent of the rake goes back. Through splash the pot department. Yeah, even back to well, even back to players. I mean, I think it would be much less. You know, yeah, just it's, not as bad as it is now. Yes, I just don't think they should call it rake back because you envision something completely different when you hear rake back, and 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 they're not clear about it on their front page. Go right now. Go to runitonce.eu and take a look. Wait those twenty seconds. Wait for that thing to pop up, that a big obnoxious coin in your face saying 51% rake back to all players. That's all they say. So, to me, it looks like they're trying to draw you in by thinking, oh, 51% rake back. That's way better than I ever got. And then you sign up. And then you find out the bad news. But by that point, you've already, uh, you've already signed up. And maybe you won't think it's bad news. Maybe you'll think, okay, well, this seems kind of cool. I kind of like this. It seems fun. Okay, fine. It's, it, I'm not saying that 51% doesn't go back to the players. It does. They're honest about that. But it's not rake back. It's not what it's called. Now, a lot of people on 2 plus 2 don't agree with me. A lot of people on 2 plus 2 are saying, well, it's rake. It's going back to the players. So it's rake back. Get it? You're a moron. Are you serious? They're yeah, really yes. arguing with you? Yeah, they're that really, is unreal. Very few people are on my side, at least that are posting. The, what's funny is a mod. I'm not going to name him, but a, one of the mods... Uh, messaged me and said, you're totally right about this. I don't want to get involved, but you know, <laughs> one of the big mods at 2 Plus 2 is like, you know, they, they, I totally agree with you. And then and then another mod I don't really know named Dave publicly posted that I was, quote, spot on with my analysis. So there's some who agree with me, but a whole lot of people are jumping on my case saying that I'm just being negative. I'm just trying to, to criticize that, that it's fine. It's If it's going back to the players, it's rake back. And I, so I said, look, it's just very simple. If... Something in marketing is advertising something that, say, two-thirds or more of the average people reading it are going to be confused by and think it's something different, then it's misleading. Then they need to change it. It's just not right to ever advertise something that you know will be taken a different way by the people receiving it. If what you're advertising creates an expectation by the vast majority of people that you know you're not going to deliver, you're tricking them. You're deceiving them. And there's no way around that. I call, I call that uh, Druff's rule of shadiness, is that if something a company is trying to tell you, a company or an individual, something they promote to you is actually not what it seemed to you, 
And if two-thirds of the people would have also been misled this way, then you got screwed. That's the bottom line. Sometimes it wasn't intentional. Sometimes it was accidental. But either way, you got screwed because you were misled into believing something that was not true. And at that point, they have to try to make it right and or change the way they're doing things. But they're not interested in changing this, and it makes me really think that they know. They know that this is a way to kind of trick people into signing up, and then they can claim, well, but we are giving 51% back. So I just think that's very dishonest. And the funny thing is, in Phil Galfond's first statement about this site before he ever designed it, at the very end it said, I want a fair, honest, transparent poker site that believes in the dream I've lived. Okay, be fair, honest, and transparent. Don't call it 51% rake back. You know what people are going to think when they see that, and that's not what you're delivering. You're delivering a different thing than rake back. Be honest with what you're delivering. If people still want to sign up, great. If they don't, they don't. But don't trick people into signing up through that rake back claim. Not a huge deal, not a gigantic, terrible scam or anything. It's just something misleading that I think bothers me because it's uh, this is supposed to be the site that's honest, fair, and transparent and then they're doing this. And uh, it, it would be like me running something here. When, you know, I'm the guy who runs Poker Fraud Alert, and then I am running some promotion that's, that's, that's misleading people. You'd all be pissed off. You'd say, you're a big hypocrite. You know people are being tricked by this, and you're still, you're still promoting it this way. And, and if I continued doing it, I would be a big hypocrite. I, I wouldn't be fit to run PokerFraudAlert.com. So that's, uh, I, I don't think Phil is like a dishonest guy or a shady guy, but I just think that uh, they've bent this in their mind to think, well, we can call this right back, and yeah, it's going to get people signing up, so uh, we can technically claim it, so we're going to claim it. It's, it's bullshit. Like, just, if you're running a site that you claim is going to be fair, honest, and transparent, and it's one of your selling points, then always be fair, honest, and transparent, and if you're accidentally not, then fix it, and I doubt they will. So that's, that's, that's my first uh, run at once story of the week. My second one which is our final topic, by the way, is about Phil playing on his own site. Well, he started doing that at Low Stakes. Low Stakes PLO, if you're able to play on there, if you're in Europe, you can actually go on to runatonce.eu, sign up, and play real money PLO against Phil Galfon at Low Stakes, which I have no objection to. I think that's a... A good idea that they're they're finally doing some things that uh, to try to get traffic there. Like Phil is starting to play there uh, and, and publicizing it and streaming it, and uh, they actually are giving thirty percent real rake back, which they're calling direct rake back for a few days. I think that's over now. I think they gave it for like three days between the twenty sixth and 29th, which is pretty laughable. Like they're finally realizing they've got to do something extra to bring people there, and they do it for like three days. But at least they're starting to realize they can't just stay the course. So Galfon playing there, kind of in old-school, full-tilt, play-with-the-pros style, I think is a good idea at low stakes. Why? Because most people who are over there right now are there because they're fans of Phil Galfond and they kind of want to play his site, and they think it's kind of cool to play his site, and they're supporting what he's doing. So a lot of these people don't have anywhere near the bankroll to play Galfond at the games Galfond plays. Galfond plays very high stakes. So it's kind of cool to be able to play against Galfond at low stakes you can afford. And I don't have a problem with him playing on his own site at low stakes because what's he going to do? You think he's going to cheat you at uh, 5 cent, 10 cent PLO? I mean, why, why would he do that? In fact, if anything, the incentive would be to cheat himself and rig it for you to win against him 
so you get the good feeling like you're beating Phil Galfond and maybe you're better than you think you were. So that, like, I'm not saying they're doing that, but I'm saying that the last thing he would ever do, even if he was shady, would be cheating people at, at, at low-stakes PLO. It would be a, a very foolish move, even if he were a cheater, which I don't believe him to be. I think he's honest. I don't see him as a, as a cheating poker player. I've never heard any rumors that he's like that. I, I would be very surprised if Phil Galfond was a poker cheater. So I want to make clear here that I don't think he is. And I'm not just saying this because I have to, because I'm more afraid I'm going to get sued. Like, I, I really believe that he's not a cheater and not a shady guy. So him playing low-stakes PLO, even on his own site, because he's such a normal high-stakes player, it would be highly unlikely, that even if he was shady, that he would cheat you. And no one would suspect that. No one would suspect he's sitting down at, at, at low-stakes PLO to, to rip people off. So instead, it, it, it's kind of exciting. Instead, it's something that could bring people over there. Instead, it, it's got to be a good idea. I don't think that by itself is going to save the site, but it couldn't hurt. I think it's a decent idea, and I have no objection to it. However, he also stated on a recent blog that he's looking for someone to play him at high-stakes PLO on his site, and that if you wish to challenge him and, and play him at high-stakes PLO, which he'll stream and... Uh, play on run at once to let him know that is very different that is a bad look no matter how honest you are i will tell you that if i ever run a poker site if i own a poker site you should not play me for high stakes there not because i'm going to cheat you but because you should never play any owner of a site for high stakes on their own site especially one where they built this offer from scratch, even if it wasn't him personally building it. It's just never a good look. It's not an ethical thing to do. Even if you're not cheating anyone, the problem is you can't prove you're not cheating anyone. So, so let's say Phil Galfon plays someone high-stakes PLO and just runs super well. Okay. Do you totally believe that this was on the up-and-up? Do you think there's maybe something nagging in your mind that maybe you were cheated? There probably would be, even with his good rep. It's high stakes. Maybe he needs some more money to fund this fail site he's got going. Again, I'm not saying he'd do it. Again, I I think he's honest. But you never know. And that's why anyone who owns a site, even me, They should never play anyone at high stakes on their own poker site. They just should never do it. It's different than playing in a live card room that you own. I'm talking about playing a poker site, which obviously can be rigged. And it's just something that's not appropriate to do. Because nobody ever knows for sure. You should trust nobody, no matter how good their rep. If you're playing your own mother, yeah, but... uh, Short of that, you should not trust anybody high stakes on their own site, nor should they want to play high stakes against you on their own site because of how it will look. Because if they run well and win, it'll look terrible for them. So it's a kind of a lose-lose for them, too. If they lose, they've lost money. And if they win, they look like they won because maybe they cheated. And there's always going to be suspicion, especially if they crush it. And... Think about it. Even in live poker, I'm sure everybody here has had sessions in live poker where you run so bad and certain guys run so well that you swear if it wasn't live, you'd think it was rigged. 
So take one of those sessions where everything's on the up and up, and Phil just happens to run super well and kill and kill his opponent at, at uh, heads up PLO, and he did nothing wrong. It just the cards ran his way, and then there will be suspicion. I wonder if Phil's cheating people here. I wonder if that's how he's funding the site. Like there'll be all kinds of rumors, ones that are not justified, but ones that people will have because it's his site and he won big. Now this hasn't happened yet. He hasn't played anyone for heights PLO there. But he should not be doing it. Nobody should be, not just he, nobody should be playing high stakes, anything on a site they own or control. They shouldn't. Do it on a different site. Do it on neutral ground. Low stakes, totally fine. Any stakes you play that that are for relatively little money, especially if you have a lot of money and it's unlikely that you would be uh, cheating people to win small amounts of money compared to your net worth, that's fine to play. Then it's unlikely someone would do that because... Gain, whatever you'd gain from it is not going to be worth trashing your reputation if it's ever found out. So that's why even a shady person isn't that likely to cheat you at, uh, at, at super low stakes. High stakes, you shouldn't do it. And I want people to understand, I'm not saying I don't trust him, I'm not saying I think he's a cheater, I'm not saying I think he is going to cheat you, I'm saying that it's just a terrible look and no one should do it. So I think that's a, a big mistake on his part, and he shouldn't be doing it. And I think if he does, it'll start to raise eyebrows in a bad way. Like, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> so that is something that should not happen. And I know no matter who it was, I would not feel comfortable playing them on the site that they own, if it's any kind of meaningful stakes. Especially if it's software that was built by their team. If I'm sure I'm playing on some package that the person has no control over. Like, if you play me on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, I don't control that software. This is a software package that was bought by Belly Buster, and he's running on his computer. And Belly Buster doesn't have access to modify it, even if he wanted to. So, that's a little bit of a different story. But proprietary software, you definitely do not want to play the owner of that software. For high stakes, it would be very stupid to do, no matter how much you trust the person. That's my commentary on that, and I'm about done. If anybody's got any questions in the chat room or whatever, want to call in, 775-372-8355, Trader Risky, how do you feel about uh, Phil playing high stakes on his own site? Um, it's probably the least of his problems. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. But, you know, you know what I mean? It would probably be, you know, somebody who's also a player at that level. And I don't know. It's that big of a deal. Just because I don't think there'll be a lot of action. It's not like, you know. No, there won't be. But, but even if it's some, the thing is like, let's say just someone, just some acquaintance of his who says, Hey, I play high sticks PLO also. It'd be fun. Let's just play each other. And then that guy gets clobbered. And I, 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 it's, it's got to yeah, be no, on the guy's yeah, mind. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Like a good friend of his, maybe. A good friend who's sure Phil's never going to rip him off because he's such a good buddy and he, and he knows Phil's character. And all that. Yeah, fine. But just some acquaintance, even someone like a friendly acquaintance, then the guy gets, gets clobbered. He's, it's going to be on his mind and other people's mind. It will be. And I, I don't blame him. Yeah, no, he can't win. Either yeah. he loses or he wins and they think, he, you know, these yeah. questions. Yeah. So that's. That's uh, something I think shouldn't be done. 
Okay, so let me take a look at the chat room, see if anyone has uh, any questions over there. I'll take a look at the text. Maybe Calwatch peeing. Calwatch, yeah, okay, he maybe uh, might have woken up. Oh, yeah, here, I'm going to tell you guys about a dream. That's what I'm going to do. I do have uh, something to tell you guys since we got you know, The show's been on for less than five hours, so might as well finish off with a, a dream story. I just had it today. It was very realistic. In fact, I, I blamed it somewhat on the fact that uh, maybe since I was somewhat sick from the food poisoning, I wonder if this caused me to have more of a vivid dream than I typically would. But uh, I, I usually don't have very vivid dreams, and I'm glad about that. I, I don't have dreams where I really, really feel like super alert. And that's why when weird things happen, I don't think too much of them. And that's, that's normal. That's, that's how you can have dreams where just crazy things happen and for some reason you don't question it until you wake up and go, what the hell? Why was I accepting this as reality? Uh, and this is good because when bad things happen in these dreams, you don't have the usual panic you would if these things happen to you in real life. And even if you're stressed in the dream, it's not as bad as if these things were really happening. It's only on occasion I'll have a dream that, that's like where I'm really, really alert about things and really thinking almost fully rationally and really feel like I'm there. And then if I wake up right when the dream ends, then I remember it too. And that's what happened here. So I had a dream that I was driving from uh, L.A. to Vegas. And there was a ton of stuff crammed in my car. And I was with Benjamin's mom and Benjamin. And for whatever reason, there was a border check, almost like I was crossing into a different country. And they quickly checked something. I don't remember if it was my driver's license. I don't know why we had so much stuff in the car. It was almost like we were moving or evacuating. But we had a lot of stuff in the car, just like crammed to the top of stuff that came from the house that you wouldn't normally take on a trip. And... The guy, I think he looked at my license, whatever I showed him to present who I was at this border check, which, of course, doesn't really exist between California and Nevada. There, there is like a, an agricultural check that they usually just let you go through. But this, this wasn't the same thing as the agricultural check. This was something at the border where they actually take a look at your ID and see who you are and then let you go. But it, it wasn't like – it wasn't clear why they were doing it. And I remember thinking it's a little strange they're doing this. Well, the officer who – checked my ID, told me, you know, come over here, drive your vehicle over here, and I, I was driven, I had to drive over to, like, a parking spot in their facility there. And he started asking me all these questions, and then he said, well, we're going to have to have, we're going to have to interview for you for a while here. This is, uh, there's something going on here, and we have a lot of questions for you. I'm thinking, crap. So, they said, we're going to need you to come inside. And I said, well, it's very hot out here because it was the dream was set in this time of year and it's very, very hot at the California-Nevada border. And they, I said, I've got my girlfriend, my son here in the car. And they said, oh, no, no, they, they, this is going to be a long time. They, I would suggest they get out of the car and, and just uh, sit in the lobby of the facility and it's air-conditioned in there. So I'm thinking, crap, what's going on? So I'm thinking, can you tell me what this is about? And he says, well, um, not right now, but this is a very serious matter and it is going to take a while to resolve what the hell so what what is this weird check 
on the border between these two states, and what do they want with me? Well, for whatever reason, Benjamin and his mom didn't leave. They were still hanging out in the car, and I didn't go in the facility yet. Instead, the guy, I kind of like got out of the car, and the guy was talking to me. And it turned out that this, what seemed to be random officer that was checking things at the border started to reveal that he had been investigating me personally for a long time. And he even said, you know, I was even just outside your house two days ago. I said, what, you're outside my house? He said, yeah. I said, why? He says, it was a standard check on, uh, um, on, on your living situation, something like that. Like, basically, they came and observed my house and what was going on around it. I'm thinking, that's weird. That's almost 300 miles away. Why are they... They came all the way here just to look at my house and go back. Oh, this, this is sounding pretty serious now. And I go, well, you sure, why can't you just tell me? And he said, well, we're going to get to that eventually. But it, again, it's a very serious matter. And we're, it's going to take a while to resolve this. And we're going to need the truth from you. And I'm just racking my brain. What could I have possibly done wrong? What laws could I have possibly broken? And why is there this major investigation on me? And I couldn't figure it out. That was the worst thing, is I could not figure it out of what I had done. It wasn't like, I'm like, oh, they figured out this. So it's like, I'm thinking, what did I do? And I'm wondering if I was framed for something. I'm wondering if I'm falsely accused for something. And I started really panicking, because I was thinking very clearly, and things seemed so real. I started really panicking that somehow they've got some case on me for something I didn't do, and I'm going to go to prison for many, many years. And this is the beginning of it. And I felt like powerless to stop it. It was it was an awful, awful feeling. And I, I kept, and especially just hearing the guy had been outside my house was just really freaking me out because it just made the thing seem so serious that this seemingly random officer that was stopping people at the border had actually been investigating me personally to the point of coming this far to look at my house. So I remember getting back in the car and I see an older guy approaching on some kind of weird vehicle and then getting out and walking to me. He did kind of look like an older police officer. Probably looked around 60 or something. And he had like a kind of grayish brown beard. And he approached me and <laughs> I just took out my hands to shake hands with him and he didn't shake my hand. And he said... Uh, uh, hello, I'm I'm such and such from, uh, and he said some agency name, and I don't think it was the FBI, but it was something that was clear to me in the dream, was a second agency investing me, investigating me. And I said, so you're involved in this too? What what, what do you guys want with it? And he says, well, no, we this has been a joint investigation, and uh, and I'm here to talk to you about everything. And I'm thinking, oh my god, a joint investigation. Like, what the hell could this be? This does sound terrible. And I, so I said to him, well, I still don't understand what I've done. And I woke up. And I had kind of such a stressed feeling, and it took me about a minute to realize that none of this was real. And the first thing I, I the first thing that I was able to tell myself when I tried to figure this out rationally once I woke up was wait there's no 
border check station for people passing through. There's an agricultural check station, but there's not one where they check you as if you're passing through international borders. So there's there's no way this could be real. And I thought, uh, and wait a minute, I'm, I'm in my bed now, and and I wasn't taking a trip between these two places. And like I I, I rational I, I I went through it rationally and realized that there's no chance this really happened. And that uh, and this just was a dream. That there's nothing to worry about. But boy, it was scary thinking that I was being falsely accused of something that was major enough to where they're doing some super big investigation. And I really was starting to worry that uh, for many, many years going forward, I was going to be in prison for a crime I didn't commit. A crime I never found out. They never told me in this dream what I did. I never got to find that out, and I never will. Unless the dream continues tonight, which I hope it doesn't. But it's very vivid, and very re- seemed very real. And the emotions connected were very real. And I don't like those. In general, I don't like having dreams. But if I'm going to have them, I'd rather I'm kind of like in a fog. I don't really know what's going on. The vivid dreams are not good. In fact, that's... That's what scared me away from taking Xanax when I needed to take Xanax, was that I heard that it could bring on dreams. And I didn't want that. I, I didn't want vivid dreams. Somebody, someone told me, oh, I got such vivid dreams on Xanax. I'm like, no, I don't want that. So I was so afraid of the vivid dreams, I didn't want to take it. And then what I decided I could do is I said, well, I'll just take the vivid, I'll take the Xanax like way before I would be planning to go to sleep. And then I asked my psychiatrist about it, and he said, well, actually the Xanax, it happens, but it's not as common. He said, Ativan, that's where you get a lot of the dreams. And I said, well, what if I take the Ativan and, like, way before I'm going to go to sleep, like 12 hours beforehand? He said, no, 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 it's, it, Ativan's longer lasting, so you're probably going to have them anyway. A lot of people get their dreams on Ativan, so I'm like, you know, screw that. I, I, I actually had some Ativan, and I, I, I never took it because I was afraid of the dreams. I didn't want the vivid dreams. It's not just dreams, the vivid dreams. I don't want the vivid dreams for the reasons like this. So the Xanax did not give me vivid dreams at all. Though I still have never, never taken it like right before I've gone to sleep, but I have not gotten vivid dreams from it at any point. All right, we're, we're done here. Troy Drewski, I'm glad you lasted the whole time. Friday nights are much easier. It is. I think we'll be back on Thursday next week. I, I, I'd like to say that. Then we, I say that it doesn't happen, but I, I'd like to say that it will happen next week. On Thursday. It'll happen next week at some point, and it'll be our first show of September 2019. So we should either be on September 5th or 6th, depending upon whether we are on Thursday or Friday. Won't be Wednesday. And thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Just always check uh, Poker Fraud Alert's Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash Poker Fraud Alert. And uh, keep in mind, this is a site that uh, runs at a loss. It really does. And uh, it's a voluntary effort by me. It's not done to make money. The only ad we have is on the bottom of Poker Fraud Alert. We have an Amazon banner that when... People click the Amazon banner before buying something. I get like 3 to 6% of what they buy, but hey, I don't make much money on that. A good month of that is like 30 bucks. So that doesn't pay for things. 
and we don't have any other ads and this site will never run for the purpose of advertising money I'm not saying I'll never take ads but if I do I'll make sure it's ads that would never compromise the ability to fully control the the content myself I will never allow this show to be controlled or dictated by anyone else as far as the content that we present here but thank you for listening I just do this show for the listeners the people who want to listen to it if there were not then I wouldn't do it that's the only reason I do it it's not to make money for sure it's for the for the listener for the enjoyment of the listener if you have suggestions of what you want to hear on the show segments you'd like done or things you'd like to see not done anymore let me know 775-372-8355 you can text me at any time and we'll try to get Calwatt back I will try even though I have to make the show a little bit earlier and maybe more regular on the day it's on we'll try to get him back Thank you, Trader Ruski, as always, for being here. That is all. Good night. And shalom. Shalom.